Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History, Herstory, and True History, Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings to one and all. So let's go ahead and get started in anchoring heaven on earth. We have in our hearts here this afternoon all those who have suffered from the tornadoes in Mississippi and Alabama and other weather conditions as we pray for them and the survivors and uh, wrap them in comfort for all of their loss. Please go into your heart center at this time. As we wrap them in soft pink love and light, so we are experiencing the same. Going into the heart center, we call forth at this time the full mergence with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, with all of our multidimensional being. And we see ourselves in our pillar of light filled with that soft pink light of love to bring peace and compassion, harmony, all of the love-based frequencies to our lives and to our world. Please see, sense, and feel your pillar of light fully anchored to source and fully anchored to the heart of Mother Gaia. As we invite in, everyone to join us. We do so with our prayer. Please say after me, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with source, and I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. Take a nice deep breath as we see everyone joining us in their own pillar filled with the pink light and we are able to connect heart to heart, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart, all connected to the cosmic heart of all that is. So we welcome for everyone all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward. We welcome our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pots. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing team, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council, We welcome all of the kingdoms to assist with this project of bringing heaven to earth. So we welcome all of the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the bird kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. 
We welcome all the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. And we welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus, and all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service here today. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven as we ask our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 999 times 999 billion times for one and all in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth to work with us all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation. We ask that it be received easily and effortlessly through every cell, chakra, meridian layer of our work field, individually and collectively, multidimensionally, and through the conscious, subconscious, superconscious levels of the mind, again, the maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection. We also ask that with all that we receive, we easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all of our blessings, graces, dispensations. With the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, and love and light and laughter. We call forth everyone and everything in our circle of support from the very first name that created it to every man, woman, and child, including all of the people that have made their transition, perhaps those that are waiting to be found due to the destructive weather patterns in Mississippi, and perhaps Alabama. But we call in every individual, every family member, every loved one, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every institution, every nation, every military, every government, the legislative aspect of each government and the laws they are creating or working on creating, the executive aspect of each government, all of the leaders, cabinet posts, all those who make decisions, every judicial aspect of each government, 
on a national, state and local level from the Supreme Court here in the U.S. to every judge, to every jury, every court proceeding, every decision. And we call in all of the weather patterns and those affected by them, be it the tornadoes, be it any recent earthquakes or droughts or rain, rains and floods and hurricanes and typhoons, all destructive weather patterns. We call that in for divine balance, divine harmony. As we call in the weather of the new earth, in harmony and balance for all. And all the situations that we have in our circle of support, be it clean water or housing or dis-ease on any level, everyone and everything that we've ever thought of putting into the circle is all there, everything that needs to be to bring heaven to earth. And we call in all of the energy that people are focused on, whether it's politics, whether it's our recent equinox and new moon, whether it's award shows or basketball games or whatever it is, we want to call everyone's energy and attention. The energy that they're focused on, the things that they're focused on, we want to pull all that into our collective cup of consciousness to use the energy across the planet for the transformation of the planet, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, that everyone recognizes who they are as divine beings and wishes only peace and harmony in every situation, bringing forth all of the aspects of that which we consider heaven on earth, including our divine governments for all. And we ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field multidimensionally, through every ley line and saw line, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, through every portal, every vortex, every monument, every sacred site, every place of power across the planet, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution, and Gaia takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. Take a nice deep breath. As we say the following prayers, through my beloved, mighty I am God presence. And the mighty I am God presence of all peoples of earth. I call forth the diamond shining light purification, love, and power of the goddess Venus into the atmosphere all across the earth but especially over Mississippi and Alabama where the 12 tornadoes took place and any other place that needs attention at this time. 
I call you to hold the people safe, to rescue those that are still alive, and to balance the powers of nature and the forces of the elements. Please visualize with me the projection of golden um, so simple, uh, symbols over this area. Visualize hundreds of golden crosses pouring forth the Ascended Master light, Ascended Master consciousness, and diamond shining purity, love, and power over the fight, over the affected areas in Mississippi and Alabama, too, and any place else across the world that needs it. And we visualize hundreds of golden goblets and crystal cups pouring forth Ascended Master light, Ascended Master consciousness, and diamond shining purity, love, and power over these areas. We call it forth all throughout the United States, all throughout the areas that are experiencing war or violence or unrest. All those areas that are experiencing protests, rightfully so, perhaps in Paris and other places, Israel that's that's having protests as well. Any place that needs these energies. Beloved Archangel Michael, we call you forth. Mighty I am God presence, mighty I am God presence of all the peoples of earth. Archangel Mikael, great cosmic beings. Seven mighty Elohim release in oceans and oceans and oceans of the great central sun, sacred fire, flames, miracles of eternity, of love and purity into the lower atmosphere of earth and into the powers of nature and the forces of the elements compelling them to be cleansed and purified. We give thanks for this as we say, Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. So again, we ask for these sacred fire, flame miracles, to move through all the parts of the world that need assistance at this time. And we decree, I demand the invincible God healing and purification into all the water, air, and earth elements upon our beloved planet. Mighty Christ I am, I am the great central sun's mightiest golden Christ illumination. And beloved Akasha's rose pink flame of love, will, and grace unfolding, protecting every emergency worker and every first responding responder involved in rescue missions. Again, especially in Mississippi here today when they're looking for survivors. Guide and strengthen them, guide and strengthen them, guide and strengthen them as they fulfill their service. I thank you. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. I am the resurrection and the life of legions of angels, preventing all wrong everywhere forever. 
replacing all appearances with ascended master perfection and sacred fire, purity, harmony, and peace. I am the presence of the healing angels, ministering to the needs of all those who are in distress on any level. I am the master power flame of the ascended masters, amplifying all constructive calls from the people of earth, 999 times 999 billion. Almighty Christ, I am. I am the resurrection of the life of all compassion toward the people of the earth and its atmosphere, amplified 999 times 999 billion, loving our planet free. I am the resurrection of the life of the divine plan fulfilled for every individual and nation, Amplified 999 times 999 billion. Loving our planet free. Loving our planet free. Loving our planet free. Almighty Christ, I am. I am the resurrection of the life of the divine plan fulfilled for Earth, its inhabitants, and its atmosphere. Amplified 999 times 999 billion times. Loving our planet free, loving our planet free, loving our planet free. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Mighty Christ, I am. Mighty Christ, I am of all the people of earth, Lord Mahakohan. Mighty Kohans, Helios, Aries, Neptune, and Virgo, Archangel Michael, Lord Astraea, the entire ascended and angelic host. We command demand, and demand that you strike your cosmic Christ blue lightning bolts into every tornado, every hurricane, typhoon, cyclone, and storm. As soon as the forms anywhere upon the planet and neutralize, neutralize, neutralize it before it can act against life. Cleanse and purify the atmosphere, the waters, the earth element of all negative thought forms and emotions that may be disrupting the weather patterns. Silence, consume, and remove all energy of the sinister force that is being projected into and acting in extreme weather conditions. We command and demand the resurrection and the life of the powers of nature and the forces of the elements manifest now. We command and demand the resurrection and the life of the powers of nature and forces of the elements manifest now. We command and demand the resurrection and the life of the powers of nature and forces of the elements manifest now. We command that nature be set free from all impurities and discord ever imposed upon it. We call forth oceans and oceans and oceans of the great central suns, mightiest sacred fire, miracles of eternity, passing through the powers of nature and the forces of the elements and all discordant weather conditions nonstop to remove and silence all anger and hatred that is acting in those conditions. Replace it with the purity, peace, harmony, beauty, and perfection from the ascended masters octave forever. Provide relief, protection, and restoration to all affected areas. Beloved God and Goddess of Harmony, project and anchor your golden flames of cosmic harmony throughout the earth 
establishing and maintaining perfect balance within nature and the elements worldwide. Bring forth God's almighty perfect weather patterns and climates around the world. By the Lord Mahakohan's victorious cosmic Christ control of the powers of nature and forces of the elements. And we say, Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Can take a nice deep breath. We're going to call forth Gaia to fully anchor this along with Sandalphon individually and collectively for all. We invite the presence of the angels into our lives. Beloved, I am Christ's presence within and above. Beloved Archangel Jophiel and Archi Christine and beloved angels, I know you are real and I command and demand that you bring your angels' love into my life and fill and charge and saturate my home, my personal and business activities, my life, my means of transportation, all my tomorrows and all my opportunities with your sacred fire love and mastery and power in all of its ongoing victorious action. I call into my life the sacred fire of the angels' cosmic Christ love in all of its purity and power and mastery to just drench my life and world with its continuous victorious action. I am ready to experience the angels. Angelic love I am. Angelic love I am. Angelic love I am. Mighty Christ I am within and above. Mighty I am God presence of all the people of earth. Great ascended host and great cosmic beings from the great central sun. We demand and command in the name of beloved Mother Akasha, Father of Son, the Christ, beloved Saint Germain and the Director Logos, the mightiest divine intervention and assistance from the great central sun's heart flame in the great, great silence that opens the way for every ascended master sponsor of every nation in the world to be given greater authority, power, and influence to help every nation fulfill their divine plan and destiny as harmoniously peacefully and perfectly as the Ascended Masters do it, and quick as a flash as the Ascended Masters say it. Beloved Ascended Masters, sponsors of all the nations of the world, drive, drive, drive your sacred fire of love, purity, and power through every leader and every person of every, every nation that compels them to fulfill the will of God's divine plan. Almighty Rose Christ, I am. Almighty Rose Christ, I am. Almighty Rose Christ, I am. Beloved, mighty I am Christ's presence within and above. Anchor, beloved Mother Akasha, anchor your rose pink flames and rays into the consciousness of all life. Beloved Akasha, fill in charge our electronic circles overflowing with your rose-pink flames of divine love, divine will, and divine grace. See that the concentration becomes so intense that it begins to act like the great central sun's magnus presence, drawing onto us all that is our own, all that love can bring, all that is ours by divine birthright, 
all that fulfills the Ascended Master's divine plan, the Ascended Master's way, by thy loving command. As I humbly stand before thee, Mother Akasha, and command that my life be the mighty rose pink flames and rays that fans out into the feeling side of the people. I command the Queen of Heaven, make of me such a powerhouse of rose pink flames and rays that out from me blazes into the consciousness, especially into the feeling side of all the people of Earth right now, this divine love, these rays and flames. I am the will of the great central sun fulfilling this call right now, forever, everywhere. Rose pink flames of divine love I am. Rose pink flames of divine love I am. Rose pink flames of divine love I am. Mighty I am God presence within and above. Beloved great God presence of every life stream within America. Beloved St. Germain. Angels of the violet purifying flame, and all the masters of the sacred fire. Stand in the heart flames of the great central sun and project oceans and oceans and oceans of the mightiest violet flaming miracles of eternity and all their love, mercy, and forgiveness into the atmosphere of America, into the feeling side of life of the American people. In silence, 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 all discordant feelings that are acting in them toward themselves, others, or any part of creation. Please join me in saying, heal, harmonize, and unite the people of America. Heal, harmonize, and unite the people of America. Heal, harmonize, and unite the people of America. Beloved Goddess of Justice, release thy sacred fire scales of divine justice into the feelings of all the American people. And awaken, arouse, and amplify a new sense of love, praise, gratitude, and appreciation for all the blessings and gifts that come to them from God each day. Beloved St. Germain, I invite you with all my heart and soul to show me now what is the sacred desire of your heart for me, for America, for humankind, the planet, and all beings everywhere forever. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. My beloved, I am Christ's presence within and above. Beloved, I am Christ's presence of all the people of earth. Beloved, goddesses, peace, purity, harmony. Mother Akasha and the legions of thy angels come forth into action right now and release oceans and oceans and oceans of your sacred fire, love, peace, purity, and harmony into the atmosphere of earth and saturate it. Then drive, drive, drive your sacred fire, love, peace, purity, and harmony through the mental and feeling world of all humankind, the powers of nature, the forces of the elements, and all the kingdoms of life. Make us feel the power and mastery of your sacred fire, love, peace, purity, and harmony over all conditions in this world and raise us into your ascended master's heart flame perfection forever. We give thanks for this as we say, Almighty Christ I am. Almighty Christ I am. 
almighty Christ I am. And at this time, we call forth blessings of abundance. And see, sense, and feel abundance comes in different, more than one way. So picture the golden ray of eternal peace and infinite abundance. Picture the emerald green ray bringing in abundance as well. As we decree, we are as abundant beings. From the light of God, goddess, that we are. From the love of God, goddess, that we are. From the power of God, goddess, that we are. From the heart of God, goddess, that we are. We decree. We dwell in the midst of infinite abundance. The abundance of God, goddess, is our infinite source. The river of life never stops flowing. It flows through us into lavish expression. Good comes to us through unexpected avenues. And God works in a myriad of ways to bless us. We now open our minds to receive our good. Just breathe and receive. Nothing is too good to be true. Nothing is too wonderful to have happen. With Mother, Father, God as our source, nothing amazes us. We are not burdened by thoughts of past or future. One is gone. The other is yet to come. By the power of our of our belief, coupled with our purposeful, fearless actions and our deep rapport with God, Goddess, our future is created and our abundance made manifest. We ask and accept that we are lifted in this and in every moment into higher truth. Our minds are quiet. From this day forward, we give freely and fearlessly into life And life gives back to us with magnificent increase. Blessings come in expected and unexpected ways. Mother, Father, God provides for us in wondrous ways for the divine work that we do. I am indeed grateful. And so we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We ask for this to be sealed, maintained, and sustained, expanded in divine perfection individually and collectively for all. As we give thanks for this opportunity to serve, I thank you at this time for your divine service this afternoon. We want to take this moment to thank Torn Rama for their divine service. And we thank our sister Rainbow for her divine service as well. I wish you a magnificent week filled with magic and miracles, blessings of every good thing. Stay focused on the blessings. Stay focused on the miracles. And let's watch them happen and enjoy them and appreciate them and give thanks for them as I give thanks for you. I want to invite you to some further service every Sunday and Monday evening. 
for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. Again, Sunday and Monday, we begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greeting. We have about 20 minutes from Tarn Rama. And then at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth. Through our meditations, our decrees, our visualizations, our activations, this is a teleconference call, and we are using as our main number the following number. Area code 480-660-2224. Again, that's area code 480-660-2224. We invite you to uh, join us, the code to put in is always the same, 946-7441-POUND, 946-7441-POUND. If you, there are lots of other numbers, local numbers, international numbers. You can join us through the internet, even through an app. If you need that information, please contact me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I, at AOL.com. I love and appreciate you all. Thank you for being here and being of service on the planet at this time. And I'm, with that, I'm going to pass the talking stick to Rainbird, filled with this um, violet, filled with the resurrection and ascension energies, filled with the gold and the green of abundance and every possible frequency we could require at this time. So with all of the magical energies around it, I pass this talking stick to you, Rainbird. Infinite blessing to all. Thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick, and thank you for your divine service as well. I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And each week we need um, around $300 to meet our commitment with CBS Radio. And that's what we need this week. It's actually two ninety-six fifty. And thank you all who donated and got us caught up from last week. We're grateful that that got submitted today. And, um, yeah, so here, let me tell you how to make that donation. As um, What you want to do is go to bbsradio.com, and we're looking for the listings of our show. You find that under the selection uh, section on the menu there, and as you look for um, this program on Radio Station 2, you'll find it listed at the 3.30 hour. This is in Central Time. And uh, there is, you click on the icon that's there for the hard news, I mean, the uh, true history, history of Nisera and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama. It's listed there, this program. Um as you click on that icon, it'll take you directly to our account with CBS Radio where you can make your donation any amount. So thank you for your generosity. Uh, to find the listing for radio station one for 
the night a night at the round table or on Thursday and on Fridays the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. You'll find that by going to radio station one and clicking on selections and you'll see that listed on Thursday, a night at the round table at the eight o'clock hour and that's central time. And then on Fridays it's listed at the eight o'clock hour uh the hard news call. So either one of those icons take you directly as you click on it to our account with CBS Radio where you can make that donation using your bank card. And thank you for taking that action. Thank you for showing up that way. We're so grateful for all your contributions. Um, and what else? Yeah, as you're making that contribution, um, that link, uh, no, that's not. Excuse me. Yeah, so thank you for that. So that's how we keep up with CBS Radio. Again, we need $300 this week that's due by Friday, the last day of the month. And uh, it's two ninety-six fifty if you want to know the exact amount. And uh, so thank you. Thank you for taking that action. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week, they have bills that are coming in on Monday that will be uh, $360 in bills, three different bills. And um, they also still owe ET, and that has to be paid right away if we can't keep him waiting any longer. And that's $490, and that includes the tire. Well, actually, 496 So I'm just saying 500 but not to be scary, but this day, let's round it up a couple bucks. <laughs> And uh, so that needs to happen, and that's really important that that happens this week. Um, so that includes the repair of $400 that we still owe and the spare tire that he has to buy, especially for that car, for that model. <clears throat> so as we can assist with that, that would be awesome. It would just be so good to get this one wrapped up. And uh, yeah, so 360 in bills, 500 for that, and then they need $200 for their uh, basics, food and gas, and they basically don't have any food right now, so thank you for making sure that happens as well. <laughs> this is real important that Tara and Rama get to eat and feed their their kitties and put gas in their car so that Rama can do his work. So so much gratitude for your consideration. Here's how we do it. We go to rainbowroundtable.net and there as you are on the home page and click on the menu you'll see a donate button listed there at the near the bottom of that list. Also you'll find a donate button or donate link listed on the update from Tara and Rama. Uh, so those are two places you can find those links to that. And as you link up there, you go to his PayPal account. And um, in order to find a friend's option, you just scroll down to you see the heart and click on the heart, and that is the friend's option. And you put in the Rama's email there, and that is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. Um, 
and that should do it. There has been some issues with it that Ron will be working on that to make sure that that gets cleared up. Um, so if you don't succeed the first time, just try again. <laughs> and if you just click on the link and just put it, go to the Rainbow Roundtable site that way, I mean, that's where it takes you. You can make that donation there. It's just a, a commercial site that takes all the, a little bit more money out of your donation. So either way is perfect. We're grateful for your donations and for your attention to this and for showing up that way. So much gratitude. Um, so there you go. That's all the information. And what we'd like you to do also as you make a donation is to email Rama and let him know. Uh, and that email address for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-N, 999 at Comcast.net. And so drop them an email, let them know what you sent and when you sent it. And if you do have any issues with that, making that link, you can point that out to them. But we are working on it to make sure it's a smooth operation. So let's, we'll see what happens. <laughs> And then what else? Um, yeah, as you need it, the email or the mailing address for Rama is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280280, and that's um, in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. So that zip code for Santa Cruz, New Mexico is 87567. Again, 87567. So there you have it, all the information. So thank you again for all the ways that you show up in your lives. Thank you for showing up this way. This is really important that we get these donations to Tara and Rama uh, and to BBS Radio so that we can, we can keep gathering each week this way and we know how important our work is that we do here and that we do in other parts of our lives so this is a good way to make that uh, happen so thank you for your donations we're so grateful so there you go 13 thank yous and honey in the heart I'm passing this beautiful (laughs) talking stick and it's got the violet and the green and the gold all the all the rays for abundance and and all the for the metamorphosis that's happening in this as we go through this portal and it's also got lots of fairies and feathers and all the little people the manahunis and the gnomes and the elves and the divas and just all kinds of uh, magical people who are showing up now they seems to be that the unicorns are coming each time on this stick and lots of dragon energy. So here it comes, Tar and Rama, greetings. Here comes the talking stick. Thank you, Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, everybody. Yes, we are so grateful we got blessings to be able to pay the bills and take care of matters. Well, to be able to pay BBS radio, the bills are coming on Monday. (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you for all of the help so that we can be able to pay our bills all the time. Yes. (laughs) 
Um, and I am hoping that um, the situation with Dish Network is going to uh, resolve. resolve and that they will edit the uh, bill. Yeah, the bill. <laughs> uh, it's a whole week now that they have been down. Yeah. And so, and, you know, he, Ronald was told it was going to be a good 45 minutes to just be able to talk to someone. So <laughs> that didn't happen. But um, we blaze the violet fire, and I'm thinking that it's a good sign because um, uh, Pluto is in Aquarius, and there's nowhere else to go but up. And Mars has entered Cancer today, zero degrees. This is a huge deal as well. And I'm sure we'll hear from uh, uh, Richard, and uh, look at the stars there, and Tanya Gabrielle, and... Kay Pacha. Kay Pacha, right. Oh, my goodness. Um, last night I was, I'm going to finish this because this was a while ago. This was on the 23rd of March. Um, but, um, which, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, well, um, Tanya Gabrielle put this message out on the 21st. So that's, uh. That's the Tuesday that she put it out. But um, I'm going to finish it. But just Pluto purges, transforms, and reverse. Um, and Pluto empowers Aries Mars, uh, which today changes. Uh, <coughs> March goes into zero degrees cancer today. Uh, and, and the air, both Aries and Mars drive us forward. And then Saturn manifests. And in the past, it has manifested a lot of karma. And the end of karma is in the moment now. Saturn is a beautiful planet. There are many cities on the surface of Saturn. And that's a whole nother story to talk about. <laughs> and who lives there? All kinds of beings connected with the Galactic Federation. And 95% of all the galactic beings have human DNA. Yes. So we're getting with the program here. All right, so, um, and March began with Saturn moving into zero degrees Pisces. All these zero degrees, Pluto at zero degrees Aquarius, Mars zero degrees Cancer today, um, Saturn zero degrees Pisces at the beginning of March. There's only one way to go, and that's, like we said, driving us forward, moving forward to manifestation. Instead of karma, choose Dharma. Makes life a lot happier. 
<laughs> so this is an op- absolutely vital time to get clear on how we're creating, what we're creating, what it means to us to feel good and abundant, and what attributes we require to develop in ourselves to make things happen. Who do you need to be to live out the life that you want for yourselves? And as we get better and better at this, death is not on the menu. No, it's not. No, not, 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 not. And uh, so, um, what do we need to get the ball rolling at the at this pivotal zero degrees Aries point equinox and zero degrees Aries new moon and zero degrees Pluto shift and zero degrees Saturn shift and zero degrees Mars shift. One, two, three, four, five zero degrees uh, pivots. Yeah. For a tour of the Dharma. World Dharma is world group service. And the enactment of Masara law is exactly a simulcast with that. This is where the Dalai Lama comes in and what he teaches is compassion and kindness. This is what the galactics, our family, are bringing in as Earth is ascending. And we're in 5D and at the same time, you know, surround Waco with the violet flame. I, that's all I'm going to say about that story. Yeah, right now. Right now. But I just wanted to make it clear that once Nassar is publicly enacted, all debt is forgiven, no more IRS, and a sales tax on new items only. In other words, there's no sales tax on old buildings or old cars, old cars or... No sales tax on food, Old tractors. Or food or things like that, necessities. No sales tax. No. Only on new items only. And so um, a lot of people have something to complain about, about how this has been mismanaged in the past. And, of course, we lead the way as we learn to work and manage our lives for the benefit of our bodies, our minds, our spirits, and bring in divine emotions. Yes, we can. And no more violence. I'm going to repeat what I said yesterday. Mother's segment is 100% not violent. And um, it's really important. I know that Rama's been giggling around and saying, you know, Mother's going to have these dirt balls for dinner. And it's a metaphor about how the karma meets up with the dharma. Uh, Can you say something a little more about that? That as you're going to execute and do actions that are inherently evil, your karma is going to meet up with the energies that it's time to serve the whole of humanity and the planet rather than serving self. And it doesn't work anymore to do that in an angry, violent way. And need I say any more? 
love your neighbor as you would love yourself. That's right. It's got to be a uh, a balance there. All right. So feel it to the core of your being and be and give gratitude for it now. Can you imagine the kind of life you desire? Really imagine it? Feel it. Imagine it and thank Creator for it. Imagine the life you desire and practice that every day. You do not want to hold anything back as you are imagining because the sheer force of your power to create lies in your willingness to feel your imagination. This is where I can describe it in a sense that this realm we're in that is sometimes called Midgard in the ancient Norse stories about the nine realms, Earth, it's a holodeck program like Greg Braden describes, a simulation, and the Matrix has been in place for thousands of years, and it's falling apart now. Imagination is how we create with our thoughts and we can actually overcome the matrix, get out of the matrix and see the real world, and it is a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Your power to create is more than you can ever imagine. So, as you can envision it, you can have it. It is just a matter of getting through the 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 blocks in your mind. Get ready for your life of abundance because it is there for you. And the word is is in big capital letters, both I and S. You You just need to claim it. Go straight into your passion and act it. You need to act as if or as though. It's really important. That is the consciousness shift. Our awakening is a consciousness shift. (laughs) For more on the epic awakening, watch the free webinar, How to Master Your Stars. The truth about taking taking your power back. This master class will inspire you to free yourself from everything that is superficial and reclaim your magnificent destiny. As you have not yet, be sure to watch it. Some of what you'll discover, the secret to spiritual mastery, the true meaning of your rising sign, the important difference between individuality and uniqueness, your your natal sun and moon's profound impact on living an abundant happy life how to instantly connect with Creator and make more secret tools, including revelations uncovered in our case studies that will show you how vital each and every person's star triad is. That's meaning the sun, the rising sign, and and the moon in that sense. Uh, in a sense, um, uh, is for creating a magical life. Apply the star code wisdom right away to experience fulfillment and joy. 
Blessings and love, love, Tanya Gabrielle. T-A-N-I-A-G-A-B-R-I-E-L. Uh, it's, uh, you can email her, um, newsletter at tanyagabrielle.com. Okay. That was on Tuesday. So now I'm going to say this one. This happened today, Tanya Gabrielle. Mars finally leaves Gemini and enters zero degrees Cancer today. So, we have reached the final major change of signs by an important planet. Mars leaves Gemini and enters zero degrees Cancer today. In other years, a change of sign for Mars would not be such a pivotal event. However, due to Mars' retrograde from October 30th, 2022... To January 12, 2023, Mars spent seven months in Gemini, mm-hmm. not the usual six weeks. Mm-hmm. So this is a big moment. Cancer is a water sign, and with Mars' presence, facilitates emotional release. Yeah, you're putting fire and water together. Steam. Great steam. (laughs) Steam coming out of our ears, possibly. Things are getting hot in in the the kitchen. kitchen. (laughs) And healing with greater speed. This hour now, everybody. And no violence, non-zero. Mars is assertive and Filled with forward momentum, motivation, and energy. Cancer is sensitive. Intuitive sign is a sensitive, intuitive sign of creativity, of feeling, of compassion. Merging these two energies requires a delicate balance as Mars passionately forges ahead, sometimes without considering others. While cancer enjoys every sensation and leads uh, from the heart. Cancer will help to tone Mars down to express assertiveness rather than aggression. Your inner sacred warrior is slowing down to smell the roses. Numerologically, the universal date for 3-25-2023 adds up to 17 and seven and one is an eight. Infinity. The immortality number. Mm. Uh-huh. And we're right here right now. We're already in the fifth dimension. And immortality means no more death. Mm. Not of the physical at all. That idea is very, very programmed, mind-controlling program. Uh, allowing a few elites to get away with quote-unquote murder. <laughs> you feel inspiration. Yeah, Don was telling us that they might making meat in laboratories now. Oh, the GMO, like beyond meat in the stores, that stuff is not healthy. And the only way that that meat can be made is by causing to have cancer happen for the people that are going to eat it. So leave that one alone. Franken food. Mm -hmm. So this is a potent star code of fire, mystery, driving, and nurturing. 
Cancer symbolizes the mother and is ruled by the moon. The god, the mother, excuse me, the moon has 13 cycles in a year, mm-hmm. not 12, 13. The same amount of cycles Venus has. Mm-hmm. Venus, the moon, and 13 embody the divine feminine, while Mars symbolizes the sacred masculine. So the merging of Mars and Cancer is a wonderful time to discover. Yes, men from Mars, women from Venus. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So this merging of Mars and Cancer is a wonderful time to discover Mars and Venus. Uh, Venus's tremendous impact on humanity at this time. We take a close look at the divine feminine and the sacred masculine. Symbolized by Venus and Mars. Oh, Rama, see, there's something not written there. Yeah. you got to look every time so that we can see the right thing. Um, anyway, symbolized by Venus and Mars. At this time in history, in the free master class. Oh, okay, she's just talking about that again. We don't have to read that again. All right, so we better, we're going to get started. Rama found this wonderful piece, another kind of master class, two masters coming together. This is called Cosmology Matters with Greg Braden and Nassim Haramin. This is 25 minutes and 15, nine seconds, so 26 minutes. You are watching Module 1 from Forbidden Science, Greg Braden and Nassim Haramin's master class. On Humanity Stream Plus. Be sure to join the webinar. All right. Cosmology is the story of the universe and how it and eventually we got here. It's important because the story we accept regarding our origins has a profound effect on how we live our daily lives. In the first module, Greg and Nassim will examine some of the breakthrough discoveries in cosmology. Physics and biology that could be transforming our entire view of the world and our place in it, yet continue to be suppressed by the scientific establishment. They will also explore our ability to consciously interact with the universal scientific establishment. They will also explore our ability to consciously interact with the universal field that underlies all of the existence and discuss the implications and potential applications for these new discoveries in areas that include energy, space travel, medicine, healing of trauma, environment, and self-regulation of our own biology. Greg and Nassim's free program, Secret Scientific Discoveries. Okay, so let's just do this. Let's get started. Here we go.
welcome to Forbidden Science, the secret of our past, the promise of our future. My name is Greg Braden. I am co-hosting this all-new course with my colleague, my dear, dear friend, Nassim Araman. And we are here today in his laboratory to share with you just a little bit about what this course is and why we've come together. Nassim, would you like to say hello to our, our audience right now? Hi, everybody. It's great to be here with you. It is an honor. Okay, so I'm just going to tell you the secret we just discovered. This is our 30-year anniversary of when we first met. Exactly. As, 91. As friends, 1991. And you know, the first thing when people began hearing that this course is coming together, they asked the question, why Greg and the Sim? How do you two know one another? Do you know one another? So we have a secret history mm-hmm. we want to share with you a little bit, and it will lead into why we do the work we do, why we put this course together. Uh, I was living in a high desert of northern New Mexico, mm-hmm. just outside of Taos, New Mexico, 1991, and I had a phone call from Nassim, and he made the journey to meet me at a cafe. It was called the Bent Street Cafe that's still there. I was coming all the way from Canada, Whistler, Canada, yeah, to and, meet you. And I had just come back from Egypt and had some of the first photographic images of what we now call the flower of life. Correct. And as well, you had done some research on crop circles and all kinds of things that I was unaware of. And you really launched me into looking deeper into those things. Oh, we're still we're still working together. Uh, The flower of life, I think most of you know, is the the mysterious geometric pattern. It was found uh, originally in the Osirian uh, in Abydos, Egypt, about 90 miles outside Luxor on the West Bank of, of the Nile, mm-hmm. became a teaching unto itself. And what we now know is that it actually is a, a geometric template for an information system, a way of thinking about ourselves and our relationship to our bodies, one another, and, and the world. The structure of space itself. Space uh, is not empty. Exactly. And what is, what is in space is not random. Right. And exactly, this, this, and it acts very much like a crystal, which has geometry. And, and precisely, uh, this ancient geometry is a very direct mapping to advanced physics and the way we think of space-time. Well, we had an awesome lunch at the Bent Street Cafe, exactly. and we talked about all the things that we're. I about. think we had a few beers. We may have. Yeah, it was a warm day. <laughs> it, was, it was a very warm day. Yeah. Summer. It was wonderful. What? I was so excited to meet you. Because I kind of left Canada on a limb, you know, because I was at the time a pro skier mm-hmm. and I was at the end of my career. I was going to retire. I had been a skier for almost 25 years. I was at the top ranking, you know, coaches and, and instructor in Canada. And I, I, but I had done, you know, physics on the side all this time and I was so excited about some of the discoveries I was doing about that I was making about space time and then I saw some of your work that you had just published and I think you were working on a book I mean the book was uh, eventually became known as the divine matrix about the field that underlies all existence right 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 and um, and so I decided to sell my ski equipment and move into a van. I didn't know that part. <laughs> right. This, this was a decisive moment for me. I had been uh, in the ski career for a long time, and uh, I had multiple accidents at the end, and I felt like those were signs. Mm. You know, it was time for me to actually commit to physics fully. 
And uh, so I got in the van and I drove to you. And wow. I was, I called you on the way. <laughs> well, I, I'm hearing things now that, uh, you I'm did hear for the first time yeah, in 30 yeah, years. Yeah. I want to thank you for, for following that int- intuition, for following your, your trust. I was so grateful that you would so graciously ag- agree to meet me. And, uh, it was a very significant meeting for me. Well, what you don't know is that it was a significant point in my life as well. I think many of you know uh, I'm a scientist. I'm a degreed earth scientist, uh, geophysics and geology with a background in in life sciences, computer science, math, uh, and physics, and archaeology and astronomy. And, and I say that because that multidisciplinary background has given me the ability to stay current with new discoveries. Some of them are made public and many of them are never shared in the public. And we're going to be talking about a lot of those discoveries. And I'm an autodidact. You know, I'm an autodidact. So I have learned on my own. So I was able to study many, many different fields that I wanted to study without any constraint. So as well, you know, that's why when I looked at your background and I was in Canada, I'm like, okay, I got to talk to this guy, right? Well, this is, so this is what, what brought us together because we both had the sense, uh, we in our society, we're conditioned to think about ourselves, our relationship to the world, and it's taught in our educational system, uh, in, in little boxes that we give names to like geology and chemistry and biology and physics to help people feel comfortable with those topics. But the truth is that there are no boundaries between chemistry and geology and biology and physics. Mm -hmm. Nature doesn't know about these boundaries. And if we're going to bring meaningful solutions to our lives, our relationships, our bodies and our world day, we've got to cross those traditional boundaries. And Nassim was so willing to do that. And because you did not follow the formal path, uh, it freed you in my, in my estimation, it's what freed you and gave you the, the opportunity to to look beyond those traditional boundaries. Same for you. In, in a brilliant yeah. way. So I, mean, just I like, mean, you did the traditional path, but eventually you had the courage to like go and do the exploration. Well, thank you. Know. Thank you. Well, this is what I was going to say. When you met me, I had just left the corporations. Mm-hmm. I had I'd been working as a problem solver, uh, first in the energy crisis of the 70s, and then in the the Cold War crisis uh, of the 80s, which is a very frightening time in, in the history of our world between the superpowers. Uh-huh. And then the information sharing crisis in the 90s. I was the first tech ops manager at Cisco Systems when, when at that time, computers were only learning to communicate with one another. And, and I left all that thinking that I would never travel again. So I found the most isolated, remote, beautiful, pristine, magnificent Beautiful place in the high desert of northern New Mexico and said, I could live the rest of my life here and, uh-huh. and contribute to the world. And you called me <laughs> during the time. That's where I was in my life. Mm-hmm. We both felt, and I think it's, it's fair to say this, we both felt that there is a way of knowing, Nassim, that if we embraced it in our lives, it was beyond just a philosophical concept, that it could truly bring peace to the world. For me, that was important having come from the Cold War era and, and the very frightening nuclear era, mm-hmm. cooperation mm-hmm. end so much of the suffering that we mm-hmm. see uh, across the across world today. The world. And uh, for the ecology of the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Our relationship to nature and to Earth and to the cosmos mm-hmm. that we're going to talk about in, in this mm-hmm. course. Right. So I, I think it is our love for this world. Our love for the truth. 
our love you know? for the truth, to honor, to honor that truth, right. our love for the people of this world that 30 years ago brought us together. And we've certainly been in touch and we've worked together off and on in, in various ways over those 30 years. But it's culminating in what we're about to bring to you. And, you know, science is really about the pursuit of the truth. And it should be it should not be impeded by, you know, bias or you know, pre-assumptions about what you're going to find. You're supposed to do research and go where it leads. And, you know, that's what we were willing to do. There is a, a, a tremendous difference between what you and I are doing now, what we've been taught to do, me formally through academics. What I was taught is that there are accepted theories, such as a standard model in physics mm-hmm. or evolutionary theory and, and Darwin's idea of biology. Mm-hmm. And the new discoveries, scientists, typically corporate scientists, academic scientists, traditional thinking will take the new discoveries and try to force them into the pre-existing theories. Uh-huh. It's kind of like a, a square peg in a round hole. If you if you pound hard enough, the square peg will go in the round hole, but it's never a good fit. Right. There's a huge difference between doing that and exploring the new discoveries like and, a jump in paradigm well and following those discoveries mm-hmm. to the story that they tell right and that's what i was so surprised when i met you because i thought we were going to have a physics discussion or like scientific you know i mean not that what you showed me was not science it's just like i was expecting something much more formal we, we had a burrito and, and, yeah. and informal uh, yeah <laughs> and and a few beers and you started to tell me about ancient symbols because you just came back from Egypt and, you know, symbols that were found in England and crops and stuff. And I I didn't know about the crops uh, symbols. I knew about some of the symbols of the ancient because I had done already some research there. But I was really surprised that you pulled that up Mm. because um, I had actually mapped the structure of space to already that symbolic uh, symbolic um structures you were showing me uh-huh. right right and and it was i was like oh i was unaware that there was already like you know crop circles that were being made with this structure and so on and so it was really kind of like transformative for me because it was like it opened the whole door wow about like a field of um, knowledge that I hadn't studied. And uh, so I started to study crop circles and what they were and how did they get there and all this stuff. So you had the courage to step through that door. Because it's the pursuit of the truth. And if it comes across and you don't know, is it a hoax? It's not a hoax, whatever. Well, you know, you look at the data and the data will tell you, you know, can you account for everything with, two guys drinking, you know, moonshine and stepping in the field that night? Or can you, or there's something else, you know, that's going on that you don't know about. Might be still natural, might be some kind of particular dynamics that's happening in the fields or whatever, wow. you know, or it might be some field interaction in the ionosphere or, you know, like resonance field, you know, for instance, somatic, you know, yeah. like all kinds of, um, resonance field can produce generate, uh, generate geometry. It's all connected. Yeah, it's, it's all connected. Yeah, it's all connected. So, sure. you know, and then you look at the evidence and then eventually it's either something or it's something else, whatever it, it's something, right? But the evidence tells you 
And that's what science is about. It, in uh, ideally. Yes. Today, what we all know, and I know you all know this, that science has been hijacked by corporations, by politics, uh, in some cases by religion. Data is being cherry picked to coerce us into believing uh, certain things about ourselves and our relationship to the world, that we are separate from one another, that we are essentially powerless in our own bodies, that we are vulnerable. Some people believe that carbon-based life is flawed. We're, we're taught that we are the result of lucky physics and random processes that led to lucky biology and random mutations. And all of that leads to a way of thinking. Every day in our lives, we will heal our bodies, choose our relationships, solve the problems in our lives and between nations based upon those ideas. And one of the most fundamental that was, oh, man, it was just so drilled into me when I was young is that we live in a world where the fundamental rule of nature is competition. And it's a dog eat dog world and that we have to struggle, that life is all about the struggle. Mm -hmm. And in mm -hmm. a young, impressionable mind. That creates a mindset for the way that I was taught to think. Now, fortunately for me and for you, mm -hmm. I, I think it's fair to say we both have what I would call a strong soul compass because we are not so easily influenced by peer pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that things are happening and people think differently, but we are not persuaded from our pursuit of of truth. And I think it's fair to say love. It is our, our love for this world and mm -hmm. for the people of this world. Mm -hmm. To know, know who we are. So here's, this is where it gets so interesting. There is, there is something called, uh, the, a pyramid of knowledge. It's an inverted pyramid with the, the point at the bottom. And each layer of that pyramid is one of the, the scientific pursuits. So the, the mathematics is the very bottom. It's, it's the apex at the bottom. And then the next level is physics based upon those mathematics. The next level is chemistry based upon those physics. The next level is the earth sciences, including geology based upon the chemistry, and then we go to the life sciences and then the psychological sciences. Uh, and there are all kinds of subdivisions that can be made, but here's the point. Think about this. When new discoveries change the way we think about any one of those layers, everything that that layer is the foundation for, everything that rests upon that layer must change to reflect those understandings. Uh -huh. That's why we're putting this course together for you, because new discoveries have overturned conventional thinking when it comes to physics. Physics is one of the most fundamental ways of thinking, but those discoveries are not being reflected necessarily in the rest of the sciences. In biology and evolution, new discoveries are being made. So we've got these amazing discoveries at these low levels, mm -hmm. but the higher levels are now using literally uh, uh, false assumptions based upon obsolete science mm -hmm. to solve the problems of the well, world. Well, it's changing slowly, and it's exciting to see it change. Um, you know, but as well uh, to your pyramid, I'd like to add one thing. Sure. You had math at the apex. Uh, I would say it's geometry and math. Absolutely. Um, because uh, math is an expression. It's a language that defines relationship. Uh, absolutely. And, and that's that's um, that's something that is kind of lost in the shuffle in advanced physics in many cases. And this is something that Einstein was very insistent on. And that's why he was able to geometrize space-time and, you know, produce general relativity. And so what we are getting to 
and in these series, and we're discussing it both in our different ways, is that we're showing that there is a fundamental geometry to space, right? And that this geometry of space or this energy in space is the source of all these other levels of the pyramid, right? Like the material world, right? The physics, the physicality that includes the forces, the scales, the relationship between all scales, all relationships, all ratios. Absolutely. Um, and because the universe doesn't do, you know, algebra, the universe does relationship ratios. And when we understand these ratios, then they repeat, right, across the scales. And uh, as they do, they produce the different scales that we have in different fields of expertise. That we've put in boxes. Into the boxes. Yeah. With not knowing the relationship between them. And what we've done now is that we've shown the relationship and the mathematical formalism in my case to show the relationship between these scales and the forces acting at different scales, the relationship between these forces and as well the fundamental constants that emerge from it. And that we have kind of like floating in the air in physics and even in, in chemistry and biology. Um, and now they start to relate to each other because you have the scaling factor. Right? Well, sure. It begins to make sense. And this, this is what we were saying. Nature doesn't know about those boxes. So what we've done in this course, uh, we want to honor you. And what we know is that everyone learns differently. Everyone learns differently. Mm-hmm. And some people need more de- details, some need less. You all have a left brain and you all have a right brain. I remember my my science friends all used to say, it's all about the brain, forget about the heart. My artist musician friends would always <laughs> say, it's, it's all about the heart, forget about the brain. The truth is they work together. They right. cooperate to help us be the best versions of ourselves. So what we've done is we want to honor your left brain as well as your right brain. We're going to give you the building blocks of the new discoveries, the fundamental understandings of biology, of the evolutionary discoveries, the, the DNA that's telling you that you are not the product of a random process from the primitive forms of life that you and I have been led to believe in the physics. So we're honoring both. And when we get to some of the math, and this is, I think, more for, for Nassim because he really wants to share the new discoveries he wants you to understand, and I do as well, not just to hear the words, but he's going to say, look, look at what I found. I want you to understand how this works. For some of you, if it's too technical, hang in there. It's all going to be worth it. It's all going to come together in the end. <laughs> yes. uh, I, I have some more experiential pieces based on intuition uh, and the new neurons in the heart and how we apply those to self Whatever you do, do not panic. No, <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. Or if, if you do, follow, follow these, these techniques because they, they will help you with the panic. It will, yes. So, exactly. Yeah, so I, I think we, we just wanted to say this to you as we launch into this course to give you a sense of who we are, why we've come together, why we think this is important. I personally, I've never seen a course like this, Nassim, and I'm so honored. Nassim is in the process of writing a, a, a pivotal, seminal paper summarizing his discoveries by the time this is released, I think that paper may, may be available. And yeah, I, I feel be. very blessed uh, that you've taken the time away from that to, I, to be with, with our global family here. I'm so glad to be sitting here with you doing this 30 years later. 30 years. You know, that was the bubble I thought 
we both put in the future that like we were going to collaborate at one point and do things together and do science together. And here we are 30 years later, we are doing it. So it's, uh, I think it's an attribute of our, you know, capacity to, uh, you know, grind every day and get it (laughs) out there. And I think we have done an amazing, um, first step, you know, in, uh, you, you look at other things that are being done by other researchers in the field, you sure. know, uh, people that we collaborate with, you know, Bruce Lipton, other, you know, Joe and all these, uh, other amazing people. And the difference as well is that, um, and I think this is occurring as well more and more in the mainstream as well is that it's becoming easier and easier to collaborate mm-hmm. because you're not fighting ego. Right, because everybody's there for the good, re- the right reasons. I think so. There, people are there, you know, like you and I, to find the truth, whatever that is, and you know, and are willing to like go along with if it makes sense, if the formalism is good, if it, it just even philosophical sense, then it has value because all of science, you know, is thought of. <laughs> prior to being an equation on a piece of paper. No, I I think you're right. I think uh, the ego that has limited us in the past, uh, it will collapse under its own weight. The ego cannot sustain uh, the long-term kinds of of trials and tribulations that, you know, we've all been through. That's a whole course unto itself. (laughs) Right. Uh, So my, you know, when somebody asked me why I felt like this was important, and I'm going to make a statement and I, I am not exaggerating. I believe that the understandings that you are about to embark upon this journey to embrace into your life, these are the fundamental understandings that hold the potential to forever free humankind, free our brothers and sisters from the shackles and the bonds of fear and suffering in our world. Because when we understand the deep truth, who we are, our relationship to our own bodies, our relationship to one another, to the earth, to the cosmos, to the future, to the past, to time and space itself. Mm-hmm. When we begin to understand those things, we begin to look at the world very differently. We are changed in the presence. I'm going to make this personal. You are changed in the presence of this knowledge. So people have asked, is this a deeply experiential course? I am offering in my first modules more of the kinds of experiences that you would expect self-regulating your biology. But what I want to say is that the very act of embracing a new way of thinking about yourself is deeply experiential. And from that perspective, this whole course is an experiential course. Yeah. So I It's transforming me every day. Well, me as well. Yeah. I, I couldn't be here if, if it had not. Right. And we're all growing at the same time. And it, that's the, the amazing thing about being able to communicate this information as well is that we all embark on this incredible journey of discovery because there's plenty more to discover. And but certainly it has the potential to really change the way you think about yourself and the way you think about the universe around you and how technology can transform the world around you and your relationship to it uh, in such a way that is transcendent, meaning that, Technology is really an amazing tool if it's applied by an advanced, you know, uh, awareness of unification, uh, then it 
not only becomes benign, but it becomes uh, sustainable and, and regenerative and, and you get to thrive, you know, sure. and, and then the sky is no longer the limit. Well, that's it. You know, the technology is technology. How it's applied is the measure of, of a civilization. Mm-hmm. And when we learn to honor and respect mm-hmm. who we are in our relationship to the world, then we can apply that technology in healthy ways in our lives that honor honor the principles of cooperation, of uh, of of the unity that really brings us together. So I don't know about you. I'm excited for this course. I hope you're excited for this course. Mm-hmm. You have a little bit better understanding of what it is that you're stepping into. And my, my sense is the better we know ourselves, the better equipped we are to embrace whatever life brings to our doorstep. And I think you will agree with me. My world is changing. Your world is changing. And you know, the other day somebody was telling me about self-love. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, you know, why is it so difficult, right? Because um, it seems, um, mm. anyway... For me and for others that I've talked to, that it, it's a challenging thing. Yeah. And um, I realized that uh, that it may be the case because we don't know what we are. So if we don't know how, you know, you have to know what you are if you're going to love you. Absolutely. Right? And so it's an important part of the equation. That comes down to our story. I don't know about you. I'm ready to launch into this course. You ready right, to do a course, Nassim? Let's, let's go, man. All right, brother. Let's do a course together. I'm going to invite you to my first module of the course. Your story is your life. I'm going to share with you the new discoveries about how the way that you think of yourself actually impacts every nanosecond of your life. Change your story. You're going to change your life. To change our story, guess what? We changed the world. That's where we're going. Thank you for joining us for this first module. I look forward to you in my next module. (laughs) Rama, can you grab the speaker? (laughs) All right. Okay, we're going to jump right into the next thing. That was very fun. So we'll be probably engaging with the module as it comes available. Right, Rama? Yeah, I sure hope so. I thought there was going to be something next week. There's something tomorrow Nassim's going to do that I'm going to try to record. Yeah. Yeah, okay, good. Then we can play it next week. All right, here this is called, and I want to thank Carlton for sending it to us. It's called Free Will and Human Creation by Michaela Sheldon and Ethan, Ethan Fox, Channeled Revelations, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, uh, 318, 23, whatever that is. Oh, chapter, I don't know. What's that? 23. Okay. And it's, oh, it's, uh, 318, 23. That's the date. Mm-hmm. And it's on YouTube. Okay. So, and this is it. And so it says here, in this episode, of Channeled Revelations, Michaela Sheldon channels on a variety of topics, including money, sovereignty, and free will. We hear about the history of the Pleiadian civilization and how it relates to Earth today. The guides answer questions about the malevolent beings who rule the Earth at the moment, the Aryan race, and Atlantis. Further discussions included... 
the purpose of the vaccine. Oh, well, we're going to hear about that. We'll see what we'll comment. Mm. Whether illness are, illnesses are transmissible and how karmic themes play out in different geographic reasons. We'll have to listen with 10 ears, everybody. See what they got to say. Ooh. Whoops. <laughs> Ethan and the guides also discuss the journey of a soul creation, of a soul creation versus free will. Whether death is predetermined or can a soul change its path? And are there consequences to making a particular decision over another? Additional topics include how emotions like fear affect collective timelines. You listen to quite a bit of this, right, Rama? I listen to some, and it is good. Okay. Well, we'll all of us keep your ears perked. Uh, so let me just one more moment here. Um, the destructive nature of electromagnetic fields and 5G, future timelines and their relationship to the present moment, the definition of choice, and how collective belief shapes linear age and health conditions. About Michaela Sheldon, Michaela Sheldon is an intuitive channel. Executive Director of the Flower of Life Institute. We just got talked about mm-hmm. by our brothers. And Marketing Director of the Awake and Empowered Expo. During a struggle to overcome chronic pain, Michaela experienced a shift of awakening. Discovering her intuitive gifts. I'm going to listen really careful. I've been living for... Decades with that kind of thing. And launching a journey to better understand her connection to the spirit world. In the course of her healing process, she left behind her role as a marketing consultant and a soccer mom to step fully onto her soul's path as an intuitive channel. Michaela has the ability to channel a variety of multidimensional extraterrestrial and angelic beings to answer questions about her history current challenges, and where we are headed in the future. She joins Ethan each month on Awake and Empowered TV to bring universal channeled messages to the listening audience. Through her transformational experience, Michaela has come to understand that her channeled messages are vibrational in nature, energetically uplifting and healing those who hear them and allowing lightworkers to firmly step onto their soul's path and serve as a human conduit for healing energies. By tuning in each week, listeners will gain inspiration and tools to maintain and raise their vibration, as well as to heal and open their energy field. By directing, connecting with consciousness of multidimensional beings who are here to support our evolution. She has experienced astoundingly accurate results. She often receives visions of significant past life experiences and describe how they are impacting a client's present journey. Um, About Ethan Fox. Ethan Fox is a spiritual teacher who assists lightworkers to uncover and live their life missions through his unique ability to remove karmic density and raise consciousness. As the founder of the Flower of Life Institute, 
He oversees, so they did this together. He oversees the vision and direction of global initiatives, such as the AAE Expo, the Seed of Life School, the AAE Magazine. What is AAE? And AATV. Oh, Awake and Empowered. There you go, AAE. Awake and Empowered. Okay. Uh, TV, for which he is also the host. As a serial entrepreneur, Ethan has focused much of his career on business, finance, branding, and marketing, while also becoming an accomplished astrologer and numerologist of 29 years. Ethan now uses his enterprise expertise, excuse me, to assist light workers to develop their spiritual gifts, build world-class brands, and create opportunities to reach a global audience. And now we're going to get started. This is uh, basically two hours. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Awaken Empower TV. I'm Ethan Fox, and I'm here with Michaela Sheldon today. And we will be doing a different show, a new series that we'll be doing uh, over the long term. And this one's going to be focused on channeling, where I'll be coming up with some questions to ask the, the guides around specific subjects from ancient civilizations and archaeology to spirituality and religion to modern world events, and uh, and to sort of piece together a lot of the mysteries that we uh, don't know uh, from ancient times to even modern times so that we can understand the fabric of the reality in which we live and and bring forth a lot of fascinating knowledge that's been hidden for thousands or tens of thousands of years from from mainstream society so that we can fill in a lot of the gaps in our understanding of these things. So um, now just uh, for the sake of this particular show format, um, I'll be asking questions, Michaela, or the guides will be answering through Michaela, and I will not discuss any of the questions with Michaela beforehand, just so she doesn't have any thoughts or ideas or preconceptions in her mind before going into the channeling. That way, I can be sure that the channeling is uh, more clear and there's no interference uh, at all. So, so she doesn't know any of these questions, and that'll be the case for all these shows that we do in this particular format. So uh, anything you want to say before we start? No, nothing to add. Okay. So I'd like to start by bringing in uh, any gu- any collective that would be suitable for giving a general message to sort of start our conversation and being that this is the first show of this format, uh, anything that they want to say, and then I'll jump into the questions from there. Okay. So any collective or guide <clears throat> who is uh, just to give us a, uh, a beginning message something, a general message to sort of kick off the show and to kick off this particular particular episode. We are the Pleiadians. Uh, as always, we are pleased to offer our understanding of how we envision reality, but also how we see your planet evolving. And, and this is a daily changing event. And this is important to note because complex energies 
they require some integration. So from day to day, things can feel very different uh, for each soul on planet Earth, while at the same time, the entire whole of humanity may be moving forward and backwards into various dimensions. Our most important message that we want to share as of late uh, that we are noticing is a major shift going on at, at the level of human consciousness in terms of the connection to each other. Uh, we speak a lot about unity consciousness and, and it's a difficult term to define uh, because it is not something that is so rigid uh, in, in how it manifests. It is is a fluid energy that through each dimension and, and each civilization uh, changes in, in how uh, it moves creation forward. But here on planet Earth for such a long time, there, there's been a separate nature to each soul, which we believe is important. Uh, you are not here, of course, to experience oneness. Uh, otherwise, you would not be here on this planet in a sentient uh, or in a physical form. You would be in a sentient form uh, beyond this earth. So the, the division of human beings and, and the delicate nature and characteristics of, of each human soul, they, they are very important to the overall vibrational energy and, and how things work. Yet, the idea that you are not separate but one is something that many have been pondering. And in how that works in an environment with free will and, and with choice, because to honor the choice of another is not always the easiest thing right now uh, with so many different ideas about the direction that the planet should go and, and a great deal of influence, we might say, from those who are attempting to move it in a specific direction. Yet, beneath it all, we are noticing somewhat of a letdown in the resistance to souls living out their personal truth. And, and some may believe that this is um, not um, positive in its direction because there are so many deemed unawakened to what is taking place on the planet today and the great transition that you are in the midst of. Yet we think this one subtle change is, is so profound and so important. And this is why when you do not have judgment to how others are directing their lives, you are not losing precious energy or wasting precious time on things that cannot be changed or forced by you. In fact, your life is the greatest contribution to the life of every other. So, so if a great deal of energy is being spent and expelled on, on judgments and evaluations of, of how other people are progressing, we notice there's a stall uh, in that forward movement. So, so there has been a bit of acceleration, we would say, in, in our opinion, um, noticing the, the movement of the planet and the, um, we'll say acceleration of creative energy and how individual humans are finding themselves in new realities or even feeling differently 
about the collective hologram than they do did even months ago. Um, we might say this is more peace or, or contentment that's being ushered in, which is is a positive energy as well. Uh, contentment we know is not looked at in a positive light either. Sometimes when we become content, it is assumed uh, that we are not uh, willing to work hard enough to succeed at something. But that is not at all how we evaluate this state. Uh, contentment to us is a state of being where you are not only neutral with what is uh, taking place in your own life, but you can hold neutrality and, and space for the lives of others, which uh, is pivotal in our minds to the place that humans are in today. I'd like to come back to those concepts of neutrality and, and such uh, toward the end of our conversation today. But I want to spend a little bit of time uh, understanding the historical significance of the time that we're in today, as well as cycles and things that have taken place over the last several years so that we can sort of understand intellectually the context. And then we'll come back to what you just shared. So um, with that, with that regard, the Pleiadians have had similar times in their history, have they not, in their evolution where they were challenged by similar, maybe not exactly the same, but similar types of experiences we're having on planet Earth today? We have had very similar experiences, in fact, almost identical to the ones that you are having today, because the history that you are facing, it is not... Uh, exclusive to the earth. It's a universal or a cosmic history that, that we are all working with. And, uh, and so what, in terms of actual physical experiences, were the Pleiadians in more of a physical form at that time, similar to how we are as human beings on earth today, or were they in more of a higher dimensional state? Not all of us and not always. So for us to answer this question, we, we have to go back quite a ways because the, the origins of the Pleiades, yes, was a very physically focused civilization and, and star system. Not in the same way that, that humans are physically focused today um, because the Pleiades existed in in a in a dimension a bit higher than what earth has been able to hold as of late but there was a physical nature uh definitely to our star system and still is today uh there are many pleiadians who choose to live in a more physically focused and material focused reality but in a in a very high vibrational state so so some of the struggles um in our early days had less to do with some of the the monetary, for example, um, experiences you're having or the inequalities that that you're facing when it comes to resource being equally distributed. In, in fact, we didn't necessarily struggle through those types of things at all because in our material reality, uh, we didn't have so much resistance uh, to seeing others with things that we thought we should have. And, and that, we believe, is the basis for how we've come out of so much of what humans are still uh, in, enmeshed within. Now, this doesn't mean that we haven't faced 
wars, uh, for example, um, even within our own star system and differences in opinion and idea about how the entire star system should operate. There have been periods of time where, where each star cluster has become very different uh, in terms of the beings that resided there and their intentions for how they wanted to live. And there were clashes of intention between these various subsets or groups uh, of Pleiadians. But what we've come to learn along the way is that the clash in itself or the division is what caused all of the disharmony. And again, leaning back into our original opening message, uh, if we were to release the resistance to allow those star clusters or groups of beings to to choose what they wanted and to be what they wanted, as long as no harm was done, we were able to lift beyond this idea of, of, of separation and, and right or wrong in terms of, of choice. And this allows us to, to, to truly thrive because many of the wars that you're facing today, whether it be a literal war on the ground level involving humans and physical harm, or whether it be uh, chemicals, for example, that have been injected into your reality. Uh, these are all things that we have also faced. The, the difference is we dealt with them in, in completely uh, unified and, and more harmonious ways than many of you are able or, or, or dressing, we would say today. Well, if monetary limitation or resource limitation was not a part of your experience when you went through similar challenges in your evolutionary journey as we are today on Earth, um, how was it similar? Because uh, as far as from I, as far as I can tell, the the fundamental uh, basis for the struggles we have on Earth today are monetary. They they start at a financial control structure that orchestrates or makes possible for all these other things to happen. So how can your experience be similar? Well, we agree with what you are saying, that the the monetary situation on planet Earth is, is the foundation for a great deal of trouble. We want to take it up a bit higher to say that that money, uh, money or, or the monetary system is, is a construct of sovereignty. It, it's, a, it's a construct of freedom. And it's a physical construct, of course, that, that has been put in place uh, on this planet. So monetary abundance in Pleiades does not work as such a physical construct and barrier to freedom. In fact, Everyone in our star system and everyone on planet Earth comes somewhat with an inheritance. Uh, this inheritance is not only a, a physical monetary uh, manifestation. It is a, um, a resource vehicle to support what it is you are here to do. And that is tied directly to the collective. So if monetary focus becomes a very physically um, challenging experience, it is always tied to a soul's inability to understand the workings of the universe and how it supersedes anything that exists outside of itself that could put a roadblock in the way to this freedom. So let's give an example uh, of some of the things that we have been challenged by. Uh, 
uh, of course, throughout the greater universe, uh, there have been situations similar to what you face. Uh, we have a great many resources in Pleiades that are revered by other races throughout the universe. And there have been times when these races have gone through cataclysms and have been forced to look elsewhere beyond themselves to receive these resources and certainly come into the Pleiades to, to reap their rewards. But we did not see these physical structures and things outside of ourselves as our only value or the only sustenance that, that we had at our fingertips. In fact, we knew that if we could allow ourselves access to the, the greater universe through breath and find peace in what was taking place in the present moment, that inheritance, that inheritance would come back to us twofold. It is meant to. There is nothing that anyone is able to take away from you that you are not able to also self-generate. So so the difference isn't necessarily in the dynamics of these situations so much as it is the perception of how they were playing out and our personal ability to change them. I'd like to get into some of the historical elements that led us here and speak about specific individuals and such just so we can understand the context and the underlying influences of all of this. And in the last couple of years, few years, a lot more people have become aware of the structures around the world that are orchestrating a lot of these events on our behalf. Um, for example, the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab is an example and we've learned that he had some close ties to Hitler and some German war efforts and so on. Can you explain um, what are the origins? Because I do find that there seems to be a German thread that ties even back to more ancient times. And I'm trying to understand, is this connection having to do with an Aryan race from the time of later part of Atlantis or... What is the connection that this particular collective of people seems to have that common thread? Let's start with the genetic thread, because there's a variety of different angles that we could take to answer this question. It is not, again, something that is, is very linear and definable only uh, through origins. It's a combination of so many different aspects of history and, and souls coming to earth and playing out roles uh, that it's hard for us to define it that succinctly. But you've mentioned an Aryan race and you went back to Atlantis. And we want to start here and say that this isn't exactly the origins of, of what you're seeing play out with some of the world leaders that you're speaking of here. It is, however, an example of how that history has returned and repeats itself in different forms. Mm -hmm. Now, ultimately, we know you understand that on planet Earth, uh, a certain genetic lineage will carry out. And, and we see many of these human beings that you're referring to as, as being somewhat hybrid in nature. And, and, and many of you who tune into these transmissions are, are hybrid yourself. Um, and this is the point of, of truly being uh, a universal being. There is history wound within your DNA. 
And the degree to which you choose to tune into that history is how it manifests through you. So, so we'll, we'll give you an example. Uh, there have been many who've been victim of, of wars and oppression throughout space and time. And, and certainly there are various races, uh, even on planet Earth and within humanity that, that show up as a representative of these oppressed people. But the more that that gene and the components of that history are focused on, the more they come alive and all of a sudden hybridize into a being that's repeating the same patterns and existing in the same hologram. Now, intention has a great deal to do with this because many of the, 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 the people that you are speaking of that we've, we've referred to as hybrid, they have been programmed themselves uh, from the ones who have left the earth and, and put them in the place of, of things that were taking place prior. Uh, in other words, carrying out um, uh, certain plans or agendas that have been in place for decades uh, of time. Now, when we look at an Aryan race, for example, or, or a group of beings who are attempting to become um, the, the uh, hierarchical ones, the ones at the top of the rung, uh, this also manifests in so many different directions. It, it is not just one. In, in fact, we think right now uh, humanity as a whole is, is struggling with this idea of, of success and achievement. It has just taken a very uncharacteristic and, and, and dark turn uh, within a, in a lineage and group of, of souls that we don't believe actually come from Earth. Uh, they have come from other planets. And just like the cataclysm that, that we referred to uh, regarding our own star system, uh, these cataclysms are the true origins of, of these beings coming to Earth and, and all of the things that have happened since they have been here. They are looking at Earth as a very resourceful uh, place to be. They look at human energy as a very uh, valuable resource. And, and so they are implementing things to take advantage of those resources. Now, when, I, when I'm referring to the Aryan race, I'm also paying attention to the cycles um, or the planetary cycles and so on, such as the age of Aries, uh, the age of Pisces, which we're leaving behind. We're moving toward an Aquarian age. And, uh, and so when I'm referring to the Aryan race and you're talking about this cataclysm that occurred and these beings are descendants of an ancient race that left behind certain uh, let's say, for lack of a better word, a mission or something that's now being carried forward. Um, so th did this happen around the age of Aries? Well, yes, we agree with what you're saying. And, and it's evidence as you track the cosmos, because everything that you're seeing in the, in the cosmic translation of these energies ties into a greater massive historic spiral that exists throughout space and time. It's seen in the pattern of your own lives and it's seen in the pattern of every planet and, and race uh, at large. Uh, and this is why these, these ancient sciences were, were taught to begin with because uh, those who understand them have the opportunity to reap the rewards 
of what they are ushering in. And, and this has been done, we think, um, uh, beneath the radar of, of many human minds and, and souls, because unless you understand the energies that are coming, you have no idea how to interact with them in a, in a very purposeful and, and sometimes um, hurtful way uh, to those who do not see what you are able to see. So would you say from your perspective at present in terms of our physical human experience that um, that a lot of the things that took place in the world over the last few years in particular, but but I think when I look at the cycles, uh, it seems to me that there was an acceleration that started happening around 2000 until the last few years um, where we started moving at a rapid pace toward um, – a very centralized um, one-world government, and that was the foundation on which everything became so globally orchestrated through a handful of world leaders. Would that does that timeline make sense? We agree with what you're saying. We're working with a council of light here, but but we want to uh, to lend uh, some additional perspectives because it isn't just the astrological influences that are going to determine how these events play out. Remember, everything that you are experiencing is a holographic container able to be interfaced by and tailored by each one of you. And this includes the progression of consciousness. So so in other words, sometimes we think that bad things happen because they were predestined. There are certain astrological influences that that bring back chaos in history, and and certainly they do. But when a certain level of consciousness has been reached within a race, the ability to examine these things is going to intensify, meaning how they are perceived and 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 how they are um, uh, exhibited in physical form become very stark and, and very um, um, intensified. And this we think is is playing out as well. Um, imagine that that humans have been operating uh, beneath the the cloud of a very thick veil uh, and density, and astrologically speaking, or based upon the timing of history, ascension was meant to happen at a a huge scale. But at the same time, awakening had already been happening, and that veil had lifted and cleared. What you might experience is not only the the, the challenge of what's coming to, to raise you up into a higher dimension, but you will see it so clearly that it will seem far greater than what it may even had uh, been meant to be. Now, now we want to go back to the previous question and, and statement as well about preconceived planning when it comes to astrological events. If uh, a group of, of hybrid beings with malevolent intent sees a collective of humans awakening at a very rapid pace and an astrological, um, we might say, advantage uh, to stop that awakening. They will take that advantage and run with it. And, and this is also a, a contributing factor to the intensity of the last several years. 
Okay, so let me rephrase what you said in a more grounded, practical way that I would understand so that um, I can put it in context. So what you're saying is that astrological influences provide a container with certain kinds of potentials. So, uh, and then inside of those potentials, the consciousness of the individual or the collective determines how, how or what sorts of potentials are manifested. So you could have, for example, uh, Pluto has been in Capricorn, let's say, uh, for the last since 2008. And, um, which some of the potentials there are we move into a world where there's more control and large governments and more dictatorships and things like that. And that uh, is now passing into into Aquarius. So you're saying those that that could be a container of potentials, but then the consciousness um, would influence how we live inside that container. But um, if certain malevolent influences wanted to um, move the Earth's consciousness in a particular direction, they would look for a container like that where those potentials existed in order to exert that influence to redirect the, the collective. Is that? That is, is correct. So, so let's go a bit further. Um, many of you do this in your own personal lives. You are looking for beneficial windows of opportunity to succeed in a certain area, whether it be in a relationship or, or financially. And, and these are times where you may put a little extra effort or, or focus, uh, into those endeavors. And then this is also done on a very grand scale with, with the malevolent ones we are speaking of. Uh, they are orchestrating massive events during these periods of time to suppress a consciousness that they are seeing rise. But consciousness is not the only recipe. Uh, it is one thing to be conscious and to see uh, what is playing out from multiple perspectives and angles. It's another thing to respond to it in a conscious way. So, so what we've noticed about this container, as you put it, over the last several years, is that humans are becoming more conscious and, and more aware of everything that is happening, but perhaps haven't gotten to the point where they're responding to it, either emotionally or physically, in a way that diffuses it. So this somewhat gives um, um, the, the malevolent ones, we'll say, more advantage uh, if it is known that they can emotionally charge a collective, uh, they have more of a hand in maneuvering that collective in a certain direction. From my perspective, in terms of the container conversation we're having here, that container of malevolent influence um, reached its peak over the last few years. And although I see it persisting for a little while, I think the new container, which will be going on into the short to long-term future, is not going to be as conducive to that kind of influence, meaning I think that society will now, it may maintain the same kinds of challenges we've experienced to some degree, but we're now moving in a more positive direction. Does that make sense? We agree with you uh, and want to add a caveat again, because this container you speak of, where perhaps the, the power comes more to the people, isn't guaranteed. 
it is an influence and an opportunity. So humanity must take as much advantage of, of working with the energy in this container as possible to make the most out of it. And what we've seen in the past is that these windows of time and opportunity have come and gone, but the level to which humanity has has uh, arisen has not been the highest possibility. In other words, um, there's still suppression that takes place within the individuals and then within the race as a whole, because those that are working the energy still know that it's less of an opportunity for them. And they may back off a little bit, but, but continue their efforts while humanity backs off as well and feels the ease. You see what we're saying here. Um, feeling the ease of the energy is, is, is wonderful because our human spirit gets to relax and, and we don't have to anymore be tuned into the constant fear or, or control that's taking place in an intensified uh, period like what you were speaking of previously. But if we get too comfortable, in other words, and we let our guard down, we're not making the best use of that period. And this is something that that many of us in, in star system, star, star systems beyond the earth uh, do and teach, actually. Um, it, although it is taught in different ways, um, at a very young age, some of the intergalactic beings in, in our races learn of these patterns and, and when to flow with them and when to work harder and when to relax. And, and, and in doing so, our entire race thrives because, in a sense, it, it unifies us with a singular intention. We, we understand that it's a time for us to push forward, uh, to become creative. Uh, we are always doing this regardless. At the same time, uh, we know that the energy is moving us very efficiently, and these are the periods that we want to put the extra work in to get further in our evolution than what may even be uh, understood as possible. So in the context of all that, what was the purpose of the vaccine that was so prominent in our experience the last few years? Was it purely just for financial gain for a handful of people or control? Or is it in some way, maybe not consciously to those individuals who are human beings who uh, facilitated this, but maybe through a manipulation from um, other dimensional beings who are working through their consciousness? Uh, is it in some way to prevent this um, awakening that's taking place on the planet or advancement of consciousness that the vaccine and somehow inhibits? Again, we can uh, uh, explain this in so many different dimensional levels and perceptions. And we will, we will take the time to, to give our perspective in, in different areas. And at the very top, uh, this is no different than the conversation that we just had about the construct of money. Anything physical outside of you deemed to be your savior from anything else is, is a falsehood. And, and what you are attempting to do is locate that place within yourself where the, the true creator resides. And right now, humanity has gotten to a level 
where they understand creation and, and universal law through higher and multidimensional translations. But to put that into physical action is something completely different. So, so we think that these challenges, if you will, they, they come to the planet to help humans put into place uh, the, the actions necessary to, to follow the ascension that they have gained. But we know also there are a variety of humans involved in these vaccines at varying levels and understandings as well. Some are certainly focused on monetary gain because money is energy and, and energy is power. But genetic manipulation, again, has been a, a theme throughout the cosmos and that continues to spiral in the um, in the history of every race and of every planet. And humans have not faced so much uh, this theme as, as others who are speaking through this channel have. And, and we, we say this not to put ourselves on a pedestal or, or to make you believe that we've gone through, through more uh, difficulty than you have. But we've come to the understanding that the most prized possession that we have at our disposal is our multidimensional genetics. So to put anything in the way that would interrupt that is, is truly not an option uh, in very evolved star systems. But we know that uh, there are groups of beings on planet Earth who are at a genetic disadvantage themselves. Let's speak to a few of these for a moment. Uh, many are familiar with the greys. Uh, many are familiar with the reptilians. We can go forward and backward in time and we could talk about their arrival on planet Earth and, and the reasons for that and, and their intentions behind uh, what, what they're here to do. But at the bottom um, of all of this, beneath it all, uh, the very crux or the core of, of all of these beings, stories, and intentions is ensuring the preservation of their race. So if humans were seated in a multidimensional genetic, meaning multiple beings from multiple star systems came to planet Earth to lend the best of the best of, of their genetic prototype. Humans, although they don't see themselves this way, are a prized possession as well. Because if the reptilians are struggling with a, a, a genetic uh, issue, they are able to siphon from humans what is necessary to strengthen them. But sometimes this comes at the hands of weakness. And what we have noticed is the programming that many believe is important to ensure human slavery uh, is coming in various forms. Now, the vaccine may just be one of, of these manifestations, but it's an important one because um, when it is taken, um, there are, are several uh, different factors to consider, but perhaps a chain of events, if you will. Number one, your genetic profile and, and predisposition is forever changed because something artificial has been put in the way 
of, of the divine blueprint and, and genetic prototype that you were seated within. What that means is you are predestined to experience sometimes the most karmic patterns in an exemplified way when it comes to the lineage of physical health that you're already dealing with. And this is why you are born to be self healers. The body that you have been uh, given that you've been born into, it's intelligent. It has within it, not unlike that inheritance we spoke of earlier, everything that it needs to thrive and to self-sustain. The only problem is it can become very confused. And when it does, it lacks the the ability to regenerate and, and rejuvenate itself. And this is how disease takes hold. Because there are genetic limitations, obviously, that, that all of you are aware um, exist. And these we don't think are much issue. Um, too much is made of, of these predispositions, and especially uh, the diagnosis of them when they rise up within form. Because everything is not uh, only physical in nature, it's an, an energetic program. It is a pattern somewhat like a software program on a computer. The software program is is made to run very efficiently. But if someone injects a virus or a code into the program, it, it begins to go awry and does not work the way it was intended. So, so this is the basis of how we see um, at the ground level all of this playing out. And, and it is truly manifesting differently within each being because each of you is unique. Um, but we want to add one final thought, and, and our goal is never uh, to inject fear uh, into the conversation, although we know that much of what we've said already can, can bring some uh, concern to the surface. The detoxification process of a human body is, is so incredible. Uh, to watch it from afar, uh, energetically even, the, the orchestration of all of the processes coming together to keep the body stable and strong, it, it's amazing. And there is a, a, an agenda to keep the body in a state where it is unable to detoxify. And this alone is why you are seeing the decline uh, so much of the physical body uh, beyond vaccination. Uh, because of the toxins that have been injected into your environment and the body's growing inability to to release them back into the environment or to transmute them. Uh, ultimately, we think this is going to be the, the future focus for clearing the body of these programs and, and bringing it into a stronger position. And my research into viruses and, and various epidemics and pandemics that have occurred throughout our history over the last several hundred years, I've drawn the, drawn the conclusion that all of these were related to, as you said, toxins in the environment and not necessarily a contagion that people were passing from one to another under natural circumstances. Um, in many cases, um, such as the Spanish flu and even what just took place, and all of the various um, epidemics and so on that have occurred over the last 100 years, uh, it's it seems to me 
that the that viruses didn't actually exist. And the concept of a virus being something that's transmittable between human beings. But in fact, there were always toxins, either toxins from drug abuse or toxins from poor sewage or toxins which nowadays are being sprayed uh, in most Western countries, at least. Um, and I, And so my conclusion is that at least our understanding of what it, we're being told is a virus that was transmissible between people the last few years did not actually exist. Um, but it was some sort of toxin in the environment. And in the end, the vaccine itself became that toxin uh, and was what was transmitting what appeared to be a virus. Does that make sense? We agree with you and, and want to add several points because we don't see it only being the vaccine. But but we do want to uh, wholeheartedly agree that any viral uh, component in the body, it is not something that the body is meant to experience. It's the body's way of hyper-detoxification in a state of weakness. So, so a virus is actually supporting the body's movement of energy, but the reason that the body becomes weakened is it's using every bit of its energy and, and, and cellular movement and, 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 and organ uh, propensity to, to rid the body of the toxin. And this is why fevers are experienced or, or various symptoms are had. But the transmissibility of a virus between one human and another is something that we have never seen. The commonality of the experience, however, shows you the environmental contamination that is going on. So, so certainly the vaccine has been a component of that in many respects. But we want to take you back to what we've been speaking of all along here, which is an advantageous container, a period of time when those with malevolent intent can make great progress. What we've seen is a, is a rise in, in unnatural frequencies in the environment that so interface with that vaccine, as well as contaminants in your food and in your water. And this varies in different geographic regions, which is why you have seen so much difference play out in terms of the human beings that reside uh, in these regions and the timing of them falling ill, as well as the various symptoms. Because while there is the um, uh, collusion of of a, a small number of beings at the top, uh, those who are ruling various geographic areas are all making different financial uh, and um, environmental decisions as to how to structure all of this. And this is because every geographic region is not only uh, home to, to different human beings with different belief systems, uh, but also levels of consciousness and karmic predisposition. It is hard to believe that, that, that karma plays into all of this, but you can clearly see, of course, that some souls have chosen geographic regions where the 
orchestration of a, a virus or a vaccine has been far more intense and, and difficult to manage than other areas. So we're saying there are many different components here at play, uh, but ultimately we do agree with the premise of, of what you are saying. And by frequencies, you're referring to things like 5G or smart meters, all of the things that have come out in the last several decades. Especially 5G. This has been, for us, one of the most detrimental injections into your environment uh, above and beyond all other things. And in fact, uh, it interfaces with that genetic programming most definitely. And it's causing a great deal of harm um, in the nervous system. And this, we think, is is not only um, why so many humans are, are falling ill to other diseases right now, uh, but also the reason there's been a, a very tremendous loss of hope uh, because the nervous system is responsible for keeping the emotional and energetic balance of the human structure. So think of these different frequency levels as as changing, number one. Uh, throughout each day, but also continuing to raise and intensify where nervous systems have to keep adjusting themselves. And, and this is not natural uh, for how humans were uh, structured, in other words. But, but certainly there are things other uh, than 5G. Uh, when we speak of unnatural frequencies, we are talking about the the Hertz frequencies that are used that are very undetectable, that are sometimes found in music um, and, and brought into environments like large group scenarios, concerts, for example. Um, we've even seen um, um, airlines and, and airports where a great number of people gather, um, having installed uh, undetectable frequency devices so that messages can be implanted within the human mind and to keep the um, chaos level, if you will, uh, at, a, at a low or the consciousness level even at a low. So, so there are many factors at play here. You mean chaos level at a high or, or you mean, what do you mean by low? Well, when humans awaken, and they begin to see what is happening, there is a tendency to fight back. And so those who are in power do not want the chaos of large groups of humans protesting against things that may um, be detrimental to them. Or we've certainly seen a great number of protests, and those protests have been ramped up to show violence. So, so it does go both ways. Sometimes it's a suppression of emotion to a state almost of, of uh, ill compassion or, or inability to be conscious or aware of what is happening. And other times it's been a causation effect to create that chaos. Let me rephrase some things you said in a, in a different way and uh, see if that, if I'm understanding correctly. You were talking about um, how the transmissibility of an illness or a virus is not something that's possible. Therefore, our understanding of viruses is, is entirely incorrect, at least what's uh, exposed in the mainstream um, medical institutions. So um, if, uh, if that's the case and you're saying that viruses, or at least what we think of as viruses, which is determined by certain tests that have been used in the last several years in particular, um, 
the test results which show a virus is actually showing the body um, uh, responding to or trying to um, repair itself uh, in the presence of toxins in the body. But but so it's not actually a virus that's transmissible, but rather it's detecting the body's response to toxins, whether they be electromagnetic or physical or otherwise. Uh, and and so it's really just a symptom of the healing process. Correct. And this is what we were exactly going to say is that the, the tests themselves and, and the reason they are so uh, unpredictable and and so different in their result is is that they are testing for the symptom as opposed uh, to the virus. And, and that is going to almost always present a, a positive in some direction because right now every human body is detoxifying at a very high rate of speed. So, so testing we think is a, is a very difficult medium to use to actually validate that a virus exists. All it is showing is that the body has uh, detected and and perhaps even um, interfered with something or, or or something has interfered with it that's causing it to have to go into a, a hyper release type of mode. And is this does that have anything to do with exosomes or how does that relate to it? The exosomes are a part of this. In fact, we we see them as uh, one of the most intelligent. Uh, chemical elixirs within the human uh, genome because they are always the first to to race to the area or or the um, uh, focus of the problem, and and their job is to neutralize. So when they come into an area of the body that has been exposed to a toxin, uh, they will call out for many more, and and this is not necessarily a negative. Uh, we think it is a positive. It's 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 truly the body's way uh, of healing. So, so ultimately, when you are um, referring to an exosome, uh, what we see is the multidimensional expression of your human genome uh, working at its most proficient. So viruses are not transmissible. Then there was really no need to fear the consequences of the last couple of years. And... Um, because it's not possible. So, so if we see similar events happening in the next decade or so, whether they be, uh, I know already um, they're forecasting the next pandemic in 2025. Uh, so if we see similar kinds of events, whether they be physical health problems or um, cyber warfare or any number of things that may be orchestrated to take advantage of this time on Earth, uh, to uh, for the handful of people who are doing these things. Is there any need to fear or concern about this and run out and get the remedy that they're suggesting, whether it be a vaccine or whatever it should happen to be in the future, if there's no reason for human beings to concern? Because from my understanding, we're all here to have our own experience. And if we're meant to die of, a, of an illness, for example, uh, it would happen anyway because we chose that beforehand. And if we're meant to live to 80 or 100 years old, it will happen anyway, regardless. So even if theoretically uh, viruses really did exist and they were transmissible, we could stand right in the middle of that 
uh, and not be affected if we as a soul had chosen to live to 100 years old. You've brought a lot of topics here to our attentions, and, and we do want to spend some time to address them all. And, and we'll start with the journey of the soul. There is a predestined plan that each soul comes with and a timing of evaluation when that soul will transition and, and leave its life behind. So, so the very idea that anyone should fear death is, is truly putting something in the way of freedom. And perhaps that is why so much fear is being injected into this timeline to begin with, so that humans realize that that fear is, is merely a roadblock to their happiness. But we have great compassion because we know how fearful it can be to receive so many warnings of, of what is yet to come. And what we've learned in, in our various star systems is that fear can be a very valuable frequency to work with. It is just how you choose to con consciously maneuver through it that, that makes all of the difference. So, so you're asking us, does anything need to be done uh, in order to heal outside of you? And, and to some degree, we must say that some souls are predestined to do certain things, even to choose a vaccine that may not be in their best interest. And here's why. They have volunteered to, through the, the um, contribution of their life and their choices, to leave behind a legacy that inspires others to change. And, and this, we can say, manifests itself in, in many different directions, even the choice to, to die at, at an early age. Um, angels come in who have been uh, ascended masters in, in many different lifetimes on planet Earth and beyond. And, and they want to take the suffering for those who have not experienced it before. And in doing so, they may be deemed unconscious or having made a mistake when in fact uh, they were here to to force forward um, uh, an incredible awakening uh, of consciousness. Yet we know that uh, the fear of what is coming next can actually usher in the things that you do not want to happen. So we have to bring creation into this answer. What you are paying attention to now is going to predetermine what shows up in your hologram tomorrow, but only to the degree that you perceive it in fear. So it is not necessarily um, a concern that we have to think that there could be another pandemic that is being planned by those in power, but to, to see it as it is and continue to live your life beyond it. Because as a self-healer, you have the opportunity to move the planet forward and create whatever you desire in your life as long as it fits within that predestined plan. Do you see what we're saying here? Uh, there's always an interface. And some people are meant to do things and then others are not. But the doing is not what you are here focused on so much. It is the feeling that evokes the doing that you're attempting to slow down in the midst of. Because there's been such rash and, and very um, quick decisions made through fear in the past. And this is how truly uh, humanity has been enslaved. Because the moment that a choice is made out of fear, 
it is going to become the criteria for the next choice that is made. And there's a, a lineage of suppression through all of those choices. You are here right now on the whole, the whole of humanity is here right now to pause before the choice and to feel everything that rises to the surface prior to allowing those feelings to be the impetus for the choice. <laughs> and, and it's not to say that feeling is um, a wrong. We're, we're actually attempting to uh, prove the opposite, that how you feel is, is going to determine the level of trust or intimacy that you have with your own self-authority. But to feel and to observe yourself in the feeling is, is the ultimate form of higher consciousness. To feel fear, but to realize that the fear is not the determining factor in the choice, is where you are all meant to head. So if we were to look back over the last few years and let's say the vast majority of the human race experienced fear from all these circumstances that have taken place. But instead of reacting to that fear by worrying about dying or spreading a contagion, everybody just went about their life and continued to do whatever made them happy then we probably would be in a different circumstance in the planet today and maybe even the various other things that are planned to be orchestrated later throughout this decade would never have been a possibility. Is that what you're saying? That is exactly what we are saying. Uh, outside influence has no bearing on what you are here and meant to do. Outside influence is somewhat like a barometer to how you are able to measure your relationship to self-knowing and truth. And, and this has been, uh, we know for, for a very long time backwards. <laughs> the, the outside influence is becoming the measurement of how well we are doing or, or how we should do certain things, uh, when in fact, we are here to live from within and, and to choose from within and to see what is happening as not something necessarily that we have to interact with deliberately, but it can be the contrast that is showing us a, a, a better path. And we're finding on the other side of this that there are many physical consequences and psychological and others too, from the vaccine and other toxins, obviously 5G, which also came out at about the same time. So all these events took place in the last few years. Um, consequences such as um, heart-related issues and um, infertility and so on. Have we, or a good number of the Earth's population, altered their genetics now? Are we? Are, are there multiple races of human beings that now exist as a result of the genetic manipulation of the vaccine? We wouldn't necessarily say that there are multiple human races with different genetics. What we will say is that some of those who chose the vaccine are now dealing with the, the chaos of an internal program 
that is focusing their body in, in the wrong direction. And, and this cannot be defined in one way. And this is why we have said each unique individual uh, will respond just as uniquely, even though, of course, you are seeing patterns. And, and we'll explain some of those uh, in a moment. But the immune system, the, the human immune system, uh, again, it is miraculous. And, and if it is directed or uh, suppressed, meaning it is focused in one very small area and not the, the holistic viewpoint of, of everything that is necessary to tend to in a human body, um, the genetics will weaken. And, and so certainly what we're seeing is, is a stronger human genetic and one that is becoming weakened by certain decisions. And when we say weakened, um, those uh, people are succumbing to certain ancient lineages and physical diseases that, that truly need not manifest into form. But because the body does not have the ability to, to hold them at bay, uh, are coming in a more exemplified way. Now, something that you've mentioned is the heart. And, and of course, we have to comment on this because it is quite a theme that is, is shown uh, in many who are, are choosing this path. And this is where the true connection between frequency modification that we've discussed and, and this protocol is coming to light because the heart is an electromagnetic organ and, and it's a, it's a vehicle of, of frequency, of working with rhythms and, and patterns of the universe. It is not just the rhythms within a, a physical body itself, but it's how the resonance of the heart is connecting to things outside of it that are very important. So the interruption here has been very profound and we're also seeing it more uh, tending to um, uh, manifest in the, the masculine uh, gender, not because of the structure so much physically, but because the divine masculine has been a bit behind in its spiritual evolution and working with frequency. An open heart, which many of the, the feminine masters who have been diving deeply into these spiritual principles uh, have is a stronger heart. Uh, it's one that can moderate negative frequencies as opposed to be weakened by them. Uh, so this is something we certainly concern about. But, but you've also mentioned um, uh, the fetus and, and the child that may be affected during pregnancy. And we have, as well as many other races throughout space and time dealt with these um, uh, agendas, we'll call them again, uh, of, of depopulation and, and focusing on ensuring that future generations either do not thrive uh, or do not come in, in certain numbers. On planet Earth today, it, it is evident that future generations are more sensitive, they're more crystal, some of them are coming with very profound gifts and abilities. Uh, so the sensitivity of these beings prior to emerging from the womb and being exposed uh, to such a, a toxified um, chemical 
or, or perhaps um, genetic program, uh, it is, is, is affecting their ability to thrive. It is no different than uh, a soul who is an ascended master, let's say, or um, a hybrid child uh, becoming somewhat autistic because they have an inability to detoxify themselves. And they have been so exposed in their life to things that they are extra sensitive to that they are thrown off kilter. So, so there are a variety of patterns that are playing out that are very similar on planet Earth that can be seen in the cosm of these singular events. You mentioned the grays a little while ago. And uh, some years ago, we were discussing the grays and that the, the greys uh, were a future evolution of the human race or the human civilization, one in which they did a lot of genetic modification and as a result were not able to uh, procreate anymore or proliferate their race and, and that they had come back to repair that or to witness the time when it occurred. It seems to me the time that we're in now could potentially be that time. Uh, first of all, is that timeline of the grays that we discussed years ago, is that still relevant? Is that still accurate today? It is still accurate because it is a part of, of history, which is actually the future coming back to experience itself in the present moment. But the grays are, are also uh, evolutionary beings, not unlike humanity. So so to put them in one category and to see them as stagnant and having not changed themselves uh, diminishes the the path that they are on. Um, many would um, uh, qualify or define them uh, as malevolent souls or, or lost souls or, or ones who are here to to siphon from us the genetics that they need in order to sustain themselves. Uh, when in fact, what we're seeing is they, some of them, not all of them, are coming back as as teachers. They're here to help us see the potential of what may happen if we continue down a path of unconsciousness. But just because a future timeline exists does not mean the one that we are on will cross with it. And, and this is important to always realize because there are infinite potentials. There is a vibrational container through which those potentials interface with our own. But essentially, we are always the one choosing which timelines to include in our reality and how to meld them together into one. Okay, so the event that occurred in that timeline. Yes. Is that during this time that we're currently experiencing or is it a totally different timeline that doesn't exist in our future? Yes, we, we see it as a totally different timeline that is very relatable to what is happening today. And, and, and we really want to explain this in a, in a, in a kind of quantum uh, aspect because it is hard, we know, to understand uh, the future uh, of where you stand today thinking, of course, it's a linear path that is inevitable. Um, everything that has happened in the future does not stem from the, the, the timeline that you are on now, nor the moment you stand in today. Uh, it's, it's almost as if you could see the fanning out of so many timelines and possibilities from this one moment that, that millions of future 
timelines have have manifested from that. We see the event with the greys uh, being more of a nuclear event uh, as opposed to one that is exactly what you're experiencing today. However, uh, very aimed at the genetics uh, and disrupting genetic programs. Based on what we've been discussing so far, I'm just going to assemble a few pieces together and come up with a, an idea here and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. So if, um, if we are choosing our life journey before we incarnate, including when we leave the planet, then the people who died in the last few years of whatever they died from, which in many cases people believe that it was a virus, it was transmissible, uh, is it reasonable to say that those people were always going to die then anyway? And if it wasn't from what they believed it was, or let's say the last two years did not happen, or three years didn't happen the way that it actually did, and there was no virus of fear going around, and there was no vaccine, would these people who died still have died because that was just something they chose to do at this point in their linear time? And those of us who continued on, we're always going to continue on. It wouldn't have really mattered whether we took the vaccine or not. What you are saying is, is something we agree with, but, but want to expand on a bit because while souls make choices as to the timing of their incarnation and, and when they will leave the planet, sometimes there are multiple options and periods that those decisions are possible. And, and it is not unusual for a soul to, to schedule these periods of decision coinciding with, again, a very collectively intense period of awakening, meaning choice is often important. Yes, there are predestined moments that your soul will choose to transition. But between here and there, there are so many other factors that must be considered. Let's speak first to the dimension that you have been in, which is, is a very important thing to add to this conversation. Because in the third dimension, there's been a great deal of change here on planet Earth. And, and, and we don't want to take this conversation too far out of context, but, but we do want to remind everyone that, that Earth has been somewhat in, encapsulated or, or sanctioned from the universal grid. Uh, we hate to use that word sanctioned, but, but we know it resonates with some of you. And this isn't because humans were doing something wrong. It was because the replay of, of karma and trauma on planet Earth was, was so astounding that the the potential for that to skew timelines elsewhere became too great. So the third dimension became somewhat this recycle of souls, where the opportunity to transition beyond the Earth, to take um, roles in, in other star systems and on other planets was very limited, not because that choice was taken away, but because evolution within souls has not been happening at the rate of speed that it is expected. So, so armies of souls have been coming back knowing that they want to move the planet along. And in doing so, 
there would be intense periods of time that they may make choices that were purposeful to leave behind the legacy that we've talked about or choose elsewise, elsewhere or otherwise and, and leave behind a different one. So, so it isn't always so cut and dry uh, and set in stone. Yet, we want to explain that the period of time, uh, especially the last two years that you have spoken of, where, where malevolent forces have taken uh, great advantage, was always seen from the astral uh, as, a, as a period of great transition. And those transitions are happening uh, in, in many different levels uh, within humans. Uh, multiple transitions are happening within one incarnation, meaning a soul is changing dramatically between various phases of life through awakening. And, and that's just as important as, as decisions to leave the planet. Uh, so we might say, yes, an army of souls came knowing that this would be a, a predestined period of great transition and, and difficulty and chose to, to leave behind uh, a legacy of their demise to to force forward consciousness so that different choices would be made in the future. And there are some, unknowing that this was a period of review, uh, chose also to interface with something that would cause their demise. Um, both of these scenarios are true. Okay, let's take a step back then, and I want to expand on that concept a little bit, because... So what you're saying now, when I use the term death or lifespan, I'm referring to a linear concept Yes. Uh, that's based on time. So which we as human beings experience on planet Earth. So when we see birth and death, we see it as a linear construct. And if we die at age 50 versus age 90, that's a linear perspective for us. And and so if I were to use that linear construct to explain the concept of a soul's journey, I might say a person chose to die at age 90 and therefore they're going to die at age 90 of whatever the case might be. It doesn't really matter. But what you're saying is that there are potentials that exist. And, and so from that perspective, we're not really dealing with a linear construct, right? We're dealing with a multidimensional construct, meaning... A soul may choose in a multidimensional perspective to have multiple exit points where they may leave their linear timeline uh, in a death, let's say. And those multiple points could be at age 40 and age 80 and age 90 or, or not necessarily in that linear perspective, but in a concept. And... It doesn't really matter which one of those they would choose. Ultimately, it's they're still going to have the same experience, but they can choose. Is that what you mean? Let's explain this a bit differently. Every soul comes with a plan, and that plan is a is a vibrationally curated one. And this is also able to be mapped by the influences of the of the planets and stars. So so we can predetermine when a soul may struggle with something like disease. But it does not mean that that struggle with disease or that, that karmic period cannot be changed in its vibration or dimension. And that is where free will comes in. So when we, were, when we are saying choice, 
uh, disease may be perceived as something that is going to be the death of a soul. And in that perception, a choice is made at a period of time when, when multiple outcomes could have happened, where a soul could have chosen to live and, and as opposed to healing the disease, uh, became even a healer of others having understood its workings. In addition to this, we know there is an ultimate period of transition from Earth. Yet, if we look back at ancient civilizations, those that lived uh, to 500, 600 years old that were practicing Tantra, for example, and, and Kundalini, uh, they were also moderating the vibration and the dimension of that choice. So, so different civilizations and, and different uh, bandwidths of consciousness have options within these greater choices. And they can raise the vibration and dimension enough to, to make them differently than what they have been predisposed to be understood as. So as an individual human being, it's possible then that that individual human being may have many different linear exit points planned as their soul's journey. And based on their consciousness level at particular points in time or choices that they make, they may choose a later exit point or an earlier, earlier exit point. So just like you were saying in ancient times, people lived for hundreds of years. That was an act of choosing on their part to choose a later exit point, but they could just as well have left at a much earlier one. In, in, in some respects, it is a merging of multiple aspects of self that allowed this to happen. So, so we're, we're navigating a whole new topic here and bringing this up, but, but we think it, it, it bears explaining that those who are able to accomplish this uh, rejuvenate themselves and live beyond hundreds of years were doing so not because they they saw themselves as an individual soul. They were bringing in parts of themselves from other dimensions that would help restore themselves, restore and rejuvenate their bodies, but also perceive more choice. <laughs> in other words, because there are parts of you that are ongoing right now all over the universe. So, so this is a harder concept to adopt. We know where you stand today, but, but certainly, uh, it is possible. But, but consider also near death experience. This is evidence that sometimes a soul has a choice and in the process may choose to return. Uh, and in doing so often lives a completely different life than the one prior to the near death experience. It doesn't have to be this extreme, however, but these these predestined periods, uh, they do occur. And every soul is different. Uh, some have none. Uh, they have not factored in any moments of time where they would choose between life and death prior to the final moment that, that they have decided to leave. And, and others may have several periods where they wanted to evolve and upgrade so dramatically that, that these choices are made. Um, it is not um, um, a static decision between all human beings. But one thing then that would be fundamentally true, I think, at least based on my understanding of what you're saying, is that 
those that decision of when that exit point will be in our linear timeline is not left to anyone outside of ourselves. So if there was some sort of fear of a virus that was transmissible and people were concerned that they were going to um, fall ill and, and leave the planet early as a result of this, or even a lot of the um, concerns were not for oneself, but transmitting it to somebody else and thereby causing them to leave the planet early. Um, so based on what you're saying, it, my understanding is that such a decision could not be possible for someone or some body of people outside of ourselves to influence on our behalf. Yes, we, we agree with that statement. There is nothing outside of you that can influence or take away what your soul has already decided it will do. Yet at the same time, you are making physical choices and those physical choices are important such that your soul is having an experience. So, so we don't want to, we don't want to negate the choice so much because we think the choice, it, it has its place in, in how you're experiencing human life and, and, Maybe some would uh, perceive us saying that that choice doesn't truly exist, that all of those choices have already been predetermined. And and we could agree with you on certain levels, but we want to remind you that you are the one who is not only feeling something about the choice, but but perceiving it through a certain consciousness. And that is a contributing factor to to how your soul um lives out it, it's its contracts and it's its decisions um, there's an astral piece and there's also a physical piece and, and those two must uh, have a bearing on each other and, and work in concert but ultimately to to fear death because of something outside of you a uh, a condition for example or, or a circumstance um is something that we believe is a, a huge waste of energy. Uh, in fact, it may take a soul away uh, from the true path of experience that it is meant to be on. Okay, so when you're talking about choice, are you referring to physical choice or are you talking about a way of being as a choice? For example, does it matter that if in the last few years someone chose to physically become vaccinated uh does that was that choice that they made already predetermined that they were going to make that choice at that time or is choice really more a matter of how you walk your life and and your way of being while you walk that life for example you can go through the a period of time on planet earth where there's turbulence and stress and fear but Maybe maybe experience those things or not experience them, but regardless, you're in this heightened state of awareness and consciousness, and maybe you experience it as a joyful time in your life where most people are going through suffering. Is the choice really more to do with your way of being or your way of walking that path, or is it having to do with the physical actions that are taken? We would answer this question differently based on the dimension that each human is in, and, and we will explain why. You are here to have a physical experience, and in order to do that, 
physical choice is paramount because you must feel free to choose in the moment what resonates most with your heart. The caveat is most people are not choosing based on what resonates most with their heart. Some are choosing, as you have mentioned, based on fear. And and when that happens, the question is, is the soul taken off of its path because of that choice? And that's what we want to remind you, that the soul's path is merely a container. There are going to be challenges that will be faced and choices that will be made, some of those so important that they are predestined, and others more open to reflect the truth and the feeling of the soul within. And humans on planet Earth today, to be to truly become multidimensional, are learning how to work with that truth and that feeling as their guide, which has not been the case for a very, very long time on planet Earth. So when you're asking us, for example, uh, about the vaccine, and if choosing it is going to take you on a trajectory other than what you have experienced, we would say not necessarily. Because if you choose the vaccine and and there is some ramification from that, ultimately, whatever that experience was meant to be is going to play out regardless of the choice that you made. In other words, if you're going to struggle in some way with physical health or, or a tampering of your genetics, that is meant to be in your experience for a great purpose. But it doesn't necessarily mean it has to define you, uh, nor does it have to be a choice that is is the the stagnant and um, uh, all uh, encompassing uh, result of what you will uh, experience in life from that moment on. In in other words, nothing is stagnant in your life in your choice other than what has already been predetermined. And how you experience that is the key. And let's talk about soul themes for a moment and, and bring this into the conversation. Um, every soul comes with, with multiple themes that uh, extend themselves through the human condition uh, because souls do not come to suffer but to eliminate it. Uh, and, in the, and they are willing to put themselves in some of the most difficult and uncomfortable situations to change the energy of them. But it is not in the doing, in the experience that changes the energy. It's the beingness in the experience that changes the energy. So, so ultimately it has little to do with the choice, but, but yes, how you are being in the choice and the experience that follows that is so important. All right, so to look at health and uh, aging or um, birth and death, for example, then is it possible for a human being, let's say they come into this, or you said with some individuals, that's not available because, and so they have a definite time when they were choosing to leave the planet. But many may have multiple linear points where they may leave the planet. And, um, and, and so there, is it their physical choices? Let's say, for example, if someone were to make healthy choices or to 
um, to not detoxify their body so much? Uh, would it be choices like that that would determine to what extent or to at what what exit or which exit point they would leave the planet, or would it be more consciousness based choice? Well, for example, there are many who are making very uh, positive choices for their physical bodies out of fear. And in that underlying fear is going to have an effect on the vibration of the choice, you see. So that's why we're always going back to how you are being in the decisions you are making, because Fear is is a, a vibration of stress, and you, as a human soul, could be making the very best choices in terms of of physical nourishment, but the body is still not responding to those choices because there is an underlying vibration. So, so we're attempting to say that perhaps as souls move through higher dimensions and have more access to consciousness they are more able to interface with and affect their soul's divine plan, raising it up into a higher dimension right along with them. Emotions are things that we came here to experience as human beings, right? Including fear. And so let's say that a particular individual is feeling fear over something, whether it be world circumstances or their own lives. And in spite of that fear, they choose to move towards something that brings them more joy or optimism or uh, excitement in life. Um, even though they feel the fear and they acknowledge the fear existing, but instead move towards something that makes them happy is that a better approach or is, is that the approach that you would suggest? Joy, optimism, and excitement, uh, these cultivate life force and creativity. And, and so we do suggest always moving in that direction, even if there is underlying fear, because what you are doing is you're expanding your, your availability uh, of energy both within choice itself, but but within the span of the life that you've chosen, uh, the destinations that your soul may arrive at. And, and so let's give you an example here. Uh, let's say the world is in chaos and there is great fear about what is happening on, on the planet at large. But as a human being, you recognize that and you are compassionate to it and, and you acknowledge uh, the propensity for that that fear to intersect with your life, but but you choose to do something other than address the fear. In doing this, you're neutralizing the fear vibration itself. And because of that, your soul will soar into greater heights. Whatever your, your predestined birth plan involves, uh, there are always good things that are able to be capitalized on and taken advantage of at every single stage of life, even if it is moving into a, a time of transition. Uh, even in our final moments on planet Earth, we can choose to allow fear to envelop us or, or we can be in a state of joy. And often the, the very defining factor in this comes 
when we begin to merge with the astral. It's not that it doesn't affect our lives on planet Earth. Certainly, if we've lived more in a state of joy and excitement and, and curiosity of, of what could be possible, uh, we are going to be more satisfied and fulfilled and, and content in our lives. But when we merge and we, we look back on, on everything that we have chosen, seeing that we were willing to take the risk to feel something better than what was available outside of us, we're always going to soar into greater heights. This is how master teachers are born. Uh, many believe that that it's the training that was had in, in ancient civilizations and in mystery schools that allows ascended masters and angels and multidimensional guides to be recognized for the wisdom that they have. But this wisdom comes at a moment's notice when we see our soul's ability to rise above discord. And that is truly what ascension and, and evolution is all about. I foresee a lot a lot more challenges in this decade in particular on the planet uh, from a lot of things that just happened the last few years, but also financial and other other kinds of circumstances as well. And uh, do you concur with that? Is that... What, is that a potential that's currently in our timeline? The souls who have embodied in this timeline were anticipating tremendous growth and evolution. So in order for that to happen, have come at a time when things were seeded to allow that to take place. Now, we don't necessarily believe that everything has to play out the way that it is shown in the stars. Financial difficulties can be translated through many different personal circumstances. It can be the way a soul values its personal worth. It can be the way that humanity, uh, as, as an entire race and civilization, values its worth. Yet we do know that money is a physical construct of that worth. So it is it's inevitable that the way you have perceived and worked with money is, is apt to upgrade because we are seeing so much change internally within souls, uh, individual souls across the board who are raising in consciousness are, are choosing better for themselves in all areas. The, they are choosing, as you've mentioned, um, cleaner diets. Uh, they are choosing to meditate on a regular basis. Uh, there are so many different avenues and paths of freedom that we see being taken. And because of this, what has held you back before or what has been hidden in the dark must come to light. And certainly your monetary system is, is entangled in a great deal of malevolent focus. And that can't come with you on the trajectory that, that so many of you are already on. So, so while we see perhaps it's inevitable you may struggle with something, it is all in how that struggle is perceived. Is it something that's changing to up and, and catch speed to your ascending consciousness? Or is, is it something that is meant to hold you back and that you're meant to suffer through this, this very choice of perspective is what helps it to manifest? in the way that it comes about. 
So if, if you are somebody who does go through difficulties in, the, in this decade, uh, and whether it be any of those circumstances or others, what you're saying, so is, is the best way to navigate or to walk that path is to feel the fear uh, if you have, if it happens to come up about those circumstances, but then still move toward things that, that will lead to optimism or joy or excitement. We agree that, that what you are saying, it, it is a good path to take because to negate the fear is, is to, to negate a valuable opportunity to actually become stronger and, and more courageous and ascend. Uh, and we know humans across the globe already are in very vulnerable states in regards to their financial position. So, so we do want to make a few recommendations. Your personal sovereignty and, and your earning capability, the, the prosperity that, that is your birthright, is yours to self-generate. There is no one in the world beyond the self that is here to offer to you this inheritance we have been speaking of. Yet, the inheritance, it is going to naturally come through you as a creative offering and back to you through the hands of others. This, this co-cooperation and, and orchestration between humans is, is the orchestration of God and, and universe. And so it is going to take a, a way of seeing yourself in the world that is different than what many are used to. Uh, instead of waiting for things to, to arrive that are going to be helpful and, and perhaps save a soul uh, from what it is experiencing, there is a, a certain level of self-autonomy uh, that we believe is, is meant to come to the surface and, and, and resilience. So so if you are going to feel the fear, let that fear be the motivating factor in, in finding your strength and courage and, and knowing uh, that you are able to self-generate whatever is needed by expressing yourself in the world authentically. And that is the key. Uh, you're moving into a period of, of authenticity and, and, and unity and service. And what that means is that that very specific piece of the puzzle that we have spoken about, that, that all are breathing life into, uh, comes to life through you at a time when you may have doubted it was possible. To go back to an earlier topic, we were talking about how the ancients, some of them lived to hundreds of years. Now, in, in current uh, times on Earth, the average lifespan isn't anywhere near that. Um, at best, people live from 80 to 100 years, uh, only a few that are documented anyway that live beyond that, although there are some stories of people who have lived hundreds of years in current times. Um, but it isn't something that's prevalent. So is, is it even possible for human beings in our current state of consciousness to reach for that length of time or to even have those potentials in our uh, options uh, do any well I shouldn't say any obviously there are probably some humans who have those options but but is that possible for somebody listening to this show today to take certain steps to extend or to choose a much later um, potential timeline or in their timeline 
that may exceed what the average human being lives to today or what we believe is possible. Well, we want to clarify first that it is an option for every single soul. Remember, this isn't an extension necessarily uh, of linear years. Think of it as a moving up into a higher plane and dimension uh, where, where the consciousness that you have attained is expanding your lifespan by bringing in the aspects of self from, from multiple dimensions. It, it's somewhat like becoming a different person. So, so if we uh, go back to, to the resurrection, for example, which is spoken of in, in, in biblical accounts, uh, this resurrection was possible because Jesus did not see himself as one man. He saw himself as, as many masters. And in that belief was able to extend his body beyond the circumstances and events that are spoken of in that account. But you've asked if it's possible in this timeline. And, and, and we want to speak to um, the most detrimental thing that is holding you back. And it is belief. You have been programmed to believe that age is only able to be extended to a certain number. There's an expectation of when death is going to come. And and those in ancient civilizations that practiced ancient rites and rituals to, to extend themselves beyond had no limiting belief of its possibility. So, so we must start there. This is not only a, a generational uh, pattern uh, and belief, but it's further uh, reinforced through media uh, and through television programming uh, and everything that, that you are paying attention to, many of you, on a daily basis. So, so to, to first eradicate that belief is extremely important. But we also have to speak to the cells because in ancient times, uh, the cells within human bodies are, were very different than they are today. In fact, the upkeep of the cells uh, through, again, meditation and tantric practice was of utmost importance. The cells generate light, and that light is life force. And if the energy of the cell either dies or is depleted, it is not going to support the physical body in rejuvenating to the state it is capable. So, so in physical, there is a component of this that is just as important as any spiritual practice or, or belief. And that is that the body must uh, uh, restore its cellular energy and perhaps even increase that energy to a certain degree uh, in order to go back in time and, 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 appear as the youthful um, um, being that it was before. And, and, and what we see coming in your future is a very specific focus on the cells. We think the cells have been ignored for a very long time. And, and in medical institutions, uh, there's been a, a propensity to diagnose uh, certain organs as failing, for example, or, or processes in the body as failing or, or cancers developing, which are, are a, a conglomeration of, of negative cells. When the power of each individual cell can override all, all and any of this. So ultimately what we're seeing is, is cellular energy has been so depleted 
that it is very difficult in this timeline for humans to regenerate, but we would say focus there. Beyond the belief, focus there. Because the, the miraculous light and energy that comes from the center of each cell is so restorative in nature that it will go beyond healing disease. Uh, it will carry you into more and more useful states. We're almost done for today, and I want to sort of end on a particular conversation. Um, with is, is it even necessary, if we know that we're living in a particular physical reality at the moment where there are certain events taking place globally that are influencing or affecting our society or even our personal lives, would it be better for us to just ignore that those things are happening and go about our lives and do whatever, focus our minds on more positive things uh, and not know, uh, not pay attention to those things? Or is it necessary for our human experience to be aware of and pay attention to those things, but maintain a higher vibration or a higher state of being, meanwhile taking physical action to compensate for those things that are taking place. As a, as a very simple, basic example, let's say I know that there are um, toxins in, in the food um, that, uh, that, I'm, that I'm eating. And, and I, I know that, but, uh, but I decide just to be happy and to not take any physical steps to remove those toxins or detoxify those toxins. And, does it matter? Am I better off just ignoring it and being happy? Or is it necessary for me to to pay attention to the, these uh, physical circumstances that exist and to take actual steps in a physical sense in addition to my state of being, being optimistic? Well, it's logical to believe that if you are paying attention to the things that are going wrong, you will amplify those things in your world. And, and while this is true to a certain degree, you also must consider that as a physical human being, you would not experience anything in your reality if it were not for great purpose. So as consciousness expands, naturally, you are going to become aware of the various polarities of light and dark and, and all spectrums in between. And, and that, we believe, is, is most important. So condemning or ignoring anything is not helpful, we believe, in a soul's evolutionary path. Because anything that is not attended to in some way is going to follow a soul into its next incarnation. Not because it's done something wrong, but because if that energy was present, it was begging your attention for a specific reason. It is how that attention is placed. That is so important. And this is why we believe consciousness is the, is the answer to your question. If you are consciously able to attune your attention to anything, regardless of whether it is light or dark, you will perceive it in multiple lights and it will have deep meaning to you that will culminate in some expression creatively. A decision, uh, an offering of service, uh, an act of grace. These things are the reason that you came to, to planet Earth to begin with. So we hesitate to say that you should ignore anything. But if you are not consciously able to manage the way 
that you perceive it, meaning it's causing such fear uh, or anger or sorrow that it is affecting your vibration. Perhaps for a period of time, it's best to close the door on things that, that are holding you back from allowing your soul to, to, to accelerate. Vibration is important and we have to consider vibration and, and a very easy, uh, simplistic way to distill this is, is how you are feeling. You want to be feeling more joy than sorrow. You want to be feeling more excitement than, than sadness uh, or fear. But you certainly want to be aware of what's causing the fear and sadness so that you can replace it with things that are better. And, and we could say that every soul's contract involves this to some degree. Uh, you are here not to leave the darkness behind, but but to bring it with you in a new form. Darkness itself is not bad. In our civilizations and in, in our star systems, uh, we revere contrast. But our contrast is not harming other individuals as it is here. It, it's not detrimental to, to our physical or, or emotional being. It's a simple choice. And that's where you're moving the earth. But back to its 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 origins, where where contrast abounds, but that contrast may simply be a, a preference, something that you desire and or do not, and and others choose that you wouldn't. Uh, this is where we believe the most important message can be found: opening yourself up to everything, regardless of what it is 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 how your soul becomes a conduit for changing it for the better. If I'm, let's say, a member of an indigenous tribe that's living in the middle of nowhere on planet Earth currently, and, and I perceive that there are many different versions of reality on Earth today, and let's say that tribe is uh, not at all interacting with the rest of the um, population of the planet. So for them, everything that took place the last few years, they may not even know what 5G is uh, or uh, vaccines or viruses. They're living in their own little bubble of reality that's completely separate from ours. So from so what you're saying is from from that standpoint, they really are not drawn to know about any of these things. And so for them, it's perfectly fine to go about their lives and not be aware and pursue whatever they choose to pursue or whatever is drawing their attention. But for those of us who are living in uh, westernized society, let's say, who uh, are aware of what's taking place um, and are aware of the, what we started this conversation with, these global institutions that are starting to take over the population in, in some respects. Um, so you're saying that to, to know that that exists and, and to ignore it would not be the best approach, but rather to, if we're being um, made aware of it, then it is something that we should take a look at, but then choose in our lives to live in a certain way as a result of that knowledge. Yes. It is not that native civilizations do not see what you see. Uh, they simply perceive it in ways more applicable to the lifestyle that they have chosen. For example, you see 5G, 
as a malevolent force on planet Earth. And, and native civilizations know of dark forces and they are always protecting against them. It is just that perhaps they don't need to know the specifics that, that you are now exposed to. So, so every soul that is exposed to anything has an ingrained purpose in that exposure. But ultimately, it's how that exposure is perceived as, as something negative or as fuel to, to put on the fire of, of a soul and, and move it along on its journey to create something better. And, and native civilizations may be doing this in their own way as, as they are facing uh, their own challenges that are a bit different than the ones that you face today. It, it truly goes back to the example we gave about geographic regions and how while everyone on the planet is dealing with the, the similar themes that are playing out, some of them have chosen uh, to live in, in certain cultures uh, or races or, or, or regions where that struggle is more intensified or, or less intensified or a bit different. Uh, but, it, but ultimately, it's all a contributing force to the entire Earth. And, and moving her forward into a higher dimension. So essentially all the human race in the last few years experienced some sort of difficult period. It's just our interpretation of it varied depending on the society in which we lived and our constructs of what our reality is. Or some were aware but did not face difficulty at all. You see, in, 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 in different bandwidths of consciousness... Darkness might exist in the same amount as it does in others. But the people who are there choose to not let it disturb them and, and use it as the force within that strengthens their relationship to the entire world. And what can the average person uh, do to achieve such a state that they can walk their path without being afflicted by these occurrences? Well, as in many ancient civilizations throughout history, knowing thyself has been the cornerstone of ascension. And we bring this to your attention because we believe that those who do not know themselves or have been told uh, who they are, are the ones most vulnerable to walking a path of suffering. When you know yourself, the inherent courage within that self must emerge. And, and there is nothing that becomes difficult in the outer world to choose or not choose because in each moment you are simply aligning with that self-knowing. So going back to the, the, the inner sanctum that many of the mystery schools were so focused on, understanding the self at an intrinsic level getting rid of the noise that, that, that hides that truth is, is one of the most pivotal and important steps today. Uh, we see uh, humans being exposed to, to way too much information. And there is a huge difference between infinite possibility and consumption of information because much of this is a program meant to carry you even further away <laughs> from from the uh, innate essence of your soul. You see, in ancient civilizations and in, in, in ancient tribes, the children were brought 
into the daily tasks uh, of the day of the tribe, uh, whether it was hunting or fishing or cooking or building. It was not yet known uh, what they would most enjoy or where their talents were best served, but they would observe very closely where these children best fit and revered the contribution that they were able to make in these areas. It wasn't just the elders that were leaving behind traditions, but the wisdom keepers known as the youth coming in to, to supply the new ideas and, and changing those avenues that were so important. And, and this has been lost um, from the very beginning uh, of a child's journey on planet earth, uh, they are being directed away from themselves. So the return to self, uh, we believe is the antidote truly for all of it. Well, thank you very much for the conversation today and um, for answering all of my questions. And um, thank you, Michaela. <laughs> thank you. And thank you all for joining us today for this show. And we'll be seeing a lot more of this in the future on different other interesting topics as well. So uh, stay tuned for that, and we'll see you next time. All right, everybody, that was a that was a lot. Mm-hmm. That was a good one, Rama. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a little break. It is the bewitching six thirty three Mountain Time <laughs> this evening, and so we'll take this little break. We'll see you in about five or ten. Namaste. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Now, pass the talking stick to you, Richard. Okay, <clears throat> hello and good evening. Good evening, Richard. So, another Saturday night with an astrology chart in front of my eyeballs here. <laughs> did you have fun? Did you have fun this week with Moon conjunct Uranus? Yeah. Oh my! That was, that was that was yesterday, and a little bit the day before. The Moon is just in the last hour moved into Gemini. The Moon is in the, in the, in one Gemini, and that trines Pluto in. One Aquarius. Mm. So that's that's an interesting uh, configuration there. Now, Mars is in one Cancer. I think I got my Mars in Cancer. Yeah, well, I could look that up later. Um with Mars in one cancer, that makes it in conjunct that Pluto, and it makes it trine Saturn. So Mar- we got Mars trine Saturn, along with squaring Neptune and the sun. The sun is the sixth, sixth degree. So you got sun conjunct Neptune, and that's about over with. And that's also square to Mars. So Mars got got four connections: Pluto, Saturn, and Neptune, and the Sun. Meanwhile, 
We talked about this last week. All right. This week, Jupiter uh, conjunct Chiron. It's at, uh, it's still close. It's at 18, and Chiron's at 16, and Mercury is at 16. Is that right? Mercury's at 14. All right. The sun's at 6. Jupiter is at 18. Boy, Jupiter's moving fast mm-hmm. in combination to the Earth. You know, we're on a, we're on the shorter circuit, being inside. So we're Earth is always moving relatively faster than Jupiter. And then good old Chiron down there at 16 Aries. So uh, the North Node has moved back to 6 degrees, and Uranus is at 17, and have you all forgotten that there are no planets retrograde? Right. So that's that's keeping things uh, rolling. Yes, In the world of 10,000 things. <laughs> And then good old lovely Venus has just come across the North Node this week. Mm -hmm. And it's at 11 degrees of Taurus. Ooh, it's going to be opposite my sun tomorrow. Let's see now how fast. Venus is moving a degree and 11 minutes in a day. Mercury is moving it. Two degrees a day. Wow. So they're still moving pretty fast. You know, Mercury now being Mercury now being ahead of the sun. So they together they're gonna they're gonna catch up to Venus. So that's that's your layout for now. All right, let's go see what Kaipacha is thinking about. He was he was. Uh, was he a little depressed last week? I seem to remember him talking about a lot of the negative uh, stuff going on in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's certainly a lot of it. All right. I'm going to mute out here. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Sky Potcher with the weekly Pele report for March 22nd of 2023. I'm up here on the Yuba River, and with the record uh, snowfall and rainfall, uh, I just had to check it out. I mean, there's usually a beach down there. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all underwater. You may be feeling underwater, too. Saturn in Pisces now. Well, that's going to be nothing because Mars is going into Cancer on Saturday, right? So we're going to have a lot of water. That's what the 
That's what the mantra's about today. Feeling the feelings of the water, baby. Oh my God, what else? The water bearer, Aquarius. The water bearer is welcoming Pluto. Pluto enters Aquarius tomorrow. Big changes, right? Pluto, Saturn, and Mars all changing signs. You know, within a couple of weeks, that's what I'm really going to be talking about today. And all of that, along with the sun changing signs, new moon in Aries yesterday. So she's moving through Aries. You know, she's going to join together today, right now, with Jupiter and Chiron. And then she's going to move on into Taurus by Thursday, tomorrow. And then she's going to bump into Venus, the North Node, and Uranus, right? All on, you know, Friday, going into Saturday, she'll go into Gemini. So, big stuff happening. Mercury also moving along through Aries is going to be coming into this conjunction with Chiron on Sunday. Mercury, Chiron, and Aries. Mercury, Jupiter in Aries on Monday. You know, Jupiter and Chiron still traveling together for a, a while here. And then the moon uh, on, on Tuesday moves into Cancer. Yeah. So uh, what I'm going to do is I am going to try uh, and get over to the other side of this bridge so that I can see what it's like upstream and uh, talk at you, tell you about what all that implies for me, you, and Homo sapiens. Oh my God, the search for the perfect background. <laughs> I've been climbing all over this freaking place. I was down on those rocks. I was down on those rocks. Uh, and... It was just too loud. The rapids were overwhelming. So I had to jump up here and include a, a man-made structure in the Pele report. Oh, my God. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> Not man-made. We want natural, natural here. <laughs> It brings me to the uh, Sabian symbol I wanted to read today for the first quarter square moon. And I know that uh, this first quarter square moon is not until next Tuesday. And, you know, Mars doesn't go, you know, into Cancer until uh, Friday, Saturday. So this is, you know, we're looking ahead. Okay, right now Mars is still in air. It's still in Gemini. Okay, you know, Pluto is moving into Aquarius tomorrow, but, you know, the moon is moving through. She's going to be a tiny little crescent in the night sky. You'll be able to see her getting, she's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The seed of that new moon is starting to send out little roots, break open, but hasn't really seen the light of day yet. We're still kind of... And what I want to be talking about today and what the mantra is about today is the underworld of feeling, water, and emotion. And uh, if this is big time, I consider Chiron 
uh, a bit of a water planet. It's a mix of earth and water. Um, it's, it has to do uh, so much with the soul. It's the co-ruler of the underworld. It is, you know, conjunct Jupiter. And, you know, that, that's, that's very powerful, you know, and Mercury is going to be there. We got a Mercury Chiron Jupiter conjunction. Thinking about the deepest, deep, or having our deepest soul experiences well up within us to maybe overwhelm our thoughts and our thinking. And I want to talk more about that. But first, I think I want to, you know, just start off with the, the this Sabian symbol because it, it sets the tone for what I feel is the best way to move through these times. And what I mean by these times is that these are times of great change, which signify great uncertainty. The future is uncertain. We are on a tipping point. We are on a precipice. Uh, it is even like the water bearer, you know, is pouring out this water. It's like going off a waterfall. It's like cliff diving. It's just like we are, you know, like the fool walking off the edge, you know, of the cliff. We are in this period of change. I mean, it's very amazing to have Pluto. It's been in Capricorn since 2008. Okay, we get used to having Pluto in Capricorn. Saturn has been in Aquarius since December of 2020. We get used to having Saturn in Aquarius, right? Mars has been in Gemini since last summer, or if you're down under, we should say last July, yeah? So we get used to things. They become known, they become familiar, we start relying on them, depending on them, expecting them, taking them for granted, just kind of like, okay, this is life, and then there's change, there's evolution, there's a shift, and this is where we are right now. And Mars is a fast shift, but to have Mars, Saturn, and Pluto all shifting within three weeks, is enough to jolt anyone out of their bubble, out of their comfort zone, out of the known and familiar. These are what they call the three bad boys. Mars, Saturn, and Pluto. They're the bad boys. <laughs> Whoosh! And then the moon comes around, right? You know, and the moon hits Mars. I mean, it goes into Cancer, right? On uh, Tuesday. So it's going to be a Moon-Mars conjunction right at that first degree of Cancer. And uh, and then she's going to move on to the eighth degree of Cancer to square the Sun at the eighth degree of Aries. And I, I, I just find this such a beautiful, uh, inspiring Sabian symbol that it's the one I chose for this week. Uh, it's the eighth degree, so it's the it's the ninth degree because it's at eight degrees oh five minutes or something. So the ninth degree of Cancer, uh, the Sabian symbol is a small naked girl bends over a pond trying to catch a fish. 
the keynote is the first naive quest for knowledge and for an ever-elusive understanding of life. The small naked girl symbolizes the innocent and spontaneous mind as yet unclothed in cultural patterns and unrestrained by don'ts, trying to satisfy its curiosity about what seems mysterious and fleeting. In a sense, the pond is the infant's mind with a very limited scope of consciousness, yet eagerly reaching out to catch the swift and elusive first realizations of the meaning of life. So whenever a person is confronted with this symbol, he or she should realize that there is much value indeed in simply reaching out with a pure and unconditional mind to the most elementary experiences which natural life offers to us. The key word is purity in understanding. This is much like the much touted beginner's mind, really approaching life moment to moment, day by day, feeling by feeling, experience by experience, with a keen curiosity. A key word for Gemini, where Mars has been for some time. And this curiosity in Gemini, in air sign, is mental, and it is the mind. And it's curious, and study, and travel, and books, and school, and blah, 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 blah. And that's kind of been pretty, you know, Mars is a lot of mental energy going on for quite some time. Now it's diving into water. It's going to be there for over a month, okay, or around a month. And, yeah, this is going to be not mind, but feeling, stirred up feelings, heated up feelings, fearful needs for emotional security, for nurturing, for safety, where that innocent mind, that naked little girl can relax without being afraid, you know, of a bear or a tiger or, you know, uh, something lurking in the bushes. You know, this cancer, this lunar moon energy, you know, is very much about the need for safety. So there is a natural emotional fear. It's our inner child. And we fear being vulnerable. And yet, to really experience the fullness of life, we must be vulnerable. In order to love, we must open our hearts 
in order to really communicate and really connect, we must open, you know, our minds and let people in, let the other in. It's like we let life in, the mystery of life. We let it affect us. You know, if you've got a shield and a, and a breastplate and a helmet and a sword and, you know, you're crouched down and you're hidden and you're, you're behind your crab shell and you're safe and you're protected, but how much are you learning? How much are you growing? How much are you absorbing? How much are you evolving? You know, so... It's only as we leave ourselves vulnerable and open that we can be, we can be affected. You know, what people say or, you know, what people do, it can, it can hurt us. We, we allow ourselves, you know, this, this, this place of being able to feel pain. The wound, the sorrow, the grief, the depression. You know, Saturn and Neptune, you know, ruled Pisces for the next three years. We'll be dealing a lot with letting go, despair, depression, suicidal thoughts, the desire to escape. It's the end of a dream. It's the end of a cycle. There's a lot of disillusionment. A lot of things dissolving around us. Saturn is structure and form going into this formlessness of Pisces. It's the compost pile that just kind of shrinks and dissolves and goes away into Honus. And then Pluto. Pluto coming along into Aquarius. I don't know if you read the, the new moon I wrote a new moon, uh, the lunar planner, uh, and it's on the blog on my website. I post it in different places. It's on my Telegram channel. But I quoted this verse from Rudolf Steiner uh, about trusting that what comes to us out of the future is by divine design and by divine wisdom. And Trust allows us, trust in the process, trust in great spirit, trust in ourselves, trust in our souls that we are infinite spiritual beings and that we're going to get through this and we're going to make it to the dawn out of the darkness of night and that we're going to emerge out of the underworld because everything that goes down must come up just like everything that goes up must come down that everything is happening cyclically so trust is so important it is so powerful and how do we build trust we build trust through experience I just trusted that the wind would not blow the camera over <laughs> I trust you wrong, man. <laughs> oh, God. Got blown away. Yeah, that happens too, man. Frickin' A. 
That's why there's reincarnation, because everything gets into being such a mess down here. Oh, God. But I was talking about Pluto going into Aquarius. Artificial intelligence, facial recognition, surveillance, uh, surveillance, uh, digital currency, you name it. Uh, you know, drones and, you know, drones dropping bombs, uh, you know, everybody in virtual reality glasses and, you know, the metaverse and, you know, buying online property and blah, 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 blah. the list goes on and on. You know, technology is just like really speeding things up and we are going to evolve through technology. Pluto, the force of evolution is moving into Aquarius. For the next 20 years till 2044, okay, and it's the sign of science and technology. There are going to be advances, and we are not going to recognize, okay, uh, what is, you know, our, our planet, our reality is going to shift and be changing so fast. It's mind-boggling. So it's not going to slow down. We're not going back to normal. It's gone. It's history. We are moving forward at breakneck speed. And as I mentioned, a lot of this, you know, artificial intelligence and everything going on is all about advancing the mind and the body. Yeah, so we'll be replacing... Uh, organs and hearts and legs and livers and knees and <laughs> eyes and whatever. And, and then we'll, we'll be transporting our thoughts and our memories, you know, into algorithmic, uh, you know, design and, you know, gaining this kind of immortality with the mind and the body. But we are humans, the human being is unique in that it loves and it cares and it has compassion and forgiveness and all the virtues that set humanity apart from other life forms. Rule in the middle realm of the heart. Leo rules the heart. It's opposite Aquarius. It's the shadow of the Aquarian age will be this creative joy Leo and the sun in the fifth house is joy, gambling, romance, risk-taking, because I trust life. I trust I'm a part of life. I'm trusting that I'm in life. I'm da-da-da-da-da-da. So it comes back to this trust needed to balance out all that Aquarius, you know, genius and, you know, you know, the genius and the individuality and the elite and the science and technology, they're very separating. It's very cold, heartless. You know, they, they uh, even draw these aliens with these big heads and no, you know, like no chest, like no heart. They're skin and bones with this big head. So the water is the heart. Yeah, the water and the feeling. And even the fire is in the heart. Okay, this warm water. 
So here comes Mars into Cancer, you know, next week for some time, and this weekend, you know. And, you know, we'll feel these feelings. We want to swim in these feelings and allow these feelings to bubble up, to rise up, and not to distract ourselves or be workaholics or alcoholics or numb ourselves out or drugaholics or, but, you know, you know, to, to, to really, if we're sad, if we need to cry, if we need to feel, if we need to, you know, just jump for joy, if we need to, you know, swing and shout and, you know, get mad or throw or We want to like, you know, encourage Mars is going to stir up these feelings and also memories and also stuff with the family and also stuff with our childhood conditioning and with mom or the lack of mom or anger at you know mom dad the past each other <laughs> We often end up uh, marrying our caretakers, our childhood caretakers. Uh, we, we roll them all into a big ball, and then that's that's what we're that's what we're attracted to in adult life. <laughs> anyway, yeah, the idea is that these things are fleeting, and they are changing, and feelings need to be felt. They don't need to be held on to, to be made real, to be magnified, to be blown out of proportion. It's like, you know what? Just like this river. They flow. They move. They come up and then they go. So we want to swim in these waters of feeling that make us human. That, that, that bring in a sensation and a beauty of life and, and, and a subtle appreciation and wonder and awe, you know, of the little girl. You know, like we are, you know, this innocence. We're always learning. And we're learning about ourselves. Our emotions teach us and tell us who we are. We're not who we think we are. We are our feelings. And the movement is from where I am in my world of feeling to the ideal person, the best version of myself that I envision. So we need to go back, okay, to our roots. Cancer is the bottom of the chart, the fourth house water seeking the lowest level. It is our deepest roots. We need to go back to our feeling, our gut, our, our root chakra and, and emerge towards our future from there, out of there. And if we don't really go all the way down, we won't go all the way up. <laughs> so the mantra for today for this week really especially you know because like I say it's coming it's not right now on Wednesday <laughs> but 
diving down from cosmic realms. Crown chakra, third eye, celestial world, cosmic realms, into the waters below. I swim through the fear and chaos there. Then surface, get out, and go. <laughs> the idea is not to drown ourselves. If we're feeling sad, down, depressed, lonely, miserable, fearful, whatever, feel it. Don't feed it. And frickin' surface and get out of it. I, now, I was going to say... Um, you know, I feel through the fear and chaos there. So you can use either feel or swim. You know, feel is that I really, you know, I feel the fear and chaos there. Then surface. Some of you may prefer not to feel it, but to just swim through it. <laughs> That's the fire and air science, <laughs> myself included. So I, I, I'm putting swim. I'm going to make it swim, <laughs> swim through it. But no, it's good to like swim through it is a metaphor for feeling it. But emotion, you know, is energy in motion. So swimming through it is that. You know, you can feel these feelings, but, you know, you're more than these feelings and you move beyond those feelings. You don't let the feelings determine you, right? So much as you experience them, learn from them and let them go and you remain. Right? Soul. Soul is, be, is, is more than feeling. Yeah, it's a combo, spirit, feeling, energy, consciousness, whatever. <laughs> Diving down from cosmic realms into the waters below. I swim through the fear and chaos there, then surface, get out and go. <laughs> May you surface and, no, may you dive down. Maybe go all the way down to the bottom. Blah, 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 blah. Sink all the way down and then come back up, get out and go. This is, this is the first quarter, right? That moon is moving away from the sun. It's time to start, begin and move on, baby. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. <laughs> Yeah.
Pastor Talky Stick to you, Richard. All right, then. I'm still looking at Aries. It's the most interesting uh, configuration. <laughs> well, Venus Uranus is going to be really interesting, but we're yeah. we're 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 uh, swimming through Aries right now, and not swimming through Cancer. We're still swimming through Aries, and. Jupiter is leading the way, right? Jupiter is at 18 degrees, and uh, Chiron there is uh, right there at 16 degrees. So this week, in spite of the upset in the U.S. banking industry, the the, the Federal Open Market Committee raised interest rates. I was rooting for a half a percent, but they only raised it a quarter of a percent. <laughs> and the, the recent numbers on inflation is still around six here in the U.S. It's, it's worse. It's like 10 in, in, in London and the U.K., Yep. So inflation is is still here, and I think I think what's keeping the economy running along the way they report it, you know, with uh, low unemployment. Uh-huh. I, I think the 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 medium and moderately wealthy are going to keep spending. Mm-hmm. Because they have it, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's gonna and that's gonna, and then there's there's the creative ones that are you know building new businesses, right? That's gonna keep the demand up for for employees to fill these new positions, right? And they're gonna be technical type positions, right? Batteries and uh, more computer stuff, solar panels, you know. And so um, I think inflation is going to stay here for a while. And we'll just have to wait and see how the, how the precious metals do. So uh, I, I checked them. Uh, silver is up again this week. And... Gold was only down like twenty bucks. Mm. So gold is at nineteen seventy seven right now, and silver is at twenty three and twenty three cents. Okay. Now the last time, back in January, silver got up to very close to twenty five dollars before the profit takers took profits yeah so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, take some of my old old coins to the coin shop and uh, do it do a trade here see it, it at the same time now that interest rates have come up you could put your emergency money in a short-term CD 
and get an actual return, you know, because zero interest rates are, they hurt savers the worst because they can't get any, they can't get any interest on their emergency fund. So that that's my comment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that situation is, you know, it's, and there's a, there's an outside chance there's going to be uh, more banking problems. I, I heard I think I heard a rumor about one of those you know economic commentators saying, well, yeah, you know, there's some other mid-level banks that everybody's checking their exposure risk, right? When 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 uh, the, the Silicon Valley Bank and the Republic Bank, you know, when they had had their uh, when it was revealed that they were overexposed to long-term bonds, every banker went looking at their bond portfolios to see how exposed they were. <laughs> oh my! So yeah. So in, unless you're a new buy, unless you're a new buyer of a bond at the new higher rates, you got screwed. Mm. I keep hearing that this digital currency, the cryptocurrencies, because it's not controlled by Miss Janet Yellen or Mr. Uh, whatever his name is over here, yeah. uh, Mr. Powell, uh, they're not able to control what cryptocurrency does to a certain degree. It's part of the energies of Pluto into Aquarius. Yeah, yeah, that's that's part of it. And but it's but it's so it's it's so new, and there's there's uh, you know more more than one flavor of crypto. Right. So it's to be expected that some of those are gonna gonna fail. Yeah. So that's a, that's an interesting one to keep an ear an ear on. All right, let's go listen to Tanya. Maybe she'll be she's usually uh, kinder and gentler. Yes, she's more upbeat and more loving in a sense. Uh, Kepacha is you know laying it out. This is well, yeah. Kepacha is, is is laying it out with uh, no sugar. Right, At no, all. no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, I think he likes he likes vinegar on his chips. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that. All right, then. Here we go. <laughs> Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes, the podcast where we look at an astro-numerology event coming up in the stars and numbers, the astrology and numerology to help us navigate the celestial energy that is being emitted on 
such a big level right now. I mean, we're going to talk about an epic transformation that's about to take place with Pluto. And I had mentioned it in a previous Star Code podcast when we talked about Saturn's move into Pisces on March 7th and how this month of March has so many shifts in play between that event and then Pluto, the planet of this podcast, moving into Aquarius on March 23rd, followed by Mars moving into Cancer after being in Gemini for seven months due to that long retrograde on March 25th, two days later. So this is a big transformational time. It's epic. And with Pluto, it's even more so because Pluto is such a slow-moving planet. It takes Pluto 248 years to move through the 12 signs of the Zodiac. So when Pluto changes signs, it's a really big deal. Now, Pluto is the planet of power, of purging, of transformation, of either disempowerment or empowerment, of making the unseen visible. And in Aquarius, the sign that Pluto will be moving into on March 23rd, Aquarius is the sign of the visionary, the inventor, the revolutionary, the sign of freedom and equality and community and the collective and our future and advances in technology. So Pluto moving into Aquarius is going to address and change the status quo, what's established, what is basically considered reality, and that's what Capricorn represents. Capricorn is the sign that Pluto is moving in, out of and back in briefly and out of again because of the retrogrades in the next year and a half or so. But Capricorn is basically representative of those structures that represent reality and the status quo, the powers that be. And so now that is completing itself now as Pluto moves into Aquarius. And like I said, moves back into the final two degrees of Capricorn due to retrogrades through November 2024. So it's a really transformative, epic time because the process is now coming to a head with this first visit of Pluto into Aquarius. Now, the last time Pluto was in Aquarius was the end of the 18th century. So between 1778 and 1798, and that was a 20-year period where countries around the world were rising up and challenging ruling authority. Again, Pluto had just moved out of Capricorn, and that's what happened. Now, these included political, social revolutions, basically in many different parts of the globe. And then when we go back another cycle, so another 248 years prior to the late 18th century, we arrive in the years of 1532 to 1553. And that was a 21-year period where Pluto was in Aquarius. And that was when the Protestant Reformation started with the... Uh, Catholic Church being challenged in terms of its authority. That was the main authority at that point. So there's a lot here that is coming up, especially once Pluto is firmly in Aquarius from late 2024 all the way until 2044, a 20-year period. 
And we need to look at the first moment that Pluto reaches this sign because it is so laden with new beginnings. The new beginnings factor is absolutely huge. On March 20th, three days prior to Pluto literally inching in to Aquarius, we have the equinox. And that equinox is very powerful. It has the sun sextile Pluto, right? So the sun is basically sending Pluto off in a very harmonious way, basically saying striving for success is very important now. Uh, Having a desire to accomplish what you feel destined to accomplish is greatly heightened and there is a lot of confidence in play and you are just ready to take the lead. Remember, Pluto represents power. So you feel very empowered by this sextile 60 degree connection from the sun to Pluto right on the equinox, which is when day and night are equal. And it's the beginning of the new zodiacal year, meaning the equinox in Aries is zero degrees Aries and Aries is the first sign. So it really begins the new year in astrology. So a lot of new beginnings, but that's not all. The next day, literally hours later on March 21st, we have the Aries new moon at zero degrees Aries. Again, a new beginnings indication. So this symbolism is absolutely incredible. And this Aries new moon at zero degrees Aries, that's an Aries point. So we have Aries points on all the cardinal signs, the four cardinal signs, that are the beginning of our four seasons. And so they are zero degrees Aries, zero degrees Cancer, zero degrees Libra, and zero degrees in Capricorn. And so when we have a new moon on an Aries point, especially the very, very first degree of the whole zodiac, zero degrees Aries, the new beginnings factor, new moon, is really quite astounding. And we have two Aries new moons this year, making it even more exciting. There's another one on April 20th at 29 degrees Aries. So it's showing us, and that one's a total solar eclipse, by the way. So really huge Aries-Mars push here towards starting fresh and seeing things in a new light right as Pluto enters Aquarius. So those are like the precursors to then what happens on the 23rd of March, which is when Pluto enters Aquarius the first time since 1778. And so Aquarius is the sign of the collective and of community and innovation, technology, the unexpected freedom, future. And Pluto infuses Aquarius then with life, death, rebirth, regeneration. So what we have been used to is being transformed as a new way, a new perception, a new way of perceiving life is being created. And so Pluto dips into Aquarius the first time for 11 weeks until June 11th. So there is a double 11 right there. And Aquarius is the 11th sign. It rules the 11th house. So there's a lot of electricity with this one. 11 actually governs light and electricity being in the present moment, which is going to be absolutely crucial at this time because there'll be a lot of 
situations and experiences and developments that will unfold that will really demand that we be completely present and not caught up in agendas or beliefs or manipulation or just mind games. So this is a, another part of the astro-numerology code that is really pointing to the importance of presence at this time. Now, on the 25th, Mars enters Cancer, and that is huge shift energy, and Mars plays a big role during the Aries new moon in that there is a square from the sun and moon to Mars. So we have a lot here to unpack, and in terms of the internal shift and how it positively impacts us at this time, that is when you are open to transformation. So that is when you are really so open to listening intuitively to how to navigate each moment. That is the liberation point. That is the magical moment, the zero point, really, where you are not thrown into a loop, a forward loop worrying about the future or a past loop regurgitating all the fears from anything that you're attached to that has already happened and projecting that into the present moment instead of just being open and present. Now, on the 23rd, when Pluto moves into Aquarius, 23 is a big number this year. We're in 2023. And so that is not insignificant at all because the number 23 in the ancient Chaldean numerology is the strongest number because it represents the royal star of the lion, the strongest animal in the animal kingdom, the king of the animal kingdom. And so the royal star of the lion number is showing us again that courage and confidence and strength that comes from Pluto and from the Aries-Mars connection. And not only that, the date of the 23rd of March, 2023 adds up to 15. And 15 is the number of spiritual alchemy, of magic, of love, of abundance, of uplifting others through joy. So the magic that comes when you live in the frequency of abundance and gratitude. It is the magician number, the alchemy number, and so merged with the royal star of the lion, this is a very exciting and powerful code, a very positive code. So... Let's look at one more amazing development with this Pluto movement into Aquarius. And that is at the moment that Pluto reaches zero degrees Aquarius, the lunar nodes will be at the very beginning degrees of Taurus. The north node is at the beginning of Taurus and the south node is at the beginning of Scorpio. And this T-square from Pluto to the nodes is important because it does impact our relationships, who we meet. You know, the nodes represent not only the the future and the past, North Node being the future and South Node the past, but they represent the people in our lives. And that's going to transform tremendously with this incredible T-square, especially in the fixed signs. Aquarius, Taurus, and Scorpio are all fixed signs. And fixed signs are the signs that want to change the least because they're fixed. So there's going to be this resistance to adjusting to 
relationships, new and present, that are undergoing a dramatic shift. Um, it's epic in every way. So it's not just what you're going to be seeing on the news developing in world events and national events and local events, but it is truly in your own life. It's going to get very personal, the rebirth and transformation. There's going to be some endings because Pluto does bring endings. Pluto does purge. So letting go and looking to that neutral place where you know there's a new beginning coming and you trust in that and not get caught up in whatever storyline is being played out at the moment. You want to steer away from that and focus on intuitively how you are being guided at this time. Because it's going to be very intense, especially between now and July, because in June, Pluto moves back into 29 degrees Capricorn, and that is a critical degree. It's the degree that Pluto's been on for the last couple months or so, and it will be back. And so the nodes will be in 29 degrees Aries and Libra at that point. And so that's why it's continuing through around November of this year. So all of these things are are important. And remember that Saturn is the ruler of the sign that Pluto is moving back and forth from and into the sign of Capricorn. Saturn just changed signs as well on March 7th. There's so much here. And the Saturn placement now in Pisces, which is where Saturn moved into, Pisces dissolves. Pisces is about melting away. And since Saturn rules Capricorn, those very structures and paradigms that we've been holding as our go to in terms of instructions and uh, taking orders from and not, you know, obeying basically following the rules. When Saturn, the ruler of that sign, the sign that Pluto is now also leaving and moving back and forth, the sign of Capricorn, when Saturn moves into Pisces, it's dissolving, right? It is now at the point where those old structures and old power centers are dissolving. So, Aquarius is the sign of being very meticulous and reason and, and be logical. It's, it's connected to science and scientific reasoning. So Pluto being in Aquarius, there will be deep seated beliefs that will be shifted, beliefs that we are invested in that define our identity because Aquarius challenges those. We need to now see that when we were born, a lot of us, we were born into a culture that taught us to obey the authorities and otherwise face judgment or even punishment, uh, which is another form of judgment. And now we know that can't possibly be true. And with the Aquarian age that we are moving into, the technology has been invented, especially the World Wide Web, that has made it possible for all of us to actually learn the truth of how powerful we actually are, right? To have all this info and data and anything that we search for at our fingertips. So Pluto and Aquarius is really going to continue this thread. Pluto and Aquarius is going to dismantle the control because Aquarius really doesn't like that control. 
Aquarius also governs astrology and numerology. Aquarius asks us to reach beyond any top-down control and listen to the stars, listen to the codes, the frequencies. It rules the divination arts, not just science. It is about exploration on all levels. So as a result, we're all coming into an awareness of just honoring our personal sovereignty instead of continuing to align to a system that's been enforced on our behalf, supposedly, but was used as a form of power over, not empowerment. And when we look at the fact that our uniqueness, our inner star, our confidence, our courage, our destiny is demonstrated in our astronomerology chart, our birth chart. That's pretty cool. Like that's where you want to turn for inspiration aside from your intuition because it is literally galactic. That is the creator speaking to you is through your chart, through the stars. And so now we are more and more eradicating that ingrained false belief system in us that we were trained as children to accept and respect and we're purging that and we're transforming that. And this is an imperative step for us to take our path back to awakening, which is what Aquarius represents, is the true awakening, the water bearer, the wisdom that is contained in that water that is reached in the very late sign of Aquarius, the 11th sign, right? So if you, the symbol of that is when you are wise, when you are older, and so once taken in collectively, there's no going back because the, the, the wisdom is there. You cannot put it back in and, and, you know, close it up. So Pluto in Aquarius drives home the truth that being born gives every individual the divine right to be and express themselves in whichever fashion that they may choose. As long as the person doesn't cause physical harm to someone else, this divine right may not and must not be overridden by anyone. And this is what is going to be driven home. So humanity is awakening now to this moment, which is the only moment there is, it is the moment that eternity lives in. Eternity is only present now. Anything else is a projection by the mind, the limited mind. Just, just consider that. Eternity is the time without beginning and end. There's no sense of being finite. It's infinite. And creation is constantly ongoing in that moment, in this moment. And you probably realize that we've had mystics walk the earth forever that have dived deeply into their heart and in doing so have become aware of the oneness with mother, father, creator, with source. And through that awareness, they have realized and have shared with us their inner world, what source truly is. 
And that source is truly the only reality. That love is the only reality. And we are now going through that awakening big time, big time. And I've created a wonderful masterclass that's free to help you with the awakening process. It is designed to help you take your power back. And you can access that free masterclass at spiritualmasteryclass.com. You'll discover the secret to spiritual mastery, the true meaning of your rising sign, the huge important difference between individuality and uniqueness. And I love that section of the masterclass. And your natal sun and natal moon's profound impact on living an abundant, happy life. Also, we focus on how to instantly connect to spirit. That's a big part of this webinar. And there's lots more tools in it as well. Again, it's free. So enjoy that at spiritualmasteryclass.com. Have a wonderful pivotal epic week with the equinox, the Aries new moon, the move from Pluto into Aquarius, and then followed by Mars on March 25th, move into Cancer. Enjoy and lots of love to you.
Mm. Aries, again, Aries in general rules the head, whereas <laughs> Pisces right. rules the feet. Mm. Right? Richard, Rama's been having headaches for a couple of months, not every day, but lots, you know. Who has? Rama. Yeah. It's the energies. I can say that from the solar flares and stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've got a, a radio station that got a bad case of the static. Yeah. And, and, I can, and it only comes in clear at certain random times of the day. But that that's okay. I, I I don't need to be listening to that channel right now. I listen to something else, you know. Yeah. 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 I'm still liking BBC Radio. Me out too. Of London. Oh yeah. It's so, great uh, to get together and yeah. listen. Oh, it's so much better than than what you get here in the states. Yeah. Uh, they have some interesting uh, weekend programs. One of them, one of them this morning was um, a fellow in India who is hooking up small farmers with uh, uh, AI app to help them time their their planting and harvesting seasons. And to increase their uh, their their crop yields oh, wow. using you know using weather weather data satellite data because see the AI can handle billions and billions of data points. That's right. So they're they're optimizing. Uh, you know, we want to make agriculture cool again with the use of technology. <laughs> yeah, that was, the, that was the guy's tagline. Make agriculture cool again. We'll get the AI working on the agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. All right, everybody, have a great week, and uh, we'll be talking to you later on. You too, Richard. Until we meet again. Namaste. Namaste. Aloha. All right, Rama, the number for our conference call. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POW. Yes, Tigger. <laughs> you want to repeat that? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353863POW. Okay, everybody, we'll see you there. And then we'll be right back here at the top of the hour, um, back at BBS Radio. We've got a wonderful schedule uh, of things to share when we come back. Namaste. See you on the conference, everyone. Okay, now that everybody's asleep. <laughs> Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to listen to Regina Meredith for this week. Um, It's called Homeopathy Before Psychiatry Lost Its Mind. (laughs) This ought to be pretty interesting. 
Okay, so how has natural homeopathy been obscured from the public? Jerry Ganter wrote his book, Sane Asylums. The success of homeopathy before psychiatry lost its mind. To, okay, so um, that's his book, Jerry Cantor's book. Uh, and um, uh, he, he wrote it to go beyond the pharmaceutical industry and expose the benefits of holistic health, explore root causes of illness, how existential issues lead to disease mm-hmm. in the body, and how we can holistically approach mental health within and without. Again, this is the host, Regina Meredith, with Jerry Cantor. And it is 45 minutes. So let's do it, Rama. Okay. It's got me. attack homeopathy for its ideology, they'd be wrong. For its science, they'd be wrong about that too because it's highly scientific. But for God's sakes, don't bother attacking it for its history. The history is real. Acupuncture is many, 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 many stabbing. Yeah, right. And homeopathy is a many, 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 many poisoning. <laughs> when people arrived at the asylum, much of the time they were malnourished and exhausted. So the first thing that was done was to give them a rest, put them in bed. When they were operated correctly, they were even self-sufficient. I call them utopias. People think, I'll just take Arnica for pain or some kind of muscular skeletal trauma, but they don't know the deeper meaning of Arnica, which is really quite interesting. Vaccines are one size fits all, no matter who you are, how old you are. Homeopathy is the functional cause of the vaccine. You get a much, much smaller amount. How often do we drive by people who've been discarded? People on the street shouting at passerbys. Maybe we're frightened at the unpredictability of the situation or feel helpless. There was a time when people who lost their bearings, had a place to go. Beautiful settings, nurses, healthy food, and as much time and bed rest as needed, as well as non-invasive homeopathic cures. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So welcome, Jerry. It's so good to have you with us. And we've been having very spirited discussions behind the scenes about homeopathics. Everybody's jumping in, wanting to know this and that. And this is your passion? Yes. You're a homeopath. You're also uh, an acupuncturist? Yes. And these two go nicely together both of them are working with energetic matrices. Well, I can say something, uh, fine-tune that a little bit. Please. You know, when I was in junior high school, I had a teacher who said that uh, there was no definition of life that didn't include the idea of, of irritability. Irritability? I thought, so that's pretty funny. I, I was 14 years old or something. Well, so both homeopathy and acupuncture work because they exploit our, our irritability. So acupuncture is a many, 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 many stabbing. Yeah, right. And homeopathy. Homeopathy is a many, 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 many poisoning. poisoning. <laughs> so it comes out to how 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 you're poked, and mm-hmm. then what comes out. It's, it's not you know you wouldn't want to be stabbed, and you wouldn't want to be genuinely poisoned. But both of these things are very minimal, very very minimal traumas that give the vital force an opportunity to respond optimally, and that has tremendous repercussions. Yes, and you know today. If you're reading news feeds and such about health and well-being, you don't hear much about homeopathy unless it's about the royal family. 
The royal family are famous for generationally right. turning to homeopathics when they need to um, overcome an illness, balance themselves out, live long, and they are noted for their long lifespans. Yes. And I think in part because they do use homeopathic cures instead of going for the invasive allopathic medical route. Yeah. And But that's all we hear. The royal family does it. And you know those kooks, those eccentrics. Yeah, unfortunately, homeopathy has been subject to a great deal of uh, uh, mischaracterization and disinformation. And that's one reason I, I was compelled to write this book. Because sane asylums. Sane asylums. Uh, so that, that doesn't... It, that, that doesn't continue, at least at the historical level. People, people can attack homeopathy for its ideology. They'd be wrong uh, for this for its uh, uh, science. They'd be wrong about that too, because it's highly scientific. But for God's sakes, how, you know, don't bother attacking it for its history. This I didn't take those photographs. I didn't read those. Uh, right. I didn't write the books that I researched. The history is real, and it has been denied to the public up to, up until this point. It has been completely obscured. Yeah. So first of all, let's look at how far back um, the history of homeopathy Homeopathy, the practice of homeopathy goes in, in the sense of microdoses of like cures like. Well, the principle goes back to Paracelsus, um, but, uh, homeopaths would peg the beginning of homeopathy to around 1796 when Samuel Hahnemann wrote his first papers about it. Mm -hmm. And he just was an incredible workaholic. And, um, he, he is still an, an amazing source for, of information about a tremendous number of remedies and, and how to make them. Um, he had tremendously powerful proponents uh, like James Tyler Kent and uh, Constantine Herring going into the late parts of the 19th century. But uh, it's, uh, it's 200 years old. It's, it's, it's been around. Let's talk about it, just its essence for a moment for people who aren't really familiar with the nature of how it works. The whole potentization process, the fact that really there's nothing oftentimes even left of the original substance, but that energetic imprint, the information is there. Talk to us about that. Yeah, um, water is 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 the miracle of life um and energy imprints on the molecules of water and imparts structure that uh, is uh, perceived at at uh, at many many levels it's it's quite powerful um Masaru Moto did a lot to show that yes. in his photographs yes that's right um and when you not just dilute the substance but when you vigorously shake it we call it a succussion that that energizes the um uh the remedy um so you take a little bit of remedy you put you it in called a, mother, a mother tincture, a mother tincture, which is a combination of alcohol and water, mm -hmm. which which has a discernible amount of the substance there, which can be a botanical, it could be mm -hmm. a, a chemical compound, it could be almost anything um, that, that you can dilute, otherwise you have to triturate it. Um, and then you take a few drops of that and put that in solution, and then you vigorously shake it, that's succussion. And that's really where it's imparting the information into yeah. the molecules? Yes, yes. And the more you do it, that's the, the strange thing about it, the more you do it, the more powerful the remedy becomes. And, and um, at least when the matching is correct, the lower potencies of the remedy have a more general effect, but they're not as long lasting. So you have to repeat them. But the higher potency remedies have, you know, this, this very, very strong energetic imprint. Mm -hmm. So it's a high stakes bet when you give that to somebody exactly. The homeopaths should know exactly what they're doing, but then you get the, mo the most maximum effect. So are you talking about when you say highest potency? So here, first we're talking about when it's diluted, diluted, diluted to the point where there no original molecules of the original right. substance are Left, that's right. But there's a highly potent body of information that's been encoded. Yes. Does that have anything to do with potency as we see it in the drugstore? Six, 30, 200? Yeah. Six yeah. C is a low potency. These X range remedies are by far the lowest. The cell salts will, will be uh, basically six X remedies. Um, six C is low, 
030 is higher, and that will have a, a substantive effect, but not be as, as strong as the 200. The 200s and the 1Ms and so forth beyond that are generally not sold in the stores because you should really know what you're doing when you give them, which is to say that something at a high level um, may produce an aggravation, which is a healing crisis. And uh, if you're not familiar with that, then um, you better be working with somebody. You, you wouldn't want to do that on your own. I like 200 cc's, but it's usually Arnica. Let's Arnica, talk. Yeah. Now, that's one thing most people watching this certainly understand. Yeah. Uh, well, they know Arnica for its anti-inflammatory properties, but you say it goes far beyond that. I do. And so that's um, typical of what's happened in the marketing of something like that. People think, I'll just take Arnica for pain or some kind of musculoskeletal trauma, but they don't know the deeper meaning of Arnica, which is really quite interesting. It's a mountain laurel. So it grows high in the mountains. And that relates a little bit to what it actually does at the energetic or spiritual level. I believe that there's a level of consciousness that we all have that is invested in our intactness. In our like a perfected template of sorts. Yeah. Or is it trying to find its way back to a state of balance. Or, yeah, We all need to do that. Yeah. Um, but let's say you have a serious injury where you're losing a lot of blood or you've had an amputation or you've been in a severe car accident. Um, you go into a state of shock. And this level of consciousness says, hmm, the facts don't much match my understanding. This person should be, this person I'm inhabiting here should be, in, should be intact. And it's not, that's not, not the case. So now. I leave, I leave. Mm-hmm. So the a level of consciousness leaves the body briefly. And so you, the person will say, I'm okay when they're not. And that's the keynote of Arnica. So that's a deeper understanding of that remedy than someone who just thinks, oh, this will help me to repair. When the soul is pulled back, this level of consciousness is pulled back into the body. Healing is much more possible than when it's not there. And so that's why Arnica actually works. Because it helps pull that portion of being. So that's why it's used, which I just learned very recently, is used for emotional trauma as well. Because an emotional trauma, would you not think that a state of shock is an emotional trauma? Yeah, absolutely. We are not able to process some kinds of shock. If you're watching a murder or you're you're, you're in a car which is completely flipped over, you've gotten a really serious injury, you cannot possibly... um, process that at the moment so we are designed so that we go into a state of shock so that later on we can we can deal with it if you meet somebody who goes in who's in who's feeling like that you say wow that's a really strong person didn't you know said nothing happened everything's okay that's not accurate they're in a state of shock right they're in that numb place right if you meet them a few weeks later and then they're starting to process it and they're weeping and wailing you don't say oh what a weakling let's say they can't handle this you don't do that but basically you, you you heal when your soul is completely in your body when you're in, in, when you're grounded and when this level of consciousness is fully there. And that's what Arnica does. Well, that's profound. Much more profound than taking care of... I take it for dental work. <laughs> well, when you're having significant dental work, a little bit of that is oh, going yeah, on. Yeah, you're yeah. a little bit out of your body. Yeah, and it actually helps very much. I yeah, find it helps yeah. a lot. Yeah. So, okay, now that we've kind of gotten a couple of the pop things on the table, let's start getting into the story a little bit. And, and what, I, what I was so interested in and a reading sane asylum was looking at where we are right now compared to where where this kind of healing was once upon a time and especially i live in sacramento california and one of the things that many many cities have seen is a much higher incidence of homelessness and encampments where people are sleeping out in the cold everywhere under every overpass they're everywhere just trying to find some place to stay out of the wind and the rain with people ranting and people on um drugs trying to self-soothe and alcohol and there's no place for them well they're trying to build big places actually but right now it's so overwhelming the mental health crisis 
crisis and there's nowhere for them to go. There's no one looking after them. There's nothing in place. How do you see that as someone that does what you do with such great care for a living? Well, that's a huge question. I mean, the homeless do have a lot of mental health issues. Yeah, that's true. Um, I will tell you that in my own practice, and we're getting people getting are presenting as sicker and sicker because of uh, an epidemic of autoimmune conditions, because of the effects of, uh, of of the drugs that people are on. Um, people are sicker, and so it's harder for us homeopaths to deal with them. And there's always the risk of their regressing and going back to to their drugs because they don't heal quickly enough, and we have to detox them. So back to your question, what we fantasize about is, is having an asylum where we can have people uh, 24 hours a day and take care of them so that we can we can get them through those crises and not lose them back to the conventional means. There's a real need for, for asylum care for uh, absolutely for, for people, but this is a, a, an era that's, um, that's quite bygone. Basically, now we drug people up. We do the opposite. We send them back to the community like zombies, and uh, we... we, we 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 uh, relinquish our opportunity to to work with them to grapple with their mental illness at the level of what used to be called moral hygiene. You know, intense discussions with people, right? Listening to them very carefully. The, the nurses at uh, the Middletown Hospital that I write about, um, under the direction of Clara Barris, mm-hmm. were just paragons. They were amazing people. And yeah, oh yes, we're going to get into her story. Amazing I, uh, people. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah, there is. But we would love we would love to have um, some places that we can caretake people. So that we can we can work with them long term and and, and and not lose them. So there's a number of reasons why we would like to have facilities like that. Again, they would be and they could be staffed by nurses, acupuncturists, pastors, chaplains. Yes, oh, especially <laughs> nurses, much overlooked. Yes, yeah, yeah. And really, some of the people, well, certainly historically, that were key to the healing processes of people in the day. It was nurses, really. Yes, yes. And so I just want to go off of one thing you said. Right now, these days, you're seeing more and more people without a immune problems. I have to ask you this. We have all, all around the world, we've had global vaccine programs. We've gotten all different mishmashes of vaccines. Has this had anything to do with the change in our biochemistry or uh, the functioning of our immune system that you can see? I'm afraid so, yeah. Just across the board? Across the board. People are... Without getting into it. It's a troubling problem. I mean, vaccinations are the dysfunctional cousin of homeopathy, to put it very mildly. Explain that. What what is a vaccine? Well, a vaccine... It works on the on the on basic basically on the idea of using like to prevent like right. Mm-hmm. You get a small dose of cowpox so that you don't get smallpox. That's the law of similars that homeopaths work on. Mm-hmm. And the first vaccine uh, by by Jenner, which uh, the word vax comes from cow, um, mm-hmm. was uh, to give people a small dose of cowpox, which prevented them from getting a more serious illness. That was an inoculation and pretty close to how homeopathy works. Except mm-hmm. homeopaths, when they made that uh, that medicine, made it much more dilute. So the big difference is. Vaccines are one size fits all, no matter who you are, how old you are, you get the same darn thing. And also what, much too much of it. Well, as I was going to say, it's not yeah. like a diluted right, right. compound. Yeah. So when you dilute something, you, you're actually going to the, going through the process of, of making it, of matching you as an individual. Um, you know, whether we, when you practice versus acupun- actually infecting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, acupuncturists and homeopaths have this, this experience that in common, someone will show up and say, Oh, Jerry, uh, I fall between all the cracks. I just don't fit any category. What can you do for me? And I always say, well, to a homeopath, everyone's a crack. We want to be work on you individually. We're not interested right. in putting you in a box. Your diagnosis does not define you. Um, so, yeah, homeopathy is the functional, I would say the functional cousin of the vaccine is that we every, you get a much, much smaller amount 
of what matches you and that can prevent another kind of, of a problem. And it's perfectly matched, should be ideally matched to what's going on with you at the mental, emotional and physical level. So you should theoretically not have any of these side effects or problems with a, you know, a society of people with plummeting immune systems that should not be coming out of homeopathy. That's not absolutely that, not. That, that not, cannot, cannot happen. happen. No. So let's talk about uh, one of the things in your book when you're speaking about these places that we're going to go into now that that were in existence in the late 1700s and 1800s into the early 1900s. Um, these bucolic settings, these asylums to foster sanity. A lot of these people had, um, they were, they had malnutrition on one level or another. So a lot of it was really what was lacking in the diet that was causing a lot of these mental imbalances. And I would think in the day, maybe exposure to metals and toxins we didn't really understand at the time, right? One of the rabbit holes I had to explore when writing this book was the difference in madness in the, in that era and from now. Right. And so, uh, rather than, Try to engage with that question in every other sentence of the book. I created a compendium, a compendium of madness perspectives. It's in my appendix, yes, so I can refer to that. Um, but yeah, uh, things were very, very different um, when people arrived at the asylum. Much of the time, they were malnourished and exhausted. So the first thing that was done was to give them a rest, put them in bed, um, give them really good, good nutrition, which was state of the art at the time involved warm milk was one of the, one of the warm milk was really time. prominent. And, yeah. the, and the milk was a, a high quality and directly that, from the cows, not pasteurized. And all <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> also, these asylums worked best when they weren't like, you know, 2000 person, 2000 bed facilities, which is what they grew into later on and which turned out to be their demise. Because how can you do really good homeopathy with uh, 2000 clients? Right. But, um, yeah, um, bit by bit, they were, they were, they were, they were really nurtured. They were told, you're going to be here indefinitely. You're going to get you together. We're not going to rush you back into your dysfunctional family or into the community. Um, we're going to let you engage in things that are absolutely pleasurable and beneficial to you. Let you work on a craft, let you participate in the garden, um, let you listen to and create music, write letters. Um, Clara Barris, who's the, one of the heroes of my book. Yes. Is the other Clara Barr was Clara Barton, who was the, uh, very, very famous angel of the battlefield, in my opinion, had this counterpart in Clara Barris, mm-hmm. who was wrote this fantastic book called uh, um, Nurses, Nursing the Insane, yeah. a fantastic book, yeah. really brilliant book, very compassionate person. And so she would have them um, engage in giggle classes, get people to you know, laugh. Giggle, yeah, giggle giggling therapy. classes mm-hmm. was one thing she did, but she had just tremendous respect for the mentally ill, and uh, she imparted that to her to the nurses. So as I say, they engaged with the clients actively at, at, in terms of trying to release them from the delusions that they had um, with patience and kindness. Um, uh, she was, uh, it was very different from, from the nursing obligations today. Nurses right. are wonderful today, but they don't have the time or the opportunity. And no. this just does not happen anywhere, in a, not in a psychiatrist's office, um, not in, in any, any, um, any, any. Because of these no one's clients. given that valuable commodity of time. Yes. And and when you write about her and some of the other nurses, it's as you said earlier, they're like paragons of virtue. And she wrote a directive on what a good nurse ought to be. Maybe you can share a little bit of that with us. Oh, I better if you read her actual words. She's yeah, quite a good it, writer. But she uh, was basically yeah. being, you know, being free from discouragement, paying very close attention to the clients, to their cleanliness, being very observant of what they did and what they said. 
uh, not engaging them with arguments. It's a lot of it's advanced placement common sense. Right. How would you deal? How if you if you were to deal with your client as you would would with, with your, a sick relative? Mm-hmm. Kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hugely yeah. compassionate. Person. Very very compassionate. So yeah. here you have the bucolic settings. Yeah. This was um, really nature was part of it. Having yeah, space. Yeah. And there was more nature around then. Um, yeah, they picked beautiful settings, and they they had. Uh, a lot of land, and it was homeopathy was not controversial back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the states would, would 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 give them huge land grants. They would, they would state would, would would subsidize these places. And uh, when they were operated correctly, they were even self sufficient. I call them utopias, like the Middletown Asylum yes, very was uh, able to sustain itself. Let's talk about that. And Dr. Selden Talcott and his role in all of that, because he's another hero in the book. Yeah, he's a hero of my book. Yeah. So he was a a, a Civil War physician, um, had a you know very extensive training in homeopathy. He he uh, actually ran a homeopathic um, alcoholism facility in New York at Ward's Island. Um, just an absolutely wonderful, hugely respected person, uh, a disciple of a homeopath by the name of Samuel Lilienthal, and he was the second superintendent at Middletown, a homeopathic hospital for the insane, as it was called then. And he was involved in its. Uh, Every every aspect of it uh, of, of it of its well the design was there but he refined that a lot mm-hmm. um, but he ran a tight ship it was budgetarily on on, on target um, the thing that he did that really made him stand out was uh, using baseball as a therapy yeah and um, that's kind of where your interest in this started yeah, right yeah, it was an easy thing to do <laughs> there was a baseball field there and initially uh, some of the staff members and the doctors and the patients played together mm-hmm. and. Um, he noticed that the patients there were watching this very intently. And he was an observant, observant man. He said, you know, baseball seems to make a difference. They were all better when they were watching baseball. So he created this fantastic team. He, he poached players from local teams and yeah. uh, created this uh, team, not, not with the inmates playing for it, but to represent the asylum. And the place was, the team was called the Asylums. Yeah. And they were an absolute powerhouse. They had a future Hall of Famer, Jack Chesbro. And they played major league teams to a standoff, and big crowds came to watch watch the games. And even the the most the, the craziest of the clients would come out and, and rapt attention, you know, watch this. <laughs> but he was also uh, the mother Middletown facility was a, what I call the mother church for this movement because it was the the um, really most the biggest, the most successful mental health asylum. So many other uh, psych, psychiatrists, homeopathic psychiatrists, went went and did internships there, and then they went and worked at other. Facilities like at uh, Butler Asylum in Prov- in, um, in Providence, um, Fergus Falls in Minnesota, um, Westboro, and uh, then when they, they they completed their careers there, they would open small often open small sanitariums, private sanitariums. But Talcott was um, uh, just a hugely respected homeopath. We have in our Materia Medico uh, the software for mm-hmm. a practitioner. One of his his books that we re- refer to. So he was, um, he was a successful man on many levels. So one thing you talked about a little bit ago was the alcoholism part. So this I found intriguing in the book. Following the Civil War, there was a huge issue with alcoholism, just the disorientation of coming back from such an incredibly brutal uh, situation. Yeah. There's a book called The uh, Empire of Suffering um, that goes into the carnage, what the the, um, the problems the Civil War caused. Uh, that was interesting for me to learn about that. Yeah. Back in those days, I, I didn't know this. Um, people were deeply invested in the idea that that of, of the resurrection of the body, physically. Actually, that if when you died somehow it's, uh, through this belief in Christianity, the body would be resurrected. 
And there was also a, 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 a high premium put on the value of one's last words. As you were dying, dying was not so such a big deal as the fact that you would give your last words and describe how your life was meaningful and that you didn't mind dying. The Civil War blew that up to apart. The bodies could not be found. When they were found, they were obliterated. Um, there were no there were very few um, inspiring last words that were mm-hmm. uttered. The yeah. people went into a gigantic crisis of grief. Mm-hmm. And this is a primary reason why all these um, mental hospitals sprung up. And also, I, I, I imagine, alcoholism. Um, but the country was always heavily into alcohol. Uh, it was, uh, used people would drink, um, you know. Um, oh, you know, yeah. The, I was reading about that. The yeah. amount of alcohol per capita yeah. that was yeah. drunk back then. Holy cow. There's a great book called Saloon Culture. <laughs> they were anesthetizing heavily across the country, man and woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People drank heavily, and that was a big problem. And uh, so what we now might call tardive dyskinesia in those days was called, a, had a different der- derivation, and it was uh, delirium tremens, late stages of alcoholism. You'd just mm-hmm. be sitting there. Yeah, there the trembling. shakes. Yeah. yeah. And homeopathy can ameliorate that somewhat. There are books on homeopathic treatment of, of inebriation, but... You know, getting to an absolute cure when you, you you're that far gone is is uh, a bridge too far. What about drug addiction? Oh, uh, what today? Homeopathic? Or no, today. Homeopathic yeah. approaches to drug breaking um, drug addictions. Yeah, absolutely, we do that. We yeah. have to uh, we have to detox someone. Yeah. Well, that would be a combination of actually using making a homeopathic preparation from the drug that has uh, has addicted you yeah. so that you can gradually wean yourself from it. At the same time, you would... Kind of like uh, nicotine patches almost, but but not exactly. People think that... People confuse homeopathy with lots of things. So it's yeah. not desensitization therapy. Mm-hmm. Although when you're using the the the, uh, the, the dilute versions of the, of the drugs, it is something like that. Yeah. But then you would also incorporate the constitutional remedy and other support remedies and maybe remedies made from neurotransmitters mm-hmm. to help the person get to, get to the other side. But... It's it's a matter of increase creating a good game plan as opposed to saying uh, we're just going to cure you with this one remedy. That's what I mean by things people being sicker than before. Yeah. Okay. You just said something I didn't know about remedies made from neurotransmitters. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that because right now we've got all kinds of issues going on with our brain, <laughs> our brains. <laughs> well, the avatar of that is a homeopath in Holland by the name of, of um, Tone Jansen. And his brand of homeopathy is probably going to revolutionize the field. It's practiced extensively in, in Europe. And my colleague, Juma Biswas, is a proponent of his. And that takes a lot of work. Um, that takes when you create a program for somebody who's really sick and you want to intervene with them in terms of detoxing them from the medications they've taken, supporting them with neurotransmitter remedies. This is very much a field that's, you know, uh, developing at the moment. So um, she's doing more of that than I am. I'm still the classical practitioner who prefers mm-hmm. to work with single remedies and really delve the psychological profile. Mm-hmm. But this is a, 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 an important, this is an emerging development in homeopathy, very similar to what would, I would say is what happened with functional medicine in conventional medicine. Functional medicine uh, developed outside the medical schools, outside the internal medicine program, right. but based on the work of Jeffrey Bland, um, um, and it's really taken off. So this is this is sort of a parallel. This is like functional medicine within does functional functional medicine employ the use of homeopathics? No, not that. No, not not conventionally. Yeah. No. Okay. But it's it's a functional way. Look at systems wide way of looking at at a mm-hmm. client as opposed to breaking you down like in a gastroenterologist for your gastric system, you know, a psychiatrist for your mind, and right. <laughs> a neurologist for your nerves. At least in, at least within conventional medicine, there was this attempt to look at someone at a functional level. But the problem there still is consciousness, which is so central to how homeopathy works. 
who you are, what is what has happened to you at the level of consciousness. That is not part of functional medicine as I know yeah. it. You're still sort of treating like a treated like a mechanical object. Mm-hmm. It's homeopathic. Yeah. yeah, in homeopathy, the uh, who you are consciously, you know, what experiences that you've had, what has traumatized you, what your hot button is. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, that's the first question you ask people. Yeah, well, it's not the first, but it's it's an important one. I, I let them talk and let my clients talk for quite a while before I I ask that because I want to get my own sense of what it might be. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's a very important question to ask. What's your hot button? What's what your really hot sets button? you off? What? There's two ways of asking that question. Um, yeah, what's your least favorite situation to be in? Let's say you're in that situation and I had a video camera on you. What would I see in here? What would you do after your button is pushed? Do you get drunk? Do you punch somebody in the nose? Do you write a poem? Do you overeat? Do you withdraw into your room? Do you get irritable? What do you do? That question has, you know, it's a very, very powerful question. Because this is also associated with what might show up as illness in them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Homeopathy is is one-stop shopping. That is my entryway into somebody. You're not, you're not, it's funny how hard it is to get this, get this clear. There's the mind and the body are absolutely inseparable as far as this kind of work goes. Okay. Let's talk about one of the most common and ubiquitous conditions to humanity. And it's psycho-spiritual and it goes deep back, back, back. And that is the fear of abandonment. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about that, how would you approach that with a person? The fear oh, of abandonment. I wish you had given me another hour and a half. I take, I take the case of anybody. Take five or ten minutes. You've got time. Okay. Um, you know, it's, I've got a book coming out next year called The Emotional Causes of uh, Chronic Illness. Mm, um, wonderful. Homeopathy for Existential Stress. So abandonment would be one of those existential issues. You know, it doesn't just mean we're using that word a lot these days because of climate change. We say, oh, my God, we're all going to die. But existential actually means, you know, many, many more things psych- uh, psychologically. Um, so abandoned, if, if I was taking someone's case and, and this was coming up, that's not, that one word would not give me the remedy. I would actually want the person to tell me the story of their abandonment <laughs> and I'd find out whether they were or actually orphaned or if someone was just a completely unavailable parent right. or, um, was there a sibling who was responsible for them, who, who betrayed them? I mean, there's, there's so many Each parts one of that. creates a different kind of feeling. Or experience oh, those yeah. nuances. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd have to teach you homeopathy about it, but I'll give you some examples yeah. that of remedies that that talk about abandonment. If you needed a remedy like magnesium carbonicum or magnesium muriaticum, um, one flavor of abandonment there would be your parents would have been fighting all the time, fighting and at each other's throats, and that would have created a great sense of insecurity for you, and you would have become a peacemaker, right. a yeah. terrible, ter- and you'd have you'd be prone to big ups and downs. Part of that picture, you might become, as a result of that, or a reflection of that, um, have a problem with gluten and with dairy and be very, very up and down. That's the piece that would be someone who feels like they're an orphan. They might not have actually been an orphan. Um, so that's kind of under that very big umbrella of various forms of abandonment. Yeah. Now, the, the, the poster child for abandonment is a remedy called pulsatilla. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um Pulsatilla, and it's mostly for women, or if, if men needed it, it would be boys up to the age of 12. And that's a feeling of, oh, you know, really genuinely, oh, you don't love me. I mean, nobody, you know, you don't love me anymore. You know, you're not there. And so people who need that remedy, they cry at the drop of a hat. And they're also prone to sinus infection. But there's also things that, that are good about them that we, though we don't want to change them, but they actually are clues. Someone who needs pulsatilla will love to be outdoors. They will love fresh air. They'll have a very sympathetic quality. You don't want to change that, but you relate to that. You feel that as a homeopath with someone. Use your own feelings. You know, this person is very sympathetic. 
you know, they, they, their whole being cries out to me. You know, if someone has an annoying personality, we don't dismiss them, say, we, I don't want to treat you. We say, oh, that's my feeling here. I, I have to use that here. Why am I feeling that from this person? What are they projecting? Well, the post, okay, so the postotilla person is very sympathetic and very lovable and you just want to go give, give them a hug, you know. But this, this is a, a very stereotypical kind of a mm-hmm. picture. Homeopathy mm-hmm. has many. We're all cracks, in- as you say. All so. cracks. <laughs> but it's also, you know, what we now what I might call political incorrectness is that much of the time it comes up for blondes. You know, oh, it's not my choice. It just, yeah. it's a certain kind of a, kind of a of picture. Overly empathetic, fear of abandonment, yeah. all of this. Yeah. Other kinds of abandonment, yeah. abandonment remedies. Yeah. It's, I'll tell you this, what, this is really interesting in, in terms of, to me, existential issues, even for children. Okay. Cause I just came upon this the other day. There's a remedy whose, whose keynote is fear of falling forward, falling down. Mm. And it's a major remedy for children. Okay. It's called borax. Well, for a child, the feeling of being put down is an existential problem because it means separation from the mother. Uh-huh. So I have this one child who uh, uh, I had to give borax to the other day. Um, she's actually, uh, I think, 12 years old now. But this remedy, this state has come up. And when I talk, discussed it with her mother, we talked about how at birth, this particular child, right after birth, she had had a heart defect and she had to have surgery and, and she was tremendously congested. And whenever she was put down, she went, you know, you know, wailed and wailed and wailed. So the feeling of it's not just a, a mechanical thing being falling, falling forward. forward. When yeah. you deconstruct it or you, you do some excavation of it, you find it has its roots in a problem like being put down. So for a child, for an infant, being put down face down in the crib may mean, not for every child, but it may mean an existential crisis, like I'm, I'm going to be separated. Yeah. And, 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 and separation anxiety is part of that. That remedy does not come up very much for, for adults. Interesting. So, so you almost have to be a psychiatrist, a psychic, and all of this to be able, because what you're doing is almost getting kind of alchemical transformation in people. Yeah, I don't mind being called an alchemist. I don't mind at all. That's what it seems like to me. Because homeopaths have to have a very intimate understanding of these substances. So almost like saying, I know the consciousness of iron. I know the consciousness of aluminum. Because I know when people have been... um gone through a homeopathic proving where they've ingested that over a consistent period of time, what mental, emotional mindset is created. And frankly, this goes beyond what psychiatrists do. Far beyond. Far beyond that. Um, Yeah, I I don't mind being called an alchemist. Okay, so Paracelsus, you say that's kind of where it started, was an alchemist, was noted as being an alchemist. So this is is kind of baked into the cake of homeopathy if you're doing your job well. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's extremely psychological. It's, It's probably the deepest form of psychology that you can possibly encounter. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Okay, so now in the day, back in the day, let's go to the case of Mary Lincoln Todd because Mm -hmm. it's, or Mary Todd Lincoln. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely fascinating. She was in history. They don't treat her kindly. Basically saying she was bat, you know, crazy. Um, Let's talk about what was really, what was going on with her, what the symptoms were and what happened before and after her husband's uh, assassination and ultimately what helped cure her. Yeah, this is a... <laughs> because they did have these wonderful places back then. But this is a very complex story, but it, it's, I, I, it's I, fascinating. I think I figured something out about it. Um, poor Mary Todd Lincoln. Um, you know, she was from the South, so she was a pariah in Lincoln's, in Lincoln's mm-hmm. uh, White House. Be- just being from the South, her family had right. owned slaves. She lost uh, in-laws to this, in the Civil War. Um, she was, she had a serious head injury falling from a carriage. 
she was trolled by uh, William Danforth, who wrote these article upon article that uh, she was not Lincoln's first love. She oh, had a horrible time of it. And then, of course, losing two children and having her husband uh, murdered right next to her. She went quite nuts. And um, the accounts of that are, are very graphic. And they and her son, Robert Lincoln, uh, was worried about her. And he, he decided she needed to be um, treated, put someplace. And, and she resisted this. And so there was a trial, sensational trial, uh, of her sanity. Fourteen doctors testified. Um, there was absolutely no question that she was highly delusional. She had thought there were wires being pulled out of her eyes. She thought that uh, uh, the city of Chicago was burning down. Totally she lost thought she would. She, she was. Um, yeah. She was completely very delusional. very uh, delusional, upset. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she was uh, found in, incurably insane and. Um, a number of the doctors there on the panel, a number of them who were homeopaths, said, you know, let's send her over to, see, uh, to Richard Patterson. He's got an asylum, a little asylum in uh, Bellevue, uh, Illinois, called the Batavia Institute. Let's, let's send her to him. Now, what was curious about him? He was a moral care practitioner. Moral care is, is uh, a high-level hand-holding, being respectful, no, no, officially no no drugging at all. I mean, that's what moral care was. So history gives us two stories about Mary Todd Lincoln. One was, and they're both equally preposterous. One was, well, yeah, that report about her madness, that can't be right. She was really never crazy in the first place. That's impossible. The records speak for themselves. And the other one was, well, okay, yeah, she was uh, pretty upset and uh, she just needed some peace and quiet. And then these two lawyers, uh, you know, uh, got involved with her and they sprung her and that's what happened there. It, both accounts are, are ridiculous. Um, so I focused on what actually happened at the Batavia Institute with Richard Patterson, who was not officially a homeopath. Okay, officially, he was not officially a homeopath. You keep saying officially. <laughs> well, because people did declare themselves at that time. It was still a big paradigm bottle. The homeopaths are making all the money, by the way, and the regular doctors. Oh. Were, were, were annoyed by that. That's why the AMA was formed. Yeah, if I was living in that time, I might have uh, been, you know, pretty well wealthy. Interesting, because the tables have certainly reversed on that one. Yeah, and I think the the allopaths have said, well, I'm never going to let them eat our lunch again, and that's not never going to happen again. But anyway, so even the, these homeopaths, they said, go see Richard Richard Patterson. It was like wink, wink. They knew something. Now, Patterson, he was a shrewd character. He did not keep records. But it, what I did find out about him, he used the remedies, the medicines of a po- that were popular at that time, which is un- are unquestionably code for homeopathy. That's the closest they can come to admitting it. His uh, asylum, by the way, opened almost exactly the time that the Middletown Asylum opened mm-hmm. in Middletown, New York. This was homeopathy at its absolute zenith. Mm-hmm. And there was poaching across across the borders. Um, people wanted to help their clients, and they, they, would, they had control over how much of the of substance would be used. And uh, the allopaths were constantly using homeopathic uh, dosage remedies but not admitting it. Yeah. And Patterson, I think, was a perfect example of that. In any case... Within four months, Mary Todd Lincoln is sitting on his porch, writing letters to her friends, talking to his children, um, just perfectly fine. Not stark raving man Not stark anymore. raving. And then she was declared with these lawyers that declared perfectly sane. She had many problems, and I'm quite sure that, uh, among other things, that Richard Patterson would have detoxed her from chlor- chlorality at that time. And there are many remedies I can I can imagine that he, mm-hmm. you know, he could have used. But uh, it's a story that's not been told. I don't. You, you, I, I'll challenge anyone to show me a history of Mary Todd Lincoln where there's information about Richard Patterson. Right. Told. By the way, when I when I was researching this by by funny chance, my wife's a realtor, so she got a kick out of this. As I'm researching this, 
his Italianate mansion came on, <laughs> came on, came on the market oh. in Illinois. And I'm looking at, I got to look at it. It was beautiful. He was <laughs> quite well off. Yeah, he did well with his well with unofficial yeah. I remedies. Like to, I would like to have bought it. <laughs> so th- th- let's, let's talk about this. First of all, you've worked with people with autism. Now, this is something that's rising by the minute in numbers. You have worked with autism oh, and yes. homeopathics. Yes. Let's just talk about that for a moment because many of the people that are watching right now have people in their lives who are on the spectrum. Yeah, and I wrote a book called Autism Reversal Toolbox um, about uh, four four years ago, at which time I thought there was a pretty comprehensive uh, take on what you could use from the homeopathic world to address that problem. Because, again, it's psycho-spiritual. Spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. In its base. Yeah. And we also go into legacies. There are, there are things that go on with it. We don't, we didn't drop from, uh, as an apple from the tree, you know, right. completely independent of the tree. There are definitely legacies that would contribute to someone's susceptibility mm-hmm. to, uh, being born with that, with that propensity for becoming mm-hmm. autistic. Oh boy. Um, it's such a, an extensive intake. At that time I hired, I brought, I brought into my practice, um, a few uh, interns to help me to do the initial intakes on autism because we want to go into the legacies. We want to go into everything that happened at the time of, of the, of the, uh, during the pregnancy, mm-hmm. uh, the, during delivery. Um, so the drugs that the, the mother was on matter a lot. Um, the traumas that were going on at that time when you're in utero, they absolutely have an effect on, on, on the, on the, on, on the unborn child. And then of course, um, the the uh, vaccinations that have come up. So I've had physicians come to me say very frankly, uh, Jerry, this is my vaccine injured child. <laughs> they will tell me, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they would they would know. And it's, sometimes it's absolutely absolutely clear that after c- certain vaccinations, absolutely lost all speech, um, lost their vocabulary, lost eye contact. So we take all that stuff into consideration, and we create a, a game plan. Um, which is, uh, again, in, in this case, we can't, we can't do a single remedy and say sure. you're going to be perfectly yeah. fine. And also, if you say, well, homeopathy doesn't cure autism, absolutely not. Uh, in most cases, uh, we've had some really very, very good results. But for a family with an autistic child, if a child who could not make any eye contact suddenly is doing that, or they're suddenly asking questions when they never ask questions, or they, um, you know, they're, they're, Completely impossible behavior becomes much more manageable. These are enormous gains enormous for a family. Improvements, yeah. If a child goes completely insane when he sees a vacuum cleaner and suddenly it's okay. Yeah. These small changes that if you don't have an autistic child, mm-hmm. um, you wouldn't think are such a big deal for a family like that are yeah. a very big deal. So we work with these, these children for quite a, quite a long time. And, uh, in my book, I actually some case histories where they, the, um, the, the toxic influences were not that severe and I was able to get, uh, Cures. Yeah, yeah. The diagnosis originally on the spectrum, they were not on that anymore. Or they might want to retain it so they continue to get supportive services for themselves. Yeah, (laughs) I gotcha. I gotcha on that one. So we just have a couple minutes left. And right now, um, as I started the show, saying there are so many people who are losing their bearings, who just can't find their way anymore. And it can have, it can be from a variety of reasons, but we're just seeing more kind of anxiety rising. And within almost every family, we've got some of some kind of anxiety disorder. What's your recommendation from this alchemical, holistic point of view of where we begin and what we can do for ourselves to start kind of bringing ourselves back into an integrated state emotionally and mentally? Well, I would say find a good homeopath, someone who's been certified by the Council for Homeopathic Certification, 
or maybe the North American Society for Homeopaths and start entering into that um, that mindset. One of the things that is very liberating about working with a homeopath is that you begin to look at your illness very, very differently. It's not something that's random that came out, came out of the blue. Um, you know, maybe a mechanic would love to have his car break so he can have the pleasure of fixing it. When you when you enter into this world, um, you get very interested in how you got like that. And what remedies do on one level is very humble. It, it just increases your your perspective. You said things that were very bothersome or uh, obsessions or, you know, really constant anxieties. They kind of go into your rearview mirror and you say, what was that all about? So your, your gain of perspective is good in itself, but that also leads, that's really a deep part of your healing. So overcoming the fear of disease, which has, of course, tremendous economic value, if we're afraid all the time, we're going to be susceptible to every kind of campaign for every kind of crazy drug, every kind of vaccine. We're yeah. very, very susceptible. Um, it's great for the economy, but it is not good for us individually. Homeopathic remedies are not um, patented. Consider this. Regular drugs are patented, and someone has They're to cheap. recoup. They're cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someone has to recoup the enormous investment that was made to get them through the FDA. If you subtract that, what what do you have? You know, very affordable remedies. Yes, they're very affordable. But um, I, I, my goal in this lifetime is to get people to uh, to learn about them, to um, to reintroduce a, a hijacked history, so that people are not deluded um, and thinking that they have no choice. There is a choice, but we have to fight for homeopathy. We have to insist on it. I agree. This is something that um, you're not going to go to your HMO and have pointed out to you. That's right. So, well, thank you for your lifetime of work. And when your new book comes out about homeopathy and emotions. Yes. What's it called again? The Emotional Roots of Chronic Illness, Homeopathy for Existential Stress. And I can, uh, for, for most remedies that I use, explain the existential issue that's at the root of your particular illness at one particular time. That's wonderful. Yeah. I love it. We have to be up for some seren- forensics, though, and digging into our spiritual own Spiritual forensics. Okay. Spiritual forensics. Yes. Well, that's what you are, uh, an alchemist, uh, a spiritual forensic artist. <laughs> I'm good with that. Yeah, good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jerry, and we'll see you again when a new book comes out. Thank you very much, Regina. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I hope this has been helpful for you. You can pick up a copy of Jerry's book, Sane Asylums, at any major bookseller. You can go on to wholehealthnow.com also to learn more about how to approach mental and physical health in a kinder and gentler way with homeopathy. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. I thought that was wonderful. Although we know that Mary Todd... Uh, killed her own husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a while back we played that. Yeah, she did that. It wasn't the other guy. <laughs> no. no. So, but, um, nonetheless, I can understand why she was, um, mentally unstable. Uh, she mm-hmm. was a Rothschild, everybody. Mm-hmm. So you're between that uh, family heritage and, uh, yeah, insanity. <laughs> so anyway. Trying to find that story. You're that trying to find the story we're going to do next, Ron? Angels. Yeah, it's called Angelic Realms, Ron. Yeah, okay. And Mystical Experiences. This is uh, a host instructor. Oh. It's George Murray. 
and Michael Lichens, L-I-C-H-E-N-S, is the is the guest. <clears throat> how are stones of angels? Excuse me. How are stories of angels misunderstood? Sharing how each individual has different experiences with the supernatural. Editor and historian Michael J. Lichens offers insight into his research on the angelic realm, miracles, and mysticism. Hear stories of miraculous angelic interventions and explore the realities of guardian angels and archangels. And I just wanted to say that um, Penny was talking about uh, asking about <laughs> about uh, Leonara. She's twenty thousand years in the same body, and um, uh, Rama was just explaining that she's a master in a body, and that that commitment to staying here in the body um, has made an enormous difference in terms of our story of our background. And uh, Saint Germain's another one. I mean, he's 500 years in that body, and uh, he looks—he literally. I mean, Rama literally had a conversation with before he was taken out. Uh, Valerie Plate's husband, Joe Wilson. Mm-hmm. Way back in 2006, they were going up Old Canyon Road, and you know the. Uh, the, the men in black were behind in a RV, right? Uh, some kind a, of um, a Subaru. SUV. SUV. Subaru, yeah. Or yeah, whatever, whatever brand. All terrain vehicle. All black and men in black. <laughs> yep. And, and Joe just informed uh, Rama. Rama's sitting in the passenger seat in the front and and Joe was driving. He said, "These guys and they're going to hear everything we say, but that's not that's nothing new." And uh, so I'm going to just tell you that something like two million U.S. soldiers were killed in Iraq. Yes, not five thousand or whatever the number was. Mm-hmm. And I mean that is. That's just like the story we were saying that um, um, there's uh, half of the population of the United States are dead. And uh, we said this on the air, uh, on a conference call, but Rama asked Mr. X about it. And he said that they have been, for at least the last decade, they've been... Uh, putting replacements uh, in place <clears throat> and people don't know they're, that they're replacements and uh, which means they're a biotechnical operative, right? They are solid image holograms. Well, they have some biology in there, don't they? Yeah, some sort of... Some living. sort, yes. but it's mechanical. Yeah, they are part of the AI called the Matrix. 
I suppose they have a, uh, a program that decide, decides when they're going to die in a lot or something. I don't, don't know. <laughs> don't want to go but there. I'm just saying, talk about layers of darkness. But anyway, here's some layers of light. Yeah. Angelic realms and mystical experiences. George Nury. <clears throat> and this is 46 Minutes with Michael Lichens. Here we go. Here we go. describe the angelic realm is they are ones that exist outside of time and space are they testing us for some reason they are especially uh saint paul has this reminder to everyone to entertain strangers because sometimes people entertain angels unaware one of the great things about guardian angels is it shows we're not alone we're not just left here to exist and die what's an archangel they oversee specifically God's realm and protect it. A lot of people, when they encounter angels, especially when the angels appear in their full glory, are immediately afraid. Do they have messages for us, Michael? They do. What might they be? Of course, repent, flee from your sins, but also come return to God. They're asking you to come back. Welcome to Beyond Belief. Michael J. Lichens with us, a mysticism researcher with an MA degree from the University of Chicago Divinity School. Oh. Michael's work focuses on the very overlooked aspects of spiritual life. Michael, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me again, George. You, you did a great job on Coast to Coast for us. Thank you. I'm still getting emails from people. Uh, being on that show was like a dream come true. I was one of those nerdy kids who loved Art Bell growing up and, yeah. you know, you, when you took over. So it's been a dream come true. I'm glad it went well. How did you get involved in the aspect of mysticism? I got involved pretty much from an early age. I was raised in an evangelical household with a very ca Irish Catholic, American Irish Catholic Strict. grandma. Yes. So she would take me to mass all the time. And I love, I adored her. So I, of course, wanted to learn about her spirituality. And she, that whole side of the family, one of her daughters, my aunt, has psychic powers and things of that nature. So almost immediately, from the time I could talk and ask questions, I wanted to know more about that. And then my career in academia and editing just kept going in that direction. Well, uh, one of the great aspects of mysticism is angels. Yes. And the, the, the angelic realm is fascinating. What is it? best way to describe the angelic realm is they're still creatures much like us created by a creator but they are ones that exist outside of time and space so they're not bound like we are by the laws of physics or time or things of that nature but they exist in this eternal communion with god unless they're the fallen angels that they exist in eternal communion outside of god and that is where they exist for all of eternity having no place in physics or time why did they fall, some of them? Some of them fell, according to scriptures, because Lucifer became jealous of us humans. He was an angel. He was one of the highest angels, and often his very name means light, and he was thought to be one of the more beautiful ones. He, After 
according to scripture, after humans were created and we were endowed with a physical soul and creating God's image, jealousy overtook him. And he and one third of the angels rebelled against God before being cast into hell. Now, because it was God, yes. I have a feeling that he allowed this to happen. He allowed them to happen because as one of the great constants of God in most Western religions is that he allows our free will to go about. And even angels have free will. It's different from us because once they make a decision due to their eternal nature, sure. it's an eternal decision. But he re- he allowed it to happen. And this also allowed St. Michael, who we'll be talking about today, to show his warrior spirit and cast Lucifer down into the earth. Can we see angels, Michael? If they want us to see them, we absolutely can, and they do often show themselves to us. Do they walk among us? They can walk among us. Uh, scripture and mystics have reported that they will sometimes appear as just regular humans, the beggar, the guy knocking on your door asking for food. So they can appear human. They can also sometimes appear in their actual form, which is terrifying. Are they testing us for some reason? They are, especially uh, St. Paul has this reminder to everyone to entertain strangers because sometimes people entertain angels unaware. And that's a calling to the ancient Christian idea of hospitality that we give to people as much as we can. And so we do that knowing that they're strangers, but they very well might be angels. They say we're all assigned a guardian angel. Yes. Is that true? We are all each and every one of us assigned a guardian angel. Absolutely. Now, does the guardian angel have any say so in the matter? (laughs) I don't know specifically if it's like the job posting, but they still have their free will to do the will of God. So, yeah, they do have the the say in us, but I don't know if they have say in each specific person. Do we each have one guardian angel? We each have one guardian angel, but sometimes other angels can take an interest in us. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was this to- story of Tobit, who Raphael, the archangel, had befriended him uh-huh. while disguised as a human. Tell me some stories that you may have heard yeah. about people dealing with their guardian angels. Absolutely. So... One of my absolute favorites is Padre Pio, who Christian mystic extraordinaire of the 20th century. He had the stigmata. He had the stigmata. He would also get the other wounds of Christ on him. Exactly. Uh, He would frequently talk not just to his own guardian angel. He could commune with other guardian angels for other people. And whenever anyone asked him for prayer requests, he would often say, just tell your guardian angel to tell mine and they will tell me. And they'll take care of it. Yeah. And this was proven to him when, uh, a pilgrim was coming to see him and their bus had caught had their brakes went out on their bus and they were in an accident. Oh, so geez. this woman just prayed to her guardian angel, protect me and let Padre Pio know that I'm coming. I'm, but I need help. And Padre, the moment she arrived a few minutes late, Padre Pio immediately comes over to her and says, your guardian angel came to me and told me you were needing prayer. Were you in an accident? And this happened constantly in the confessional where before people could talk, he'd say, your angel already spoke to me or something like that. I had a call on Coast to Coast several years ago during my open line segment. Yeah. And the lady was telling me about her guardian angel. Mm. And she was in a car with her husband. And they were weaving in and out of traffic. And it was nighttime. And they pulled to the left to pass a truck. And as they did, guess what? A car was coming right at them oh on the other gosh. side. Right at him. And she's praying, oh, God, please help me. Oh, God, please help me. I guess when you pray to God, he sends the angels. (laughs) She said at that moment, 
when she started praying, the two cars merged and went through each other almost like ghosts. Oh my. <laughs> and one car went, one car went the other way and they went their way and nobody got her. Yeah. How did that, how does that happen? <laughs> Couldn't tell you the exact, but it's the miracles they can work again. They're not bound by physics like we are. They don't, they can change their appearance if they need to. They can move things and move through time. I've never heard of something quite that extraordinary. But, it's amazing. Ah, uh, the heart attack, I'm sure. that When you ask, I bet that person never asks, when does God answer prayers? Favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy yes. Stewart. Yes. And he was there ready to commit suicide. He was so despondent. And that's when they send the angel Clarence down to save him. <laughs> and he did. He did. And so they get involved in our life, don't they? They did. And what I loved about that depiction of guardian angels, he was responding not to just uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, but everyone, the whole town was praying for him because they knew he was in crisis. So in a way that Clarence was an answer to a prayer, hundreds of people were praying and had no idea how their prayer would be answered. Absolutely. Well, angels communicate with people in different ways. On Gaia's Open Minds, Belinda Womack describes mm -hmm. a way to contact the angelic realm. Fascinating. So they say it begins by saying, I need help. And that's the first thing. I need help and I surrender. Those two words, I surrender, make it so helpful for angels to step into our movies and to help us to change our reality because we are creating our lives. And so if we say, I surrender and help me, that allows these kind of awesome, wonderful executive producers to step in and to help us to change the movie we are dreaming, the movie we are writing. Exactly. And I am constantly amazed throughout my life when I say, hey, I need some help with this one. Um, or even if I don't ask, they know me well enough to know where I do. And the the degree of creativity to which they solve problems is mind-boggling to me all the time. It's like, I could have never come up with that as a solution. That is brilliant. It's far beyond anything that we would, uh, we would calculate on our own. But at the same time, we're not giving our power away. And they really make right. this as important, that they work through us, mm -hmm. through the concept of oneness, which again is challenging for the ego to understand because the ego thinks, hey, I'm it. I'm me and you're you and you're over there and I'm over here. But really, we are all one. We are so connected. And so when we just ask for help and we ask for help, whatever the problem is. Mm -hmm. right. and, and as you know, the more we ask, the easier it becomes because our egos are starting to realize there's help for me. Mm -hmm. There's help. And the more I ask, then that help shows up. And then the ego begins to be just like a scientist. We start to see the proof. Yes. The proof that we are helped. What's that old saying, Michael? Knock and the door will open? Yes. Uh, from the New Testament, Jesus says, knock and the door will open, ask and it will be given unto you. Much like what she just said. Exactly. And it's, uh, I love how she incorporates the angels because, uh, to paraphrase John Paul II, guardian angels are our personal patron saint. They're not just there to 
protect us from spiritual danger. They can help us in physical danger. But as a lot of saints, uh, Bernard de Clairvaux in particular noted that he often asked his angel to help him with studying, to help him with virtue, to resist temptation because they're there to protect us. But their ultimate goal is to see us through life and the life beyond death. That little voice, Michael, we all hear in our head. Could that be our guardian angels? It is often said that our guardian angels help us and prompt us. Most uh, theologians and exorcists don't believe angels are able to read our minds, but because these are ancient beings, they understand human intuition and human nature a lot better than we do. So it can look like they're reading our minds. They're not sitting there with a transcript of what we're thinking, but they can influence our thinking, our decision-making. Most powerfully, I think, uh, Odie Haumont, who's this wonderful French writer, wrote Encounters with Angels. She talks about like times when she would be going down a dark alley and would just feel someone kind of tug at her shoulder or something, say, hey, let's go this way. Don't go there. Exactly. (laughs) All I'm here today because I think I might have been saved by a guardian angel. I am approaching a four-lane intersection, and my light is green. So you go. Yeah. (laughs) I hear a voice in my head. Maybe it's the angel. And the voice says, don't go through the intersection. Don't go through the intersection. And it was so compelling. I had my green light. Cars are behind me. And I stopped right there and didn't go through. At that moment, Michael, had I gone through, somebody went through their red light. And they would have broadsided me. God knows what would have happened to me. Mm-hmm. But what was that voice that told me not to go through? Was it me? Am I the intuitive one? <laughs> or is it an angel tipping me off? I think it could be a combination of both. I think uh, you've been around a while. You definitely learned how to listen to your inner voice, listen to your instincts, those things that have kept the human race alive for hundreds of thousands of years. But, yeah, there are supernatural occurrences One of the great things about Guardian Angels is it shows we're not alone. We're not just left here to exist and die. Right. There's something that watches over us. And you, George, have a reason to live, which is why we couldn't have lose you in that intersection. Interesting. What's an archangel? An archangel is one of the higher angels. They oversee specifically God's realm and protect it. They are oftentimes like we get Guardian Angels. Guardian Angels can be assigned to countries as well. For example, at Fatima, one of the archangels who many believe was also Gabriel identified himself as the angel of Portugal, meaning that he was overseeing the entire nation of Portugal. It was his assignment. It was his assignment to look over it. And so archangels are almost the commanders, if you think of it, over God's armies on Earth. They can also, they often play major roles in human affairs, most famously Gregory the Great, Pope of Rome in the 6th century. A massive plague had moved through the Mediterranean, and it was hitting Rome really hard. And so he prayed and did a procession to make the plague go away. And one day he and a bunch of onlookers looked up in what's now called Castel San Angelo. Okay. And it was called that because what did they see on top of this ancient castle was the Archangel Michael showing a sword and then taking a sword and putting it back in its sheath, signifying wow. to everyone that the plague was going to be lifted. We'll talk about Michael's sword in a moment yes. because that's fascinating. So the archangels in the pecking order of things mm-hmm. are a little higher than angels? Yes, they are. They're all made with the same dignity and grace. 
but they have different assignments. As you go further up, they're closer to God's throne where you get into the thrones, the dominions, the seraphim and the cherubim whose entire work is surrounding God. Do they have more angelic powers than regular angels? They seem to have equal powers and are made in equal dignity, but they have greater assignments and also can take on a more terrifying appearance. That's where like the Old Testament describes like the cherubim are six wing, many eyed right. and terrifying looking from description. Can an archangel be a guardian angel? They've shown up in the Old Testament. I mentioned Tobit and Raphael. Uh, Raphael was taking, he appeared as a human to Tobit and his son Tobias and was just helping them through this period where Tobias was looking for a wife. And then only towards the end, he reveals that I'm Raphael, one of the archangels who surrounds God's throne. And he was assigned in many ways. It sounded like a love story, but he was also assigned specifically to look after Tobit. Right. Tell me an archangel story. I mean, what is, what is their role? Their role, probably the most famous, uh, when we get around to Christmas, we'll hear the words of the archangel to, it was Gabriel to Mary, to tell her that she would give birth to the son. Uh, and that, and he appears many times uh, in different connections. He appeared, of course, to the children of Fatima, along with the archangel Michael, and then Many, many Irish saints, particularly off of uh, the coast of Ireland at Skellig Michael, many monks had encountered the archangel at that very space, which is interesting because there weren't a lot of people in that area. There's a religious song called Ave. Yes. And it includes cherubim. Mm -hmm. What is a cherubim? The cherubim are the ones who surround God's throne and their job is basically to sing the praise and glory of God. When they encounter us, they're usually, are they the little things we see hovering around? No, they are. That's how a lot of artists depict them because little tiny wings, yeah, little tiny winged babies flying around in the old Testament. They sound almost like ancient horror terrors, which is why one of my favorite things about biblical angels is they always start with be not afraid do not fear us, which is, which I remember reading like, why, why were people so terrified? Then when you find out the descriptions of angels and also all that power and light that's suddenly in front of you, it's easy for humans to fall into terror of them, but that they're at least the ones sent by God are there to help us. Do some people fear angels, Michael? Yes. And I think a, a little fear is healthy. You know, I'm not a I don't think I'm going to get attacked by a bear every day, but when I see a bear in the wild, of course, I get that internal sense. It's saying, okay, careful, that's fight or flight. Yeah, and it's something that has the power to swipe my head off. Angels are far more powerful. They have patience. They have everything they need to take us down. So a lot of people, when they encounter angels, especially when the angels appear in their full glory, are immediately afraid. I recall one patient who encountered an angel while his father was on his deathbed. And when he saw the angelic being, his father was at peace. He himself was filled with terror and he wanted to run from the room, but also what's going on. Now you said that Lucifer was an angel. Yes. Was he an archangel? He was an archangel. So he was one of the higher angels. The other angels were various different powers. Uh, some think that Beelzebub might've been of Seraph. It's hard to tell, but the, he was indeed one of the highest angels. Like I said, his very name means light. So sometimes he's even called the light bringer in the old stories. Can you pray to an angel? 
You can absolutely pray to an angel. Their goal is not so much to act as gods, but to act as intermediaries between God and man or to act as messengers. But uh, your guardian angel is a great person to pray to, to say, uh, probably for me, what I've learned from reading is that the best thing you can say to your guardian angel is simple gratitude. Thank you. Absolutely. Now on Gaia's Ascension Keepers, our friend William Henry discusses archangels, the seraphim, and cherubim, Mm -hmm. as you've been talking about. According to this system, the watchers are the highest angels possible and were ruled over by four of their own. The great angels known as Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Ariel. These are among the good watchers we will discuss as is Metatron, who is actually the transformed human, Enoch. The Watchers are the mighty Seraphim, the winged and fiery serpents as they were known, the burning ones who formerly guarded the gate to Eden. They came from God's throne where they served on God's divine council, but they decided to leave. They crossed a forbidden boundary and took on earthly bodies. In Christian art, the seraphim are portrayed as six-winged and covered with feathers and eyes, an appropriate attribute of those who watch or guard God's throne. Their swirling bodies are toroidal. They are composed of pure love and pure light. In his famous vision, Isaiah saw the seraphim enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of Solomon's temple. They stood above Yahweh as he sat on his Ark throne. They are believed to be the same as the cherubim of 1 Chronicles, whose wings were stretched above the Ark of the Covenant. The root of seraphim comes either from the Hebrew verb seraph, to burn, or the Hebrew noun seraph, meaning a fiery, flying serpent. For so many different cultures Mm -hmm. have illustrated these angels and cherubims and seraphims, it's got to tell you something was happening. Absolutely, especially when you look into the, you know, all the Abrahamic faiths that came from the desert, they not only had angels, of course, but they also would talk about demons and other creatures of the night. It's in some ways it takes the terror that we just naturally feel as humans of, you know, in this big chaotic universe and they bring order to it. They help us to see not beyond just the eat and live parts of life, but to see that there's something greater and bigger than us. Are the angels still under the realm of God? They, the angels that stayed with God after the rebellion are still under the realm of God. They still operate under God's will, and they still uh, seek to enact his will. Are they the messengers of deception, or are they the messengers of grand things to do? They're the messengers of grand things, even if they don't seem so grand in our view of things. They are the messengers that help the human race get back on the right path. But there are, of course, the fallen angels who can deceive us. What is the Metatron? Metatron is the voice of God incarnate. So when God needed to speak to, say, Adam and Eve, it's thought it's some mysticism that he would send Metatron, who would act as the voice of God, 
whose very voice could shatter a person's mind. And so there was another messenger between God and man. Interesting. It it is fascinating, is it not? It's very fascinating. It's interesting because we know that God, and at least my spiritual tradition, we know God uses humans often to fulfill his will. It's so fascinating to think about there's a realm beyond and something that we can't even comprehend that's doing exactly what we're doing. Michael, you talked about the sword of St. Michael. Yes. First of all, explain St. Michael. So St. Michael is probably the most famous of archangels. Can't tell by my first name. I really like the guy. He is the one that had cast Lucifer out during the rebellion and actually slew him with a sword before casting him down into the earth. From there, he has been known to be a protector, a fighter. He's the patron saint of soldiers and warriors. And he has appeared throughout human history in the strangest of places. We mentioned Rome to talk about the plague. He's also appeared to different mystics and uh, people who had seen Mary. He will often be the forerunner before people will have Marian visions, basically to let people know, prepare, be ready for this to happen. And so he's, well, he's the warrior saint and, you know, the archetype of a Christian warrior He's also the messenger still, so he still fulfills that angelic function. There is a piece that I run during Christmas on the radio show Mm -hmm. that was done by a great broadcaster by the name of Lee Allen. Yeah. And it is called A Letter to Michael. And it depicts a soldier writing back to his mother about the Korean War. And how he was about ready to get killed when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Michael appears with his sword mm-hmm. and protects him from the enemy. It was, it's, it's an amazing depiction on many things you've just illustrated. Yeah, and it's interesting. A couple soldiers have had visions of St. Michael. One of the most famous, uh, there's called the Angel of Belgium. That many soldiers thought was Michael, but it was during World War One when British had to flee Belgium while the Germans advanced. And at this time, there was a lot of crimes against humanity happening in Belgium. We're talking crucifixions, like deep crimes against Horrible. humanity. And while the soldiers were fleeing, they weren't sure they were going to flee in time. Thousands, I'm not talking about just a couple dozen, thousands of soldiers saw an angel appear at the German lines holding back the Germans. It was Michael. It was Michael, sword unsheathed, helping people flee and evacuate. Is Michael the only angel that deals with protection? All the angels deal with protection. He seems to have a particular love of soldiers, though, especially the low, the boots on the ground that are in the field. A couple other encounters happened in World War One, where soldiers wrote back that they saw St. Michael warning them to flee or telling them to get down minutes before the bombs started falling. So he takes an interest in the low-level soldiers, it seems. There are various areas around the country that Michael has been seen. Yes. You've got a little depiction on the spots. Yes. He's all over the place. He's all over the place. So this is what's called the Sword of St. Michael, and it runs in this straight line. This has only been discovered in the last hundred years that people noticed all these monasteries associated with St. Michael ran in a straight line. And what's even more fascinating, this uh, follows the summer equinox. So he, it's actually huh. aligning with the stars. 
Michael is seasonal. (laughs) (laughs) He at least keeps an eye on the sky for us. And you can see that like right across the two St. Michael's Monastery, one in Cornwall and one in Normandy. Those were two mountain uh, tidal mountains that you can't access them when the tide is high. And St. Michael appeared on each spot. So, of course, they built a massive monastery to him. And as you get further down, down there in southern Italy is also where St. Michael appeared to a group of soldiers uh, right before the Saracens invaded. He basically showed to the small village, warned them they were about to be invaded and to fortify their place and they survived the invasion. Michael, what does St. Michael look like? That's a tough question. (laughs) Angels, uh, they don't have physical bodies like us, so they can often appear as humans however they like, but in almost all accounts of him, he is shown to be a warrior with a sword, depending on what is he the only archangel that is doing that he's the only archangel i'm aware of that appears to humans with a sword like as if to make sure we understand what he is the sword itself what's its reasoning behind that the sword is sacred in a lot of ways because it was the weapon that defeated satan so in a lot of spirituality we like to say that you know we want to be cloaked protected by the sword of saint michael the one that slew demons and by that weapon itself it's taken on a lot of meaning throughout christian mysticism which is why when he announced saint gregory the plague was leaving he was sheathing the sword as if god's wrath was suddenly going to go away uh anytime he's depicted as as holding the sword in his hands that means battle is about to happen either spiritual or physical do other events occur when saint michael is been witnessed like natural tragedies or anything like yeah, that i have mentioned a particularly invasions but he has often appeared to mystics whenever there's been a plague i don't know if he ever appeared before COVID or anything like that but in ancient times uh many people would see him warning of a plague warning that this was going to happen and that's because in the medieval understanding plagues was part of god's wrath to correct us interesting how about the other archangels? Do yeah. they have similar traits as Michael, or is he the one? He's the most popular, the most famous. You can find altars of St. Michael just about anywhere. Uh, he got especially famous in the 19th century when Pope Leo XIII had a vision of St. Michael and the devil in an argument, and that's why he promoted the St. Michael prayer, which many Catholics Remember praying after Mass, you know, St. Michael the Archangel, protect us in battle, be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. And that was prayed by thousands of Catholics every Sunday for years. Well, we've heard depictions of Michael. I mentioned the one in Korea. Yes. Are there any boundaries to this Archangel? Are there places it will not go? As far as I'm aware, they'll go just about anywhere, talk to anyone. They are bound only by God's will. So, so long as it's not a, I can't imagine that any of us would have the power to keep an angel out, even if we wanted to, but, uh, he, they of course do not appear in hell. The only time a, a being appeared in hell was Christ after his crucifixion, right. but otherwise they don't go. That's not their realm. That is another realm they do not go into. Does Michael the Archangel appear when you ask for him, or does it appear on its own? He will appear completely on his own. They 
are able to act in their wills, fulfilling God's will, but they will often appear when we do ask for them, whether we can see them or not. So I do believe that each time every one of us prays, say the Archangel Michael prayer, we are calling on him and he is looking out for us. Tell us about sacred sites, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most interesting sacred sites, especially associated with St. Michael, is for me, Skellig Michael, which was set up by monks on the west side of Ireland. Uh, if anyone remembers the latest Star Wars movies, that's where Luke Skywalker was hanging out exactly. on Skellig Michael. Exactly. Uh, for the medieval person, that was the edge of the world. You could not go further west if you wanted to. So it was at the very edge of civilization. And it was a perfect place for Irish monks to set up to do their translations. But they had a particular devotion to the Archangel Michael, who was said to appear to the first monks. And that is at the very tip of the Sword of St. Michael, running down to Jerusalem. Our colleague Freddie Silva appeared on Gaia's Open Minds about mm-hmm. these sacred sites that apparently are awakening humans all over the place. This is really about human awakening. All of these sites are about awakening our own consciousness and coming to know ourselves. Is that Oh, right? absolutely. Uh, if you go to any of the temples around the world, and particularly the ones in Egypt, uh, the ones in southern India, uh, who are still very much intact. They still have a lot of their texts written on the walls. And uh, once we sat down to decipher what the text is saying, it's quite clear that all of them are in agreement. Uh, there's one in a Temple of Edfu, for example, that talks about how the temple is built to transform the person into a god, into a bright star, which yes. is not a bad reason to go there in the first place. Uh, and other temples talk about how these are transmutation points of the soul where heaven connects with earth, uh, where the temple is a kind of living intermediary between the physical human and everything else that's in the cosmos. So in a way, it almost reminding you that uh, whenever you lose the plot, and we do this regularly all the time these days, mm-hmm. uh, you, the ancestors who built these temples uh, left us the instructions of where to go, certain hotspots on the face of the earth, where we can go and basically tune into the rest of the universe and find out how things really are, get to know ourselves, get to know the purpose of our soul. And by doing that in this kind of quasi-shamanic environment, um, then you are able to more or less live your life with a certain degree of self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. And when you have that degree of uh, self-awareness in your life, no one or anything can tell you what to do, uh, which is not a bad way to live your life. No, it's not. And and that has been dampened, some can say, by intent. It's not an accident that these edifices have been destroyed um, over the last few thousand years in particular. Um, mm-hmm. There has been a great detriment, but... The reality is, as we're going to get into, these places are built on sacred spots that even if the dwelling should fall down, if you knew where to go, they have the same effect on us, right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, they're all harnessed with uh, natural laws. And uh, today we have the mechanism to understand what the natural laws they were, they were harnessing. Michael, do all religions deal with angels? The Abrahamic faiths do. When you get into other religions, you'll have intermediaries, messengers that look, from my very layman understanding, sound like angels to me. Like Hermes is a good example. Like he's the god that talks to the other gods on behalf of us. It starts to sound very angelic when you get down to it. And uh, uh, many places where St. Michael had sacred sites built to him were previously temples to Apollo. So it's almost as if, you know, he came through and revealed, I'm the actual Apollo. 
but we're still building on his temple. It was a sacred site before Christianity. Long after Christianity, it probably continued to be a sacred site. Are these sites dedicated to anything specific? Usually an appearance or an event that happened. Uh, many pilgrims go to Fatima or Lourdes because that's where the Virgin Mary and other characters Up appeared. Here. Yeah. And Lourdes is uh, a fascinating place all yes. by itself, isn't it? People still – I have a friend of mine. Uh, I get goosebumps when I think of him. He was the father of my friend Danny. Went to Lourdes after dealing with – trying to remember. I believe it was colon cancer. Oh, but God. healed. Like he's still alive healed? with us. Did healed. he jump in the water? He, he did bathe in the water, and he also attended mass and did some fasting. He wasn't sure anything would happen, but weeks later, the doctor's like, everything's in remission. You're fine. How do you feel about people who do not believe? They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in a higher power. It's their prerogative. Yeah. And but what do you think? What are I, they missing in their life? Oh, I think some skepticism is always a little healthy. But I think with a lot of people, it's because it's hard to get outside of the hustle and bustle of every day. You know, we have our lives are determined by the clock and the people who are running the clock. So it's easy to get caught up in the imminent without thinking about the mystical because we live and die by it. And what I would, what I often want to stress to people is I don't believe in angels or the greater powers because I want a child's story. It's because I want to know, I know in my deepest heart that there is something bigger than us. There's something there. There's no doubt about it. Do you find the angels appear more during years and moments of strife based off the history and especially the mysticism like the hundreds of encounters people had with angels and also saints and ghosts during world war one is insane uh the guardian ran a piece about how many people encountered ghosts or angels during uh the western front and you think yeah that's probably the time we need them the most you know when we can't rely just on our own understanding we really need them and I think that's when they deliver greatly. What does prayer mean to you, Michael? Prayer to me is communication, but it, more than that, it's opening yourself up to God in his will to say to him, whatever it is you need of me, whatever it is you want of me, I want to do it, even if I can't see the bigger picture, because you can see the bigger picture. And that's what I want to be part of. And so when we pray to God or even ask his angels for assistance, we're opening ourselves up to a lot more possibility. Have you ever had an angelic experience? I have not. My grandmother did. My grandmother swears up and down that she was saved from walking into incoming traffic by an angel because she thought pushed her aside, grabbed her shoulders, pulled her back, and there was no one around her. But she felt that. She she felt felt that. She she looked behind herself to say, thank you. I really appreciate it. And there was no one there to thank. Wow. So she had to instead say thank you in prayer, which was one of the things she taught me was always be thankful for your guardian angel because you don't know how many times they saved you. Are the angels working on their own? They can. Or is it all through God? It's all through God. They do have some free will, but they are working through God's will. And will generally not go against his will. I keep thinking of that Nicolas Cage movie, oh, City of Angels. I love that movie. And that kind of depicts him as a human being, but an angel. Yeah. Are they really out there like that? <laughs> That's an interesting uh, depiction of angels 
what I liked about it was that the angels had no more understanding of God than we did, but they were still fulfilling God's will. I don't have any, it's a great artistic device, but I don't know of any mystic who has ever said that angels are just wandering the library asking the same questions. We heard stories about St. Michael yes. getting involved in events. How often is that happening? It's hard to tell because many times I, many times angels can appear to us completely and we're completely unaware. Uh, saints going back to the Old Testament have talked about they had no idea they encountered an angel till much later. Uh, so who knows how often there's a good chance that somebody who gave you helpful advice or lifted your spirits one day was just an angel in disguise. Do they have messages for us, Michael? They do. What might they be? Uh, the messages are often, depending on the person and place, they are often a similar message, which is, of course, repent, flee from your sins, but also come return to God. They're asking you to come back because uh, many of us need that wake-up call often in our lives. Their messages are also of hope. That this life, whatever travails we're having, whatever world wars, diseases, famines, right. there is still hope for us. And again, their very existence shows we're not left alone. We're not an accident. We are here for a purpose. Can you channel an angel? <laughs> I don't know. Many people have tried. I don't know of any successful ones. I don't want to be too close-minded, but angels will often talk through people, deliver messages for others. Padre Pio would often tell people what their guardian angel was trying to tell them, but they just couldn't hear for whatever reason. And he received those messages frequently. Who is Theo? Theo is the name of God in Latin. And there's also a collectiveness of archangels under that yeah. umbrella. Mm -hmm. And they are... That is the higher angels, what we were talking about in a previous video. Those are the thrones, the watchers, you might call them, who are overseeing. They are closest to God. They literally surround him at all times. So they know God better than any of us. Sheila Gillette channels Theo. Oh. So are yes. you ready to say goodbye to us and let Theo come through? Yes. Okay. I'll see you later. Okay. Here we see go. You. <laughs> It is the beginning, is it not? It is. Welcome, Theo. We are appreciative of the opportunity to be of service unto you. You may ask. Well, Theo, it's uh, we would like to open it up for you to choose who you wish to speak to. Unless, well, no, you know what? First, why don't you give us your perspective on soul integration? We just heard a little bit from Marcus and Sheila on that. And just kind of introduce the subject a bit to our viewers before we go to the questions. Soul integration is coming into the wholeness of your being. The recognition of the divine essence that you are the master that you are, this fifth dimensionary energy is fully about the planet now. Never before have human beings been available to recognize their masterhood. The fifth dimensionary energy is a place of refined vibration that allows each individual to recognize the divine essence, the master, and express that in their daily lives. The third dimension 
being physical reality. The fourth was a spiritual awakening. And now, as science speaks about as well, is the fifth dimensional waves, if you would, on a higher frequency level of recognition. So it is a release of beliefs, of old paradigms that no longer work any longer, that allows for this transmutation, if you would, this homecoming into the alignment of wholeness or holiness, divinity expressed fully, unencumbered from the past. What do you think of Sheila Gillette? <laughs> That's fascinating. I've, I knew of several Renaissance and medieval people who tried to channel angels. I didn't know it was still happening in modern times. It's fascinating. You sound like you might have the ability to do it yourself. I don't, I don't think so. My family has many uh, weird abilities when talking, when observing and seeing ghosts. I have not seen an angel though or encountered one. Do you want to? I do, but I do and I don't. I do on the one hand because I would love to have that affirmation and that, you know, just that proof for my own eyes. On the other hand, I don't want to see an angel because they often have to give you work. They often are assigning you something, and all I could think is if an angel's coming to me, they're really desperate. I'll tell you an interesting story. My mother was uh, raised in the Boston area, Uh and her parents owned a series of apartment complexes over a furniture store that they owned. Uh And they had four apartments all adjoining that they lived in. Mm -hmm. And we'd go there every summer. Well, one night we got woken up by a fireman with a mask on at like three in the morning, smoke engulfing the apartment. And he woke everybody up and got us all out. There was a picture of me in the Fitchburg, Massachusetts Gazette running across the street in my little pajamas. I must have been seven or eight years old. But this angel, whatever it might have been, saved us. Well, my father went up to the fire department after the fact because mm-hmm. smoke was billowing outside sure. and said, we want to thank that fireman who was in there. And they said, we haven't gotten in there yet. Oh my God. Wow. Who was he? That's oh intense. Uh, I can't believe I'm returning to his name for this story, but St. Michael is the patron of firefighters. Really? He is. A lot of firefighters, especially in the Boston area, will wear a St. Michael's medallion on Interesting. them. Uh, so he's... He I'm looks, convinced it was an angel that saved I, us. I am too, if I'm honest. Because they said they never went up there. They hadn't yes. been up there at that point. <laughs> so an angel was looking out for you and your family, and they did it as they often do in disguise because they don't necessarily need our gratitude, but that's insane. Michael, give out your website. Uh, you can find me at mlitchens, looks like mlikens.com. Michael, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. This was a joy to share. The man upstairs sends angels down to protect us. Thank God he continues to do that. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Oh, my goodness. Okay, now this is called From Ancient ETs to Urban Legends. Okay. Um, this is Andrew Collins. 
he's both the host and the guest. Mm. What evidence? What evidence and accounts do we have exposing ETs on Earth? Researcher and author Andrew Collins presents his decades of research, ranging from the Mothman prophecies mm-hmm. to UAPs, unidentified, uh, un, un, uh, what is that con- again? Un, un, unidentified aerial phenomena. phenomena, UFOs and ETs. And we're not talking about balloons, thank you very much. <laughs> um, learn how evidence is mounting. Um, that non-terrestrial phenomena has been taking place on Earth for centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if not thousands or millions of years. Yep. All right, this is an hour and four minutes. Let's start, Rama. Okay. Okay, it is afternoon, so good afternoon, everybody. Everybody having a good time so far? Yeah? Okay, excellent. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, clearly. I mean, I could go on for 12 hours, but we won't, or we're going for one. Um, There are some basics, really, which we need to address. I mean, this is all about UFOs and aliens and ancient civilizations, but how does the whole thing fit together? I mean, we, we, we heard Paul Sinclair's wonderful lecture earlier on all about cryptids around Benton and the strange lights and the weird paranormal experiences. And some of you must have been saying, well, how, how does this all fit together? How, how, what is, what's going on here? And what I want to try and do by the end of this lecture is at least give you an idea of what is really happening in this world. So, so right, okay, that's uh, the name of uh, my book, Origins of the Gods. Um, and let's look at a picture of a UFO. Now, 1947 was obviously the time when the modern UFO enigma began. Um, you obviously had Roswell that year. You had uh, key sightings. Kenneth Arnold sees nine flying objects over Mount Rainier in Washington State. And I got into this subject a good few years ago, far too long ago, almost in a past life now. But um, and, um, and and I thought every UFO was a spaceship, nuts and bolts spaceship. I thought that the, the smaller ones were scout craft, the bigger ones were motherships, and the little tiny ones, the balls of light, were probes sent out to you know to to, to, to watch humanity, and that was that. I mean that that's what I believed, and I believed that all aliens were flesh and blood. That they came down here from another planet, another star system. They were interested in us and that contact would soon take place. You know, we obviously watched, um, you know, Close Encounters, the third kind, all the rest of it. You think someday that's going to happen. But as I went on, I started 
to realise that something was wrong. Now, I'm not going to be dissing anything which we've, we've been talking about here to do with aliens or, or UFOs being spaceships. That's not what I'm trying to do. But what I'm going to tell you is that something else, possibly even bigger, is going on in the background. Because the first indication to me that, that, that something else was happening is that there were a number of witnesses. I mean, I, I investigated hundreds of cases um, of UFOs all over Britain. And I started to realise that various people were interacting with the phenomena when they were seeing it. In other words, they were seeing, a, you know, strange balls of light like the ones you can see up on the, strip, on the screen. And these objects were responding to them. You know, that they were focusing their mind on them and, and they were responding in some way. Or they could stop, they'd come closer. The people felt that there was a connection between them and the phenomena. Like there was a communion going on. And you think, well, hold on. You know, if, if these, these UFOs are spaceships, well, why would that happen? Why would that happen? I mean, if, if you watch a, a helicopter go over and you look at it, it doesn't stop and, you know, and, and start responding to you unless the pilots see you or something, or something like that. So I thought, I actually realised something else was going on, that there was a relationship between what we call human consciousness and the UFO phenomena. And then I started reading books by people that were thinking differently, thinking outside of the box to do with UFOs. People like John Keel, who you can see her up on the screen, that's me when I used to have hair before it, before it all fell off. <laughs> and that's me you know, at a conference having a little chat about things. Now, obviously he... He's, he's done incredible books, no longer with us, obviously, like The Mothman Prophecies, Strange Creatures of Time and Space, Operation Trojan Horse. And these give a different perspective of the UFO phenomena. They show how weird it is and how it relates to the human mind and that it almost responds to us. Uh, other authors like Jacques Vallée as well, um, books like Passport to Magonia, showed that the UFO phenomena is a part of something that's been around and for not just, you know, a few decades, but hundreds, if not thousands of years. So if that's the case, have the aliens been waiting around, you know, waiting for the right time to contact for thousands of years? Or is there something else going on in the background? And then I read these two books. Well, provisionally the second one, Earth Lights, but eventually the first one, which was Space Time Transients, uh, another unusual phenomenon by uh, Michael Persinger and Ghislaine Lafreniere. I mean, Persinger is a neuroscientist, again, no longer with us. And Paul Devereaux uh, was at the Times, was in the 80s, uh, was the author of, of um, not the author, the, the editor of the Layhunter magazine. And uh, again, what they did with these books is to show that a whole range of phenomena seems to take place at certain locations that location, location, location was very, very important to do with UFO events and that other types of phenomena would take place, including, this is what um, Michael Persinger writes in this book that came out in 1977 originally, um, that cryptids are associated with the same locations where mysterious lights are actually seen and it's all part of a bigger single phenomena. So he was really the first person, I would say, that, that made that link. And obviously, as we say, you know, Paul was telling us all about this in his lecture earlier on. So why is location important to do with UFOs? 
folks. Well, people began to realise that there was a connection with certain locations as far back as the mid-1950s. Um, the French UFO researcher Amy Michel, uh, he did a book called uh, Flying Saucers and the Straight Line Mystery, realised that there were certain locations where the, the objects would seem to either manifest more regularly than anywhere else and that they would seem to keep to certain lines, as if, almost as if they were like roadways, invisible roadways that the UFOs would take. Well, what Paul Devereaux added to this and Michael Persinger is that these locations where these objects take place often have the same type of geology. And that geology generally involves specific things. It's the coming together of plates underneath the earth that put a hell of a lot of pressure on the rocks, creating what are known as fault lines, faults, um, faulting systems that, that where, where the rocks smash together, but they're still like these fractures, the incredible pressure is occurring all the time. Combined with this, to certain types of minerals and rocks, particularly the mineral quartz, but also tourmaline, that's much overlooked, um, were often found where UFOs repeatedly occur. And you say, well, why is that? Well, the thing about quartz in particular, but also tourmaline, is that when they're put under pressure, they create electricity. They create the flow of subatomic particles known as electrons. And you think, well, hold on, what's that got to do with UFOs? Well, this is happening all the time. And when these rocks are put under pressure, particularly just before earthquakes, for instance, they generate massive amounts of these, these freed-up electrons which come from the, the atoms. They rise to the surface. They go into the local environment and this creates the perfect environment for the manifestation of UFOs. So suddenly, boom, objects will suddenly appear out of, of thin air. And, you know, you get this idea that, that UFOs sort of are, are out there somewhere. Come down here. They go back. No, most UFOs appear quite close to the ground. I mean, some obviously are up in the sky, obviously, no problems at all. But it's place that seems to be important. There are certain locations, and those locations, as you'll get to hear, we call today portals or vortex sites. Uh, in the past, in the 60s, they were known as window areas. And these portals are key to understanding this phenomena and the intelligences associated with them. And the reason why electrons are so important, and these are also known as negative ions as well. And I mean, there are lots of them. I mean, I can't even give you a figure. I mean, they just they just create the certain environment um, that's necessary for something called ionization to take place. Now, what this is, is that the electrons, once they are freed up, get very excited, literally. And when they get really excited, they not only generate electromagnetic fields, but they also produce light tiny particles of light which are called photons and as all this is happening they surround themselves with self-generated magnetic fields and suddenly bang an object is in front of you so what is what's going on here well it this manifestation of this this ionization process is known as plasma and plasma although you'll see dismissed as simply ionized gas it's not 
that that's that mm. that really does it an injustice. Cash what water. plasma is is known as the false state of matter. We'll know about solid stuff. You know, we'll know about liquids. We'll know about the gas that surrounds us, that that we live in, the air, everything. But there's a higher state of matter, and that's known as plasma. So what the hell is plasma? Well, plasma is essentially light, essentially bursts of light, something that can uh, appear just as a quick flash in a few nanoseconds, or it can stay around for a sustained period of time, be it it minutes, hours, you know, and it can reappear, come back again. Um, And plasma makes up probably as much as 99% of the actual universe. I mean, the physical matter that we know and love here is actually a very small proportion of the universe. Most of the universe is plasma, okay? I mean, the sun generates plasma. That's why, why it generates the heat radiation that, that keeps us warm, keeps us alive. Solar flares plasma, coronal mass injections, um, uh, which sometimes come out the sun, they're plasma. Neutron stars, black holes, lightning is plasma. All of this is plasma, basically. Um, And the important thing about plasma is that when it manifests, it can manifest as objects. Objects that can be tiny, they can be huge, they can be different colours, they can be quite solid, they can be seen on radar, they can be invisible as well. Um, But there's no question that most UFOs are either lights, objects of light, or clusters of lights, um, and that for the most part, this is what people see. Now, sometimes they will transform into something else, but usually UFO encounters, UFO sightings start with light phenomena, essentially, and it can account for quite a large percentage of UFO sightings. Now, you might think, well, hold on, you know, haven't UFOs got nuts and bolts in them? We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. I'm just saying what's going on in the background here. The other thing is that because they generate electromagnetic fields, if you get too close to a manifesting plasma, um, it's going to affect your brain. It's going to affect your bodily system. It's going to affect uh, cars. It's going to stop cars. It's going to affect electrical apparatus, your smartphone, anything. The, The very intense electromagnetic fields will do all that and we talked about Michael Persinger the, the book that he did Space Times Transient he did hundreds of papers most of which have, you know, people just don't know about about the effects of electromagnetic fields on the human brain and how they create otherworldly experiences the sense of contact with other realms and the sense of communication with intelligences intelligences that he firmly believed it were real so we're not just talking about something that's going on in the head and this is what plasma does but more important than this is that it was realized a long time ago that when plasma manifests it acts as if it's alive and when i say acts as if it is alive it seems to come alive in fact the very term plasma comes from the fact of the plasma in our body because the early researchers who did the work on this in the, the, the late 19th, early 20th century recognized plasma. They said, my God, look, look out, look at the way it's working. It looks like 
the plasma moving around the body. And that's how it got the name that it has. And this theoretical physicist you can see up on the screen here, a guy by the name of David Bowen, um, he was American, British, Brazilian, and came out with some incredible stuff about the quantum world in which we live. That's the subatomic world. That's the, the microcosmic world. But he also did a lot of work on plasma. And he also recognized that it came alive. And what he actually realized was that plasma becomes like this medium into which intelligences, we call it the proto-intelligence, comes up from what he referred to as a deeper level of existence, one that, that's beyond our physical space-time, which he referred to as the implicate order, okay? And he said that this implicate order is something which, um, which, which coexists with us, but it's beyond normal space-time. His colleague, Basil Hiley, uh, referred to it as the pre-space, and it's what's known as a non-local medium. What that means is that it's not connected with by anything, like, you know, like air to, for sound, you know, you bang something, bang something, bang something, bang It's all connected. That's all what they call local. But something that's non-local is outside of normal space-time, and it's a medium through which information, energy, and mass can be transferred instantaneously. But, so... Once you start thinking about all of this, you think, well, hold on. Yeah. Is it possible that some UFOs, not all, some UFOs are actually plasma and that they are actually intelligent in the sense that they are inhabited by intelligences that occupy them from a deeper level of existence? This realm called the pre-space, this non-local realm. And if that's the case, who are these intelligences and how do they relate to aliens and, you know, UFO theories and whatever? Well, we'll come on to that. Because the other thing, and the, I can you can go down a, a rabbit hole with this, is quantum entanglement. Some of you may know about quantum entanglement, but it's the idea that particles can become twinned or linked. And no matter how far away they get from each other, one can be one end of the universe, the other one could be the other end of the universe, they will have, they will retain this link between them. And if you can imagine that there are whole systems of entangled particles existing within this universe, within my head, some in my head, some in your head, some in the person sitting next to you, it creates whole systems of entangled systems of particles that allow us to understand things like telepathy, precognition, uh, mind over matter for the first time. And a lot of people say, yeah, well, hold on, quantum entanglement only works on the microcosmic level. No. In the past five years, it's been proved that quantum entanglement affects what they call the macrocosmic world. That's the world in which we live. So suddenly, quantum entanglement becomes the key to understanding not just what I just said, these, these you know, telepathy and that, but the entanglement between us and UFOs. And remember what I said when I, I first started, that I, I was quite perplexed why people could interact with UFOs and the objects would seem to respond to them as if they were intelligent, as if they were entities, beings in their own right. And now we're starting to get answers that the intelligences, the beings that actually occupy 
these UFOs, UAPs, plasma constructs, as, as we like to call them, are intelligent. They are intelligent. They are intelligence is coming from somewhere, and they're not necessarily always coming from outer space. But where they come from, we'll, we'll, we'll say for a moment. So, now, David Bowen believed that these intelligences came from a deeper level of existence. So what is this deeper level of existence? What is this so-called pre-space? Well, for that, we have to go to string theory. Now, string theory is one of the modern ideas of interpreting the subatomic world. I mean, it talks about at the, the, the most microscopic level, particles are like these, these weird rubber bands that, that vibrate, that they call strings. We don't have to worry about that because it's one of the theories that came out of string theory that's very important to that, us. And this was the so-called M theory that was devised in 1995 by a theoretical physicist by the name of Ed Witten uh, of the Southern uh, Californian University. And he brought together various different existing string theories and created M-theory. And the reason why it's so important is because it tells us that there is not simply three dimensions of space that we know and love and one dimension of time, which clearly is running forward for us, but there's actually 11 dimensions out there. And that these 11 dimensions, um, four our actual space. So in other words, there's an extra dimension of space. Time is there, but time operates differently uh, on a higher dimensional level. It can go backwards and forwards in time. And in many ways, doesn't really exist in the way that we think about it. And there's another six dimensions that exist in what they refer to as a compactified state. What this means is that they are scrunched up tiny within subatomic particles and play a role which we don't properly really understand. Um, but I reckon they're there to do with consciousness. And the reason I say that is because work that was done by uh, a organisation in Switzerland called the Blue Brain Project, which is trying to map the entire human mind to try and transfer consciousness into AI, have worked out that the brain operates on 11 dimensions, up to 11 dimensions of geometry. So it's almost like our brains are hardwired to operate on a multidimensional level when we come to understand those uh, those dimensions. So that's it. But where are these other dimensions? What's going on here? Well, it would seem as if our universe sits within something else, something that in M-theory is referred to as the bulk. Now, it's a silly term, I know, but the bulk is seen to be like this non-local medium that's outside of the physical universe and it is of 11 dimensions and that under certain conditions within that bulk, universes come into being and sort of blow up almost like balloons being blown up by uh, mass and energy that's coming in to these universes using what they believe is white holes. They're the opposite to black holes. Black holes suck everything out. White holes push mass and energy into an environment which creates a physical universe. And the interesting thing there is that white holes produce plasma. Plasma quickly transforms into atomic matter, the stuff that makes up our particular universe. 
So we exist within one of these universes and the bulk is therefore something that's outside of everything. It's a multidimensional environment, but it also exists within our physical universe as well. In other words, it's embedded within everything. It's still embedded. The bulk is with us, but it's a realm that we didn't really know existed and it conforms to everything that we know about David Bowen's uh, implica order, the pre-space. It has, it's, it's been given various other names along the way, like the ether and you know, the quantum field, things like this. But it has an impact on this world. And let me explain this, because in M-theory, they refer to physical universes as brains, B-R-I-N-E, or brain worlds. And we live in one of these brain worlds. But outside of our physical universe, they believe that there are other brain worlds and they may have their own laws of physics. But they are outside there and occasionally they can interact with each other. They can either buck up side by side or under certain circumstances, they can overlay our physical universe. And when that happens, this other brain world, and there, there may well be lots of them, but let's say one specifically we're talking about now, once it overlays ours, whatever laws of physics exist within that brain world will also start having an effect on our world. So is it possible, therefore, that there are certain locations where this interaction, this overlay between these brain worlds will produce phenomena that we would call paranormal and also provide the environments where these intelligences can manifest into our world more easily. Somewhere like Bempton, which Paul Sinclair was talking about earlier on, because you have to say to yourself, wolf men don't, don't appear down my street. So, you know, what, what's so special about Bempton? Well, the fact is that Bempton and that environment has one of the biggest fault lines in Britain going all the way through it. Plus there's prehistoric activity there, including the largest um, monolith in, in Britain, which I believe uh, Maria was talking about earlier, the Rudstein mon Monument. And the ancients were aware that this area had special qualities. I am certain of that as much as 4,000 years before Roman times, the people were there interacting with this phenomena. There are certain places where the interaction between these brain worlds more easily takes place. And when it happens, that's when your cryptids start crossing over from parallel worlds, parallel existing, hopping into our world and existing whilst that overlay takes place. And as soon as that overlay stops and the brain worlds part again, it's like they vanish like camphor, completely disappearing, as if those cryptids, those wolf men, those big cats, those big dogs, and obviously even the intelligence behind the UFO, suddenly they're no longer there. So what type of intelligences are we dealing with? Well, in my opinion... And again, we'll talk about aliens, proper aliens in a minute, but we are talking, uh, talking about the intelligences and the beings that exist within the bulk. We call them N-dimensional beings. N just means the number of dimensions which we are not sure. It could be four, it could be seven, it could be 11, it could be 32, it could be more. So that's what the N represents. We just call them 
N beings for short. And these are trans-dimensional intelligences. These, we believe, are what occupy the plasma UFOs and interact with us. Okay? And the thing is, you might say, well, what, what do these beings look like? Well, ultimately, they can look like whatever they want to. And whatever they do, because they are multidimensional in nature, we cannot fully see them. And, I mean, for instance, if you were a two-dimensional creature like these these guys here on this flat pan, uh, you know, existence, and a three-dimensional, um, you know, sphere pass through their flat world, all they would see is a circle that gradually opened up until it reached its widest, you know, place, uh, sorry, it was, you know, diameter, and then as it passed through their world, it would just close back up until suddenly there was no longer. They would never see a sphere. They would only ever see a circle opening and closing. And it's the same for us in a three-dimensional world. By the way, thanks, Nick, for the pictures. Um, uh, in a three-dimensional world, we would never see a four-dimensional creature, a four-dimensional being, a four-dimensional shape. All we would see is a three-dimensional approximation of something existing in a higher dimensional state. So in other words, we could never see it properly anyway. We might be able to dream about it. We might be able to have psychic experiences to do with higher dimensions. And that's about it. But we can't look straight on at these creatures. You've all heard of things like shadow people and shadow beings. Well, in a way, they are very easily possibly multidimensional beings that somehow are able to cross over into our world on a temporary basis. So that's it. So these wonderful videos that were released by the US Navy a few years ago, is it Gimbal, Go Fast and um, Tick, Tick Tac, wasn't it? Was it Tick Tac? How's that? I mean, you look at these, we've all seen them. They've all been on documentaries. You can watch them on YouTube and the rest of it. You look at them, and the one thing you can say is these are real. These are real UFOs. They've been officially authenticated by the U.S. government, U.S. Navy, the spokespeople for the Pentagon. Yeah, these are real. So what are they? You know, are these extraterrestrial vehicles or are they something else? Are these objects of plasma that are they intelligent beings in their own right now of course i can't answer that question and this is something that you yourself will have to ponder over but we definitely are talking about physical aliens as well as anything that i've been saying here carl sagan the great cosmologist up on the screen here astronomer consultant to nasa um, he wrote a paper as early as 1963, basically saying that it was inevitable that humanity would have been visited by extraterrestrials on countless occasions. He wrote this paper, and it's only really recently resurfaced again. I mean, a lot of people think that Carl Sagan didn't believe in UFOs and didn't believe in aliens. That's not right whatsoever. And in fact, I've talked to one of his colleagues who knew him very well, and Carl Sagan said, look, I had to drop the whole thing. When I joined NASA, they said, look, all this UFO, UFO stuff, you've got to drop it. Aliens, you've got to drop it if you want to work with us. And so if a man like Carl Sagan, 
who wrote the film Contact or the book Contact. Obviously, the, the blockbuster film came out of that. If he says that we've been visited on countless occasions by aliens, physical aliens, then, you know, who am I to say anything else? And I think that it is true. I think that we probably have been visited on many occasions. But there's something else going on in the background. Plasma holds the key to understanding many UFO encounters. Now, many of these ideas um, that I've up to this point were in my book, LightQuest, which is available over there. But that came out in 2012, and we've moved on massively since then. Now, here's my good friend and colleague, Eric von Daniken. Um, his book, Chariots of the Gods, had an incredible impact on me a long time ago, as I'm sure it did on many of you here. Because what he's saying, what, you know, the questions that, that he asks is, look at all these incredible monuments of the past. Look at Stonehenge. Look at the Great Pyramid. Look at the Nazca Lines. Look at Sumerian myths and traditions. You know, is it possible that we were helped in the past by aliens? That's all he said, as, as I think Giorgio was trying to point out. You know, they've never said the Great Pyramid was built by aliens. But the inspiration behind it could have come from higher intelligences. Now, those in higher intelligences could be physical aliens. But, again, is it possible that these end beings, these transdimensional beings that I'm talking about, are also responsible for some of, you know, the, the pro human progress that's taken place. And that's what I want to go on to now. So in other words, is it possible that in addition to God being an astronaut, which was obviously the, the question that came out of Chariots of the Gods, was God or is God an end being? So I want to take you now to Israel, okay? And a place called the Kezem Cave. It was discovered in the year 2000, just outside of, of Tel Aviv. And it was on my radar for a few years. Um, but then something was discovered there that basically made me drop everything and go to Israel to talk to the archaeologists about what had been discovered there. Because this is incredibly important. Because it was occupied for the first time about 400,000 years and it, right the way down to about 2,000, sorry, two, two, yeah, sorry, 200,000 years ago. And they discovered the oldest evidence anywhere in the world of shamanism. Now, shamanism and a shaman are, well, a shaman is somebody that communicates with otherworldly realms and otherworldly beings. And they discovered a swan wing bone. Right, so you know, one of the most important bones on a on a swan that allows it flight, and that's incredibly important because these were much prized by ancient shamans to make that connection when in a trance state to enter into otherworldly environments. There's a picture of it or a section of it on the screen at the moment. It's been modified. It was obviously used for ritualistic purposes. So shamanism begins with the Kezem Cave 400,000 years ago. Now, you'll see the relevance of all this as we go on. Obviously, there's a swan there, swan shamanism, very, very important in many ancient cultures. 
And for those of you that have read my books like The Cygnus Mystery and The Cygnus Key, you'll know I've got a particular interest in the importance of the swan to cosmology and shamanism amongst ancient cultures. But in addition to, to using swan bones, particularly this swan bone, this is obviously that's a very important shamanic animal, they were also using these handheld balls, these, these stone balls, which the archaeologists believe were used to communicate with otherworldly realms and beings. I mean, here's one here. I mean, I, I was out there, I, I held some of these. And in many ways, these are the oldest crystal balls anywhere in the world. Okay? So they were using them to focus their mind, to concentrate on otherworldly realms, to communicate with the entities and the beings. And to them, they probably saw them in terms of their ancestors, but also probably the spirits of the animals that were killed during the hunt. So in other words, they would enter almost like this sort of jungle book environment of the mind where they would communicate with the animals and communicate with their own ancestors. So they were doing this by, you know, by, by, by using items of, of shamanic paraphernalia um, and also to uh, by using these balls as points of focus. But the other important thing, and this is, this is why I'm talking about this, is that in the Kesem cave, a whole number of firsts for humanity were actually taking place at this time. Everything from what they call canned food, which was a, a way of, of chopping the legs off of, of deer, or presumably one dead, once they're dead, obviously, um, and storing them up and putting them in their backpack and so that they could use them as a tasty meal for the, for the marrow inside them at any point. Uh, early forms of freezers, uh, production lines of, of blade tools, the first sustain use of, of fires, uh, and even what they referred to as, as a school of rock in the press, where people would come to the cave, you know, young pupils to learn the trade of, of, of making stone tools of different types, and, you know, there was different sections of the cave. And the thing is that all of this might not sound rock and roll, but for these people... This, they, they were becoming the smartest people on the planet at this time. This is 400,000 years ago. And the thing is that these are, these are not Homo erectus. They're not Neanderthals. They're not Denisovans. They're our ancestors. The teeth that have been found in this, in this cave are almost identical to our own. They are our direct ancestors. They were the smartest people on the planet and they're inventing shamanism at the same time. Tell me this is not a coincidence. So what the hell was going on here all this time ago? Uh, this is uh, uh, an image of that the first shaman by uh, Russell Hussein, friend of Colin Mines, on various images uh, for my books. This, this is what we think was, was going on here. This is an impression of that first shaman, all those years ago and the answer to this I mean and this was something that, that I tried to ponder over and it was then that I realized that if you're at the Kesem cave on the horizon is a very very important mountain a place called Mount Gerizim and this is Mount Gerizim today and the reason why Mount Gerizim is so important is because it appears a number of times in the first few chapters of the Hebrew Bible. 
It is said to be the dwelling place of God. God dwells on this mountain. No other mountain, only this one. This was seen as the center of the world. It was also seen as the gateway to heaven itself. And Abraham, who is the the, the great grandfather of, of the Israelite peoples, when he first arrives in the promised land of Canaan, first place he goes to, Mount Gerizim, God appears to him, you know, the God that will eventually become Yahweh, and basically says, look, you know, this is your land for you and, and, and your, your descendants, um, and he builds his first altar there. So, you know, this is the first place that Abraham connects with Yahweh, basically. And we all know the story of Jacob lies down, dreams of, um, of, of angels going up and down a ladder, as he, he lies on this stone of the pillow, Jacob's pillow, that takes place here. It takes place at a place called Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. And if you look closely at the Bible, that's here. That's exactly what. And there are a number of occasions where God manifests to the earliest Israelites, the patriarchs, um, and it's all, all recorded you know, in the Bible. But the most important thing about this dwelling place of God himself, is that it's said that God manifests on this mountain in his form as the Shekinah. So what's the Shekinah? Shekinah means presence. It means the presence of God. And it's universally interpreted within Hebrew tradition, Aramaic tradition, um, as meaning light, bursts of light, basically. So in other words, God was seen to manifest this mountain. They would know that God was there when these lights would appear on this mountain. And I'm thinking, hold on, if this is not far from Kezem Cave, do we dare to even think that what's going on at Gerizim could have been going on much earlier and that the people of Kezem somehow were connected with this mountain? Well, I'll show a picture a little later on. It's probably out of place. But there is no question that the people of the Kesem cave would go to this mountain to collect the flint that they used to make their stone tools. So in other words, they unquestionably saw this mountain's important and they could have used any, any other flint locally to make their tools, but they wanted to go specifically to this mountain. So they knew it. They knew it. The other important thing is that the Shekinah is the way that God manifests in connection with the Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, it said that, that, um, that night, you know, God, God's presence would be seen above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, um, in the form of this, this, this fire, this, this bright light, which was referred to as the Shekinah. In other words, the same manner that God appears on the mountain, he also appears in connection with the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, the first place that Joshua brings the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant after he and the Israelites cross over the River Jordan and enter the Promised Land of Canaan, and shortly after Moses had died, they go to they go to Shek, they go to um, to Mount Gerizim, and at the base of it is a city, an ancient city called Shechem. Um, today it is the modern uh, city of Nablus in the Palestinian West Bank. I was there in 2019 
This is the site of uh, Shechem that you can see here. This is a standing stone. This was the exact spot that the Ark of the Covenant was said to have been placed down with Gerizim in the, in the background and another mountain called Ebal on the other side. And they did this whole thing called the, 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 bless, the, the ceremony of the curses and the blessings. Twelve tribes would go up one mountain and um, do blessings on people that, that adhered to the law. Uh, of, of, of Yahweh and the others would, the other six would go on the other mountain and curse all those that didn't adhere to the, the divine law. I mean, this is what the Bible says anyway. And all of that happened here and it said that the, the Ark of the Covenant stood between the two with the Shekinah rising up above it, this manifestation of light. Now, this light, this manifestation of the Shekinah also appears in other places in the Bible. Um, for instance, when Moses and the Israelites arrive, when they're in the wilderness for 40 years, when they arrive at Mount Sinai, they can see this burst of light on the top of Mount Sinai, which you can see here depicted by this 19th century illustration. And, you know, Moses climbs the mountain and he speaks to God in the form of this devouring fire and God obviously gives him the Ten Commandments, which obviously written down in the tablets of the law. But also, in addition to that, this manifesting light form, this intelligence who we call Yahweh, tells Moses how to create the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is very clearly a piece of, of you know, plasma technology that was given specifically to Moses to allow him to communicate with these intelligences, which, in my opinion, are these multidimensional M beings, basically. In other words, they gave him the technology. They told him how to continue to communicate with us by creating the Ark of the Covenant in a specific way. And obviously, here's a picture. I mean, it's it's fascinating looking at all the different pictures of the Ark of the Covenant and how they represent God manifesting over the mercy seat itself. You can see the picture here. Um, but the other important thing was Mount Gerizim. Firstly, it has all of the attributes of the right geology for a portal location. Tectonic plates for underground faulting, the quartz, all the rest of it, to produce exactly the type of environment to create the manifestation of lights. And I looked into this. Historically, Light seen in the area, no problem at all. Um, they've even been seen in more modern times, been interpreted in terms of flying saucers and UFOs. But what's so interesting is that I thought, well, that's all very nice, but I need more. I need to go there. So I went to the Kesem Cave. After that, I crossed over into the Palestinian West Bank. I climbed Mount Gerizim. And at the top, there's a community of people known as the Samaritans. They claim to be the descendants of the original Israelites. And I wanted to, to ask them about, you know, the mysteries of the mountain. And we spoke to one of the, the highest ranking, um, uh, you know, priests there. With, I, was, I was there with an interpreter. And I said to him, I said, I, I, I said to him, these lights, I said, are they still seen here today and he said oh yes yeah i said what how, how do you interpret them and the word that he said was malak which some of you will probably know means angel so 
what we would call today UFOs or UAPs still appear on this mountain to this day and they are interpreted by this very ancient community, religious community, as the manifestation of God's messengers, the angels appearing there. And this does show you how timeless this subject is, that we're not dealing with nuts and bolts spacecraft all the time, that we're dealing with something that's many, many thousands of years old and has been interpreted by different people in different ways. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a slide I alluded to, is that the Kezem people would go to this mountain to get their flint. And there are traditions all the way around the world, I talk about it in the book Origins of the Gods over there, that holy mountains are associated with mysterious light phenomena. I go to China, I go to Greece, I go to America, and there are the places where lights are seen, UFOs are seen, Indigenous peoples have always gone to get their raw materials to make their tools because they believe that there is a power connected with those mountains, one that they can take away in a mobile or temporary form to create their stone tools or their stone balls or whatever it is to continue that link with an entity that they associate with those mountains. And this entity, by the way, we call it egregore. Um, which essentially is, is uh, means an entity that has its own existence but is fed by what we call human consciousness interaction. That's the other important element of all of this, is that we are a part of the phenomena, as Paul Sinclair was saying earlier to do with the Bempton phenomena and the, the Wolfman stuff, is that we play a role. I would say that we are as much as 50% of the contribution to us connecting with the phenomena. In other words, take us out the picture, put us on another planet, would the phenomena still take place? Yes, it would, but only to a degree. It needs us. It needs human observation, human contact, human consciousness interaction to properly manifest and to know when to manifest because we have this entangled connection with the phenomena. It's all part of the same thing. So, as we mentioned earlier, the Ark of the Covenant was brought here. I mean, the Ark is, is not only an, uh, an example of what I call MBN technology, but remember, the people, the Israelites firmly believed that it was God manifesting above, uh, you know, above that Ark. And that if that's the case, then their interaction with these plasma intelligences, multidimensional intelligences, is being fed. It's being fed all the time by by using this box, by using it to to manifest these intelligences. And the technology, as I said, was given by the light itself, God in the form of light. So Mount Gerizim, just like Bempton in Yorkshire, is a portal location. There are countless ones all over the globe, probably in every country of the world. I mean, you, you you probably know of many yourself, many places where lights manifest, paranormal phenomena manifests, where cryptids appear. They're all part of the same thing. They're all part of a bigger picture. And the biggest showcase portal location in the world is obviously Skinwalker Ranch at this time. And during the writing of Origins of the, of the Gods, um, 
which I wrote with my colleague uh, Greg Little, um, I had the opportunity of going to Skinwalker Ranch. I was invited out there. I've had a lot of contact with the, the people involved. There's me at the entrance and there's me with various people that you will recognise from the, the TV show there. And I was able to spend a good couple of days not just talking to these guys, but also to workers on the ranch, people who were not interested in UFOs per se, really. And yet, they'd seen objects themselves. They'd seen them either suddenly manifest directly above them, or they were seeing objects flying along what's known as the Northern Mesa, which borders the ranch on the northern side. Um, and I was able to, to build up a, a, a massive picture of what was going on there. And here's the, um, the summary of it. The main place associated with, with the phenomena there is the Northern Mesa. Um, this is um, Homestead Number 2, which is where you know, more paranormal phenomena takes place than, than anywhere else. And the thing about this Northern Mesa is that it's made of a type of sandstone that's almost solid quartz. And this quartz powders, in fact, to such a degree that you have to wear masks or scarves around your neck uh, around, around your face almost all the time because it just gets in your throat and it's really not good for you. And in addition to that, the Native American peoples, the, the Ute and the, the Navajo of the area, refer to this northern mesa as the path of the skinwalker. And they say that that this creature called the skinwalker, which we'll talk about in a second, um, moves along there, and they believe this for at least something like 15 generations, so at least a couple of hundred years, and I'm sure uh, much longer than that. But what's so important about this, we already talked about quartz producing electrons, which produce the right, what's known as ionospheric environments, where lights can appear. But we'd also expect to have other types of geology at Skinwalker Ranch, which tells us that it's a port location. And indeed, there is a fault line, and nobody's mentioned this other than me, is that there's a fault line going right the way through this northern mesa. So that produces, helps produce electricity, which releases these electrons into the air, which can produce electromagnetic fields, and also these plasma objects will suddenly burst and manifest into existence. And it creates the right environment where the overlay between these different brain worlds, these multidimensional realms, can take place more easily than somewhere else. So that communication with the intelligences of these other realms, these, 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 these intelligences, these beings of the bulk, can more easily take place. But what's so interesting is that the guys who, who, who are on the, the TV show, who I was able to, to talk to, they say that the intelligence involved with Skinwalker Ranch is a single entity. I mean, they believe that there is just one. And that everything that happens there is a manifestation of this one intelligence. And this intelligence knows them. It's omnipresent. It's omnipotent in a way. It only manifests, it only does things when it wants to do it. And what's so interesting is that the term that they use for this intelligence, this single intelligence, which I call an egregore, is the host. And I've, I've heard Paul 
talk about the Benton phenomena and the intelligence behind the phenomena there also use this same term. So it's interesting that these portal locations seem to have this entity, this egregore, this intelligence associated with it that somehow is connected with a multidimensional existence and that it's this that can suddenly produce lights or suddenly produce wolfmen or suddenly produce paranormal activity, can suddenly connect with you and be with you and then eventually let you go. These, I mean, these intelligences are not necessarily how we've perceived aliens up to this point. We have to update our views about what is going on out there. There's no question about that. But just a few words on skinwalkers themselves. The term skinwalker is a, essentially a Navajo term, and it means a witch, that's their term, there's always a Navajo word for it, uh, but, it but basically we mean shaman. The form, the supernatural form that they take when they are in a trance state. So they'll do their ritual, you know, they'll get out into an altered state, um, and they will become an animal that will then be able to go out and do things, including curse people, and they do do that. And the most obvious form of the skinwalker is the wolf. In fact, the same word for witch and wolf in Navajo is exactly the same. So that shows the link between the two. And Skinwalker Ranch and the little area of the Yuntar Basin where it's in was sacred lands to these Native American peoples in the past. There is a stone circle up there. There is rock art. Um, as we know, the Native American peoples call it the path of the skinwalker. And it's all connected with this northern mesa where this fault line is, which seems to be the focus of where all this phenomena takes place. And so they interpret what they see, which presumably is lights and other paranormal phenomena, as evidence of skinwalkers. And the reason why they believe that it's skinwalkers is because the Ute and the Navajo had wars in the 19th century. It was very nasty. And I think that there's an element, particularly amongst the Ute, who you know conquered the, 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 the Navajo, uh, and imprisoned them, possibly even put them into slavery, according to certain stories, is that I think they almost feel that the presence of this phenomena is like um, the result of this curse that was put upon them by their rival tribe, the Navajo, in the past. So in other words, when they see and experience paranormal phenomena, they're not seeing, you know, aliens and UFOs. They're seeing evidence that they're tribe has been put under a curse um, and as I say there's, there's references for all of this so you know this, this is real stuff so what happened to me when I was there well firstly I, the whole time I was, I was there I just had this sense that it was like I felt I was on the, 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 the edge of paradise was the term that kept coming into my head it's like I almost felt that anything could happen at any time it was a very weird feeling and I, there's only a few places where I felt that. One is Bempton up in Yorkshire. Another is Martha in Texas, um, where mysterious lights also appear. There's the same edginess about it. But something weird did happen. Um, I was taking, I mean, whilst I was there, I, 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 I took hundreds, if not thousands of pictures. I took video. I, I was recording sound recordings all the time just so that we could, you know, analyze them afterwards. 
And one of the strangest things was this picture that you can see here now. And it's towards Homestead number two. The, the, you can see the northern mesa behind it. And there's this weird creature turns up over Homestead two. And this is it. Now, I saw nothing at the time. Uh, I showed it to the guys in the command center, and they did actually try and look to see if there was anything um, on the the cameras. They, they couldn't see anything. And I don't know what the hell this is. I mean, it's not an insect because it's far too sharp, which means it was a distance away. I've tried contacting uh, bird specialists in uh, in Utah, I have no idea. And yet you can see the colours. It's blue, it's yellow, it's black, it's white. And there's this weird thing hanging from the centre of it, almost like a stalk of corn. I mean, some people said, oh, could it have been a drone? Well, there was no drones up at that time. I mean, they did use one later on that day, but it certainly didn't look like that. So is it possible that it is a cryptid? And weird birds have been seen at Skinwalker Ranch. You know, that's one of the, the weird cryptids that, that, that appears there. Other then, of course, wolfmen, just like at Benton, you get these weird dogmen, which archaeology, archaeologically they call lycons, uh, which means basically, you know, wolfman, basically. So I don't know what this is. And, you know, to me, I've just thrown it in. I've included it in the book. And that's that. So Skinwalker Ranch is a perfect example of a portal location. But it's only a showcase site. And you will know places like this. I mean, they, they don't need to be big either. You know, I mean, they, they could be somewhere locally, somewhere that's, A, connected with mysterious lights, UFOs, paranormal activity, cryptids, in your own locale, wherever that is, whether it be in this country or whether it be abroad, somewhere that you know that you can connect with the phenomena. Also, just be aware that when you go to these sites, these are the most obvious places or the most likely sites where you can communicate with these transdimensional intelligences. I mean, aside from any other type of intelligence, you know, aliens or whatever else it is you want to see as associated with these places. But remember that they're multidimensional, they're entangled with you, and they are super intelligent. They will know that you're there. You know, you can communicate with them I mean, in the book Light Quest, I, I, I give a whole meditation on how you yourself can connect with these entities. And, you know, you want to go there. I mean, you'll also find that there's folklore connected with them. Probably it will say that, you know, this was the haunt of devils in the past or of, of mysterious beasts or the folk or folk creatures like goblins, elves, things like that would manifest here with their strange lights. I mean, you'll often find that's the case, particularly, of course, in Europe, in America, it's Native American tradition that you would look for similar sort of traditions. Uh, and indeed, my colleague uh, Greg Little, in his half of the book, looks at all of this from the Native American perspective. I obviously keep much more to the Eurasian continent and Britain in particular. So, you know, to me, and this is something I want you to take away, is that yes, UFOs exist. Yes, aliens exist. And they can be physical. And they've probably been visiting the Earth for a very, very long period of time. What their impact has been on human civilization, I'm not sure. 
But what I also believe is that going as far back as 400,000 years with the Gezem cave, the Gezem people, is that they were interacting with these intelligences and these intelligences were helping them to progress with innovations and technology. That's why they became the smartest people in the planet in that time. But I think that this connection probably even goes back even further than that. I mean, we, we, we all came originally from Africa on the Great Rift Valley in countries that are today Tanzania, Kenya, Ethiopia. And this is some of the most geologically active places on the planet. And this is where we invented fire for the first time. You know, we, we, we built these fires in caves and we would have thrown all sorts of plants on them. And some of those plants would have been psychoactive and they would have sent us into altered states of consciousness. And at exactly this time, we go from creating what are known as pebble tools, which are just picking up pebbles, smashing them and using them, to creating the most beautiful, multifaceted, crystal-like hand axes for the first time, known as the Acheulean hand axe. And some connection. This was the first point of connection, I think, with these intelligences as much as 1.75 million years ago. And from that point onwards, these intelligences have been influencing us. They influenced us to create the Ark of the Covenant. They inspired the Great Pyramid. They inspired places like Gebekli Tepe in southeast Turkey. They inspired the beautiful geometry of, of, of places like Stonehenge, the megalithic culture. They were aware of these intelligences. They connected with them. And they are still with us today. And I think that there is an awful lot of companies, organizations and think tanks that know that these M beings, these multidimensional, transdimensional beings exist. And that if we can just communicate with them, they will help progress human evolution. And as I said, this has been going on since the beginning. So with that, I will say thank you very much. was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Rama? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, he was very articulate. Well, we're going to read um, um, Caroline's message today. It's a mm-hmm. bit longer than usual. So, here we go. And Rama's going to find something. Yeah, he's going to find something for us to close with after this. And uh, here we go. A message to Lightbringers, March 23rd, 2023. And as Rainbird pointed out to us, that date is 323s. Uh, since March is a three, and then the 23, and then 2023. So the three plus the 20 in 23 is another 23. So 23, 23, 23. Triple 23 and 23 is the most powerful number there is in all series of numbers. Twin flame plus threefold flame. And that makes the change. That's the path to our our 
our cosmic selves, you might say. And uh, cosmic consciousness is the goal. And we all got it. <laughs> so here we go. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, the Galactics, the Earth Elements, the Fey Elders, the Angelic Legions, the Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. Um, okay, and this is the message that Caroline offered on March 14th at the Ashtar Family Legacy Call. All right, so here we go. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this time to speak with you again today, as always. And by the way, the Ashtar Family Legacy Call is every second and fourth Tuesday of every month. And you can look up ashtarontheroad.com and you can find it there uh, to double check. All right. As always, Archangel Michael is here, and we are pleased to have this time to speak with you again today. As, and again, Archangel Michael is here with his sacred sword of truth. We call him forth each time to ask, let there be only that information, energy, and upliftment here, which is for everyone's higher good. We call him forward, dear ones. Because of this time of powerful transition and powerful change. Some of it leaving people in extreme uncertainty. As a sort of nervous unsureness. In the light of the powerful energies coming in. That are re rewriting even your DNA. Even the most basic aspects of your cellular life are being rewritten, as well as your mental-emotional life and your etheric life. In these times, it can be difficult to know what is best for one. And so, you are always calling this up in your heart-mind. As you are in your sleep state, as you're with your soul family, as you're doing your beautiful work, fulfilling your beautiful role in your earth mission. That mission can be many, many things, dissolving one old matrix or another, or connecting intergalactic civilizations, or awakening the grids of energy that were long ago put to sleep. Rama, how long? Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, as you are in your sleep state, as you're, when you're with your soul family, as you're doing your beautiful work, fulfilling your beautiful role in your earth mission, that mission can be many, many things. Dissolving one old matrix or another, or connecting intergalactic civilizations, or awakening the grids of energy that were long ago put to sleep and are now reactivated on this planet, or working with angelic realms, or working with the Fae, the Elven Elders, etc. 
as you're doing all of that, dear ones, you're, you never doubt who you are. Turn the page. Oh. Um, let's see if I can see what this says up here. You never doubt what you've come to, come in for. Because in that moment, when you are pure, you are pure spirit, you are pure awareness. You are beautifully awake. <laughs> you are beautifully conscious as to why you're here, what it is you're meant to do. You never have to worry about anything. You don't have to sit around and wonder, well, who am I? What in the world am I on this planet for? Because you are in a state, <clears throat> in the etheric, in your energy bodies, where everything is made plain. It's not quite as joyous as regaining that beautiful presence of the higher realms, being purely present there and not on earth. You are still connected to the earth. You still feel some density and heaviness there. And yet, you remember so clearly who you are. That you're not troubled by that destiny, density. So, in your spirit body at night, you are perhaps, as some people we have spoken with lately, assisting those who are recovering from an earthquake. You are maybe assisting those receiving from a flood. Or you may be assisting those recovering from a terrible toxic environmental spill. Or offering one of many other beautiful forms of assistance around the world. All of this work is incredibly invaluable. We would just remind you as you go about your day feeling frankly quite weakened by the power of these energies coming in and they are exhausting we are not going to say otherwise they are extreme remember that they are awakening you to remember not only who you are and why you're here rather who you've been in the past going on that linear timeline of Earth, who you were in Lemuria or Atlantis or the high time of Sumeria or Egypt, who you are as you visit inner Earth etherically. They are here to remind you of all that. Yet the switch over and the release of toxicity particularly on the mental-emotional level. The release of the old trauma you have suffered in your many hundreds of lives here and elsewhere. This is your... Let me just see if I can read this. It's a little bit hard to see. 
this is your very oh I can't read that it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to read there it's okay you're also to get through your day where you see these headlines which are disastrous and disaster describing to say the least and you are going to look at your own life situation and your own life energy feeling very reduced feeling very small and feeling that the earth is changing and maybe in ways that are just too big for you to bear some days this is absolutely understandable and of course we're here to be desperately annoying and to assure you of how powerful you are <laughs> Caroline's got a picture of a roaring lion that is, is absolutely ferocious <laughs> but uh, yes and that you have come into this journey have everything that is required to finish it <clears throat> yes now let's just look for a moment at these lovely angel therapy cards that our writer Caroline has pulled before the call <laughs> alright let's look at that alright you know she was thinking of all of you and we were thinking of all of you as these as these cards were being chosen so it's the presence of all your energies and what you're going through that has brought this up and so the first card is manifestation power and so manifestation power use your spiritual gifts and natural abilities to attract your desired outcome this has come up before when we were doing the Abundant Living podcast a few weeks ago. Use your spiritual gifts and natural abilities to attract your desired outcome. So, how in the world do you do that? People speak of manifestation in terms of, well, I could really use a new car. Or, well, I've got a big medical bill to take care of. Or, I really want to move to a much nicer place. And maybe even own my own home. Or, just earn better and bring in more money. And that's completely understandable. You want better health. You want better quality of life. You desire to bless and give to your loved ones as well as others in this world community completely understandable yet in this case we are thinking of manifestation power dear ones it's more having to do with how you feel within yourselves in terms of what kind of choices do I have in life am I still the decision maker in my life or 
am I what I feel to be some days, which is to be a bit of driftwood on huge ocean waves. And if I'm really lucky, the right dolphin will nudge me in the right direction. And in fact, you are the ocean waves, dear ones. So, you are the ones pounding rock into lovely smooth surfaces over millions of years. And you are the ones releasing into the atmosphere the beautiful humidity, the beautiful humility, humidity that will create powerful storms to help keep the balance of life in the sea. You are the ones who are buoying up even the greatest of whales. And you are the ones who challenge even the greatest of ships at times. And so, you think of yourself in the daily goings-on as not having too many choices, trying to eke out a living and hold yourselves together in the midst of all these earth changes and all of these disaster moments that you read about or personally experience, as well as the challenges of your own life, that can involve many factors having to do with your income or relationships or searching for your beautiful life journey, your true purpose, which, as we say, is already in place. Turn the page. It's already there. So, now... This manifestation power that we're talking about, this is about manifesting the inner sense that all is well. Manifesting this beautiful, strong core, which you are fully aware is full of life. So, that anytime something rattles you, you go into a beautiful, quiet place, and you remember who you are, and you connect with any higher being you call upon. It could be any ascended master or angel, or healing presence, or teaching presence. It could be a great goddess. It could be anyone whom you really feel connected to. It could be your own higher self, or your spirit team. This is fine. And you can say to them, I know that the core of me is powerfully on fire to hold light, to anchor it onto this earth. Yet I am feeling, frankly, very weak today, really exhausted, kind of ill, kind of fed up, kind of amazed. Whoops. <laughs> At all of these things going on in the world, which do change yet which are also a little bit scary. And I would like some direction, some explanation as to what's going on. Now, some people will hear within that, with, will hear, some people will hear within what that wisdom is. It is never withheld from you, 
but it can come in different forms. And absolutely, not surprisingly, dear ones, you need to be open to it. You need to be expecting it. Some people cannot hear inwardly in their heart mind. So, as we say many times, tell your spirit team or whoever you are speaking with, look, I don't hear you. I can't hear things inwardly. Or, I can't, um, I can't image inwardly. It's just not my gift. Can you please feed your wisdom to my conscious mind? And I know those thoughts will pop up in my mind in the perfect time or way. I'll know it's you. Because those thoughts will hold beautiful higher reasoning with Wait a second, I got a staple here in the way. With all the higher wisdom that I was not previously aware or using in my day-to-day life. And they will hold a beautiful presence. This beautiful, all-accepting, unconditional love that one rarely finds. So encourage them. Tell them, please do speak. Please do assist me in hearing you so my ear is attuned to you. And likewise, my outer sight. Quote, if you want to send me a bit of wisdom, say my eye falls on a paragraph with a bit of information, and then an article, or a book, or something someone says, even a sign as I am driving past, that's fine. But just speak to me, and let it be clear to me, and give me the courage to know that it's you. Oh, it's a beautiful whale doing a flip in the ocean. This is difficult at times. Dear ones, because many will hear a bit of inner direction and loving assurance and support and sweep it aside because they are very busy or they are not really sure. They don't really trust that they can pick up on these beautiful messages, which all of you can, by the way, each in his or her own special way. And they don't really trust that that was a beautiful higher being speaking. They think it may be some interfering uh, entity or just their own thoughts. And so, ask for several forms of support and several messages of support. Make it plain to me. And say to them, if this is you, really, if this is higher love, higher wisdom speaking, show me inwardly that it is I, that it is I need to realize and give me the strength and the courage to trust that. Then, you start out in little ways to what. You start out perhaps using the muscle testing 
or whatever method you prefer to ask very simple things. Should I have an apple? Should I have a salad for lunch? And then you use the muscle testing to get a yes or no. <clears throat> After you've built up some confidence over time, then you move on to the bigger questions. This is imperative, dear ones, because we don't want to say that you're not going to make without make it without a compass. You will make it to the fifth dimension. But with that inner compass, dear ones, you are going to build assurance. And then this isn't going to feel like such an impossible and exhausting trek most days. This is all, this is so even when you're tired out from releasing the toxicity of so many lives and shifting your DNA to a higher level, shifting your whole consciousness to a higher level, even when you're exhausted and fed up and your emotion is pouring out and you are not sure when it's going to end, that you almost feel ill at times. And so we go on. And many of you are doing physical cleanses, which is wonderful. That's a beautiful metaphor and a beautiful aid to you to releasing all the toxicity and density that you have picked up in this and many other lives. <clears throat> but there are going to be moments when it's almost not feasible for you to feel good about life unless you do that inward check-in. Again, we don't say it to, for, to frighten anyone. We just say it to remind you you're shifting into a fifth-dimensional being and they are always in touch with the higher realms. Unless they have chosen a shadowy path and none of you have, you are always in touch with higher wisdom on one level or another. And this, you are always in touch. And this is why the fifth dimensional beings can see these beautiful light beings or angels or the fae, the nature spirits, the water spirits. This is why it becomes obvious to those who have moved up to that level. It's because they have welcomed the intangible and the etheric into their lives as the only real thing in it. Everything around you, reach out your hand and touch something in the physical right now. Dear ones, in truth, it doesn't exist. It's pure energy. It's in the process of transmuting, transfiguring into something entirely different. It's just energy. And energy molds and remolds itself on all the time. Yes, you are in a huge hologram. And what you choose to bring into that hologram is up to you. Now, we are going to look at the other card. And it's called integrity. As with all these cards, it has a lovely angel on top. It's saying, align your actions 
so that they match your values and inner knowingness of what's right for you. Turn the page. <laughs> We're getting there. How perfect. Align your actions in everyday life so that they beautifully match not only your inner values, rather your inner knowingness of what's right for you. So, you may decide, dear ones. People are getting very frightened right now about finances and whether their money is safe in the bank or credit union or what have you. Or, they're very upset about the weather being so extreme. They're upset about the cost of living. And in any of these moments, we would suggest just get quiet for a moment. Ask yourself, is it right for me to be stressed about any of these things? Is that who I am? Is that what I prefer to be actively choosing? Ask yourself right now. Think of one stress in your life. Bring that forward. That big what if about some issue. What about your inner knowing? about what's right for you. <laughs> we are going to bet that any of you are willing to reach out inwardly into the light and say, you know, it's really not for me to stress over this. It's not aligned with my values, not aligned with my inner knowledge, my self-knowing, my inner wisdom to stress over this issue. I would feel left behind or locked out or walking on a tightrope. That's not really me. Maybe I was trying to go that route. Maybe my ancestors stressed for me that it's in my lineage to stress about this issue. But it's not really me. How about if I just stay calm? How about if I just hold in one hand that issue and then in the other hand, Hold a great sparkling ball of light, which is the most perfect, wonderful bit of wisdom. Not just the solution, but wisdom as far as how to look at this issue from now on. And then I put the two hands together so that the ball of light absorbs the issue. Do that right now. Hold that issue in one hand and the ball of light, sparkling light, which is pure love and wisdom in the other hand. And then bring them together. Turn the page. Wonderful. It's all higher wisdom now, dear ones. And now gather that and put pull both hands to the heart space, your high heart area. We're willing to bet that every single is not only interested in realizing your manifestation power, but next to that, walking in integrity with who you really are. This goes beyond lessons of the honesty truthfulness. This has to do with admitting who you are in your higher levels and not being afraid of that. Mm -hmm. So that even if you have to ignore and bust off this incessant drive in the mass media, in your government, to feel stressed and anxious and upset, even if you have to just sweep that aside, along with all the training 
you receive in other lives, to feel stressed and uncertain about life. Even if you have to do that and you feel that you're just abandoning your your culture, your parents, that's fine. This is all because on their higher levels, they also are not stressed or worried. Let's just bring in a lot of light down through the crown chakra. Just sit with palms facing up if you wish to receive this. It's falling the beautiful gentle rain to which the the bard Shakespeare would say the quality of mercy is not strained. It it falls from the heavens as a gentle rain. And so the quality of this light, dear ones, is to assist you in a far more easeful acceptance and integration of these powerful energies. You've seen them before and you've experienced them before, just not too often, while in a third dimensional body that is morphing and evolving into a fifth dimensional one. Wonderful, dear ones. You are you are none of you, absolutely none of you, falling. You you are all on the path. You're all doing beautifully. As you listen to the beautiful tune called Soundscape One, a beautiful piano piece composed and performed by a lovely Canadian composer, James Fellows. There's a lovely point in that piece where there's a shift, like a shift in the landscape or narrative. Um, in, um, into, huh. hold on here. Oh well. Uh, okay, there's a sense missing. If you wish, understand. That's all right. But in that shift, dear one, and this is why we choose that piece. The shift in that piece describes the moment when you are moving to that higher level of admitting who you really are. And that is a beautiful light. And for many of you, starseed as well. In truth, everyone is starseed. But some a little more emphatically than others in this particular life. And so we send you much love, dear ones, and many blessings. As always, we are honored to assist. Just allow that lovely, gentle rain of higher light to assist you and to ease your path at this time. Many blessings. And namaste. And I'm passing this talking stick to you. And Emerald Serpent Feather is hanging out. All the fairies and feathers and angels and little beings of light and big ones too. Sasquatch the taboo. Here it comes, Rainbird. All right. I got it. All right. (laughs) And thank you for sharing, Caroline, which, Always good. So, lots of gratitude for the whole day. Really enjoyed Greg Braden and uh, Nassim Harriman and also Michaela for Chandler. 
awesome, and everything was just wonderful. <laughs> it was. Yeah, lots of fun today. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. And Rama, I'm going to pass this stick, this talking stick to you. Here it comes. What do you have for us? Um, this is Alan Watts. What is it to see? What is it to see? Here we go. Let's right now, everybody. Over the rainbow is this dimension, here is this dimension, and there is no veil. Right, Rava? Yeah. Satnam. Satnam Ji. See you in your dreams on the bridge, everybody, and come to Caroline. I mean, come to Caroline. Caroline. Cheryl. Come to Cheryl. Where there's only one of us here, everybody. There really is. I will just quickly give the number. I know we got we got a really bewitching hour here, but um we'll just one second here. Got the book upside down. <laughs> one, two, three. All right. It's at seven o'clock mountain time. And it's on Sunday night at the time and Monday night at that time. And the manifestation power of us coming together is the best. And so come and join us. Uh, you might have a, a good experience that you haven't thought was possible. 425-436-6260. And the PIN code, 946-7441-POUND. See you, everyone. Aloha. 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 Namaste.